The Soiled Night The night was unseasonably cold, even for autumn. A brisk, wet wind was swirling down the alleys, stirring up the day's dust. A north wind, and full of chill. Sir Erzo Cart pulled up his hood to cover his face. It would not do for him to be recognised. A fortnight past, a trader had been butchered in the Shadow City, a harmless man who'd come to dawn for fruit and found death instead of dates. His only crime was being from King's Landing. Uh, the mob would find a sterner foe in me. He would almost have welcomed an attack. His hand drifted down to brush lightly over the hilt on the longsword that hung half-hidden amongst the folds of his layered linen robes. The otter with its turquoise stripes and rows of golden suns, and the lighter orange one beneath. The Dornish garb was comfortable, but his father would have been aghast had he lived to see his son so dressed. He was a man of the reach, and the Dornish were his ancient foes, as the tapestries of old oak bore witness. Ares only had to close his eyes to see them still. Lord Edron, the open-handed, seated in splendour, with the heads of a hundred Dornishmen piled around his feet. The three leaves in the Prince's Pass, pierced by Dornish spears. Alistair sounding his war-horn with his last breath. Sir Oliver the Green Oak all in white, dying at the side of the young dragon. Uh, Dorn is no fit place for any oak heart. Even before Prince Oberon had died, the knight had been ill at ease whenever he left the grounds of Sunspear to walk the alleys of the Shadow City. He could feel eyes upon him everywhere he went, small black Dornish eyes regarding him with thinly veiled hostility. The shopkeepers did their best to cheat him at every turn, and sometimes he wondered whether the taverners were spitting in his drinks. Once a group of ragged boys began pelting him with stones until he drew his sword and ran them off. The red viper's death had inflamed the Dornish even more. Though the streets had quieted a bit, since Prince Doran had confined the sand snakes to a tower, even so, to wear his white cloak openly in the Shadow City would be asking for attack. He had brought three with him, two of wool, one light and one heavy, the third of fine white silk. He felt naked without one hanging from his shoulders. Better naked than dead, he told himself. I am a king's guard still, even uncloaked. She must respect that. I must make her understand. He should never have let himself be drawn into this. But the singer said that love can make a fool of any man. Sunspear's shadow city oft seemed deserted in the heat of the day, when only buzzing flies moved down the dusty streets. But once evening fell, the same streets came to life. Sir Ares heard faint music drifting through louvered windows as he passed below, and somewhere... Finger drums were beating out the quick rhythm of a spear dance, giving the night a pulse. Where three alleys met beneath the second of the winding walls, a pillow girl called down from a balcony. She was dressed in jewels and oil. He took a look at her, hunched his shoulders, and pushed on into the teeth of the wind. We men are so weak. Our bodies betray even the noblest of us. He thought of King Balor the Blessed.
who would fast to the point of fainting to tame the lusts that shamed him. Must he do the same? A short man stood in an arched doorway grilling chunks of snake over a brazier, turning them with wooden tongues as they crisped. The pungent smell of his sauces brought tears to the knight's eyes. The best snake sauce had a drop of venom in it, he had heard, along with mustard seeds and dragon peppers. Marcella had taken to Dornish food as quick as she had to a Dornish prince, and from time to time Sir Ares would try a dish or two to please her. The food seared his mouth and made him gasp for wine, and burned even worse coming out than it did going in. His little princess loved it, though. He had left her in her chambers bent over a gaming table opposite Prince Tristane, pushing ornate pieces across squares of jade and carnelian and lapis lazuli. Messera's full lips had been slightly parted, her green eyes narrowed with concentration. Sivassi, the game was called. It had come to the Planky Town on a trading galley from Volantis, and the orphans had spread it up and down the green blood. The Dornish court was mad for it. Sir Ares just found it maddening. There were ten different pieces, each with its own attributes and powers, and the board would change from game to game, depending on how the players arrayed their home squares. Prince Tristane had taken to the game at once, and Marcella had learned it so she could play with him. She was not quite one and ten. Her betrothed, three and ten. Even so, she had been winning more off than not of late. Tristane did not seem to mind. The two children could not have looked more different. Him with his olive skin and straight black hair, her pale as milk with a mop of golden curls, light and dark like Queen Circe and King Robert. He prayed Marcella would find more joy in her Dornish boy than her mother had found with her storm lord. It made him feel uneasy to leave her, though she should be safe enough within the castle. There were only two doors that gave access to Marcella's chambers in the Tower of the Sun, and Sir Ares kept two men on each. Lannister household guards, men who had come with them from King's Landing, battle-tested, tough, and loyal to the bone. Marcella had her maids, and Scepter Eglantine as well, and Prince Tristane was attended by his own sworn shield, Sir Gascoigne of the Green Blood. No one will trouble her he told himself, and in a fortnight we shall be safely away. Prince Doran had promised as much, though Ares had been shocked to see how aged and infirm the Dornish prince appeared. He did not doubt the prince's word. I am sorry I could not see you until now, or meet Princess Marcella, Martel had said when Ares was admitted to his solar. But I trust that my daughter Ariane has made you welcome here in Dornsar. Ah, she has, my prince, he answered, and prayed that no blush would dare betray him. Ours is a harsh land and poor, yet not without its beauties. It grieves us that ye have seen no more of Dorn than Sunspear, but I fear that neither you nor your princess would be safe beyond these walls. We Dornish are a hot-blooded people, quick to anger and slow to forgive. 
I would gladden my heart if I could assure you that the Sam Sneaks were alone in wanting war, but I will not tell you a lie, sir. You have heard my small folk in the streets crying out for me to call my spears. Half my lords agree with them, my fear. And you, my prince, the knight had dared to ask. My mother taught me long ago that only madmen fight wars they cannot win. If the bluntness of the question had offended him, Prince Doran hid it well. Yet this piece is fragile, as fragile as your princess. Uh, only a beast would harm a little girl. My sister, Aelia, had a little girl as well. Her name was Rainies. She was a princess, too. The prince sighed. Those who would plunge a knife into Princess Marcella do not bear her any malice. No more than Sir Amory Lodge did when he killed Rainus, if indeed he did. They seek only to force my hand, for if Marcella should be slain in dawn whilst under my protection, who would believe my denials? No one shall ever harm Marcella whilst I live. A noble vow, said Doran Martell with a faint smile, but you are only one man, sir. I had hoped that imprisoning my headstrong nieces would help to calm the waters. But all we've done is drive the roaches back beneath the rushes. Every night I hear them whispering and sharpening their knives. Uh, he is afraid, Sir Ares realized then. Look, his hand is shaking. The Prince of Dawn is terrified. Words failed him. My apologies, sir. Prince Doran said, I am frail and failing, and sometimes Sunspear wearies me with its noise and dirt and smells. As soon as my duty allows, I mean to return to the water gardens. When I do, I shall take Princess Marcella with me. Before the knight could protest, the prince raised a hand, its knuckles red and swollen. You shall go as well, and her scepter. Her maids, her guards, Sunspear's walls are strong, but beneath them is the Shadow City. Even within the castle, hundreds come and go each day. The gardens are my haven. Prince Marn raised them as a gift for his Targaryen bride to mark Dawn's marriage to the Iron Throne. Autumn is a lovely season there. Hot days, cool nights, the salt breeze off the sea, the fountains and the pools, and there are other children, boys and girls of high and gentle birth. Marcella will have friends of her own age to play with. She will not be lonely. As you say, the prince's words pounded in his head, she will be safe there. Only why had Doran Martell urged him not to write King's Landing about the move. Marcella will be safest if no one knows just where she is. Sir Aerys had agreed, but what choice did he have? He was a knight of the King's Guard, but only one man for all that, just as the prince had said. The alley opened suddenly onto a moonlit courtyard. Past the candlemaker's shop, she wrote, a gate and a short flight of exterior steps. He pushed through the gate and climbed the worn steps to an unmarked door. Should I knock? 
he pushed the door open instead and found himself in a large dim room with a low ceiling, lit by a pair of scented candles that flickered in niches cut from the thick earthen walls. He saw patterned mirish carpets underneath his sandals, a tapestry upon one wall, a bed. My lady, he called, where are you? Here? She stepped out from the shadow behind the door. An ornate snake coiled around her right forearm, its copper and gold scales glimmering when she moved. It was all she wore. No, he meant to tell her. I only came to tell you I must go. But when he saw her shining in the candlelight, he seemed to lose the power of speech. His throat felt dry as the Dornish sands. Silent he stood, drinking in the glories of her body, the hollow of her throat, the round ripe breasts with their huge dark nipples, the lush curves at waist and hip, and then somehow he was holding her, and she was pulling off his robes. When she reached his under-tunic, she seized it by the shoulders and ripped the silk down to his navel. But Ares was past carrying. Her skin was smooth beneath his fingers, as warm to the touch as sand baked by the Dornish sun. He raised her head and found her lips. Her mouth opened under his, and her breast filled his hands. He felt her nipples stiffen as his thumbs brushed over them. Her hair was black and thick and smelled of orchids, a dark and earthy smell that made him so hard it almost hurt. Touch me, sir, the woman whispered in his ear. His hand slipped down her rounded belly to find the sweet wet place beneath the thicket of black hair. Yes, there, she murmured as he slipped a finger up inside her. She made a whimpering sound, drew him to the bed, and pushed him down. More, oh, more, yes, sweet, my knight, my knight, my sweet white knight, yes, you, you, I want you. Her hands guided him inside her, then slipped around his back to pull him closer. Deeper, she whispered, yes, oh, oh. When she wrapped her legs around him, they felt as strong as steel. Her nails raked his back as he drove into her again and again and again until she screamed and arched her back beneath him. As she did, her fingers found his nipples, pinching till he spent his seed within her. I could die now, happy, the knight thought, and for a dozen heartbeats at least he was at peace. He did not die. His desire was as deep and boundless as the sea. But when the tide receded, the rocks of shame and guilt thrust up as sharp as ever. Sometimes the waves would cover them, but they remained beneath the waters, hard and black and slimy. What am I doing? he asked himself. I am a knight of the king's guard. He rolled off of her to sprawl staring at the ceiling. A great crack ran across it from one wall to the other. He had not noticed that before, no more than he had noticed the picture on the tapestry. The scene of Nymeria and her ten thousand ships. I see only her. A dragon might have been peering in the window, and I would never have seen anything but her breasts, her face, her smile. There is Wayne, she murmured against his neck, 
She slid a hand across his chest. Are you thirsty? No. He rolled away and sat on the edge of the bed. The room was hot, and yet he shivered. You bleed, she said. I scratched too hard. When she had touched his back, he flinched as if her fingers were afire. Don't! Naked he stood. No more! I have balm for the scratches. But none for my shame. The scratches are nothing. Forgive me, my lady. I must go. So soon? She had a husky voice, a wide mouth made for whispers, full lips ripe for kissing. Her hair tumbled down across her bare shoulders to the tops of her full breasts, black and thick. It curled in big, soft, lazy ringlets. Even the hair upon her mound was soft and curly. Stay with me tonight, sir. I still have much to teach you. I have learned too much from you already. You seem glad enough for the lesson at the time, sir. Are you certain you're not off to some other bed, some other woman? Tell me who she is. I will fight her for you, bare-breasted, knife to knife. She smiled. Unless she is a sand snake, if so, we can share you. I love my cousin's wealth. You know, I have no other woman, only duty. She rolled onto one elbow to look up at him, her big black eyes shining in the candlelight. Ach, oh, that poxy bitch. I know her. Dry as dust between the legs, and her kisses leave you bleeding. Let duty sleep alone for once, and stay with me tonight. My place is at the palace, she sighed. With your other princess, oh, you will make me jealous. I think you love her more than me. The maid is much too young for you. You need a woman, not a little girl. But I can play the innocent if that excites you. You should not say such things. I remember, she is Dornish. In the reach, men said it was the food that made Dornishmen so hot-tempered and their women so wild and wanton. Fiery peppers and strange spices heat the blood. She cannot help herself. I love Marcella as a daughter. He can never have a daughter of his own, no more than he could have a wife. He had a fine white cloak instead. We are going to the water gardens. Eventually, she agreed. Though with my father, everything takes four times as long as it should. If he says he means to leave upon the morrow, you will certainly set out within a fortnight. You will be lonely in the gardens, I promise you. And where is the brave young gallant who said he wished to spend the rest of his life in my arms? I, I was drunk when I said that. He had had three cups of watered wine. I was drunk on you. It had been ten years since. I never touched a woman until you, not since I took the white. I, I never knew what love could be. Yet now, I, I am afraid. What would frighten my white knight? I fear for my honor, he said, and for yours. I contend to my own honor. She touched a finger to her breast, drawing it slowly round her nipple. And to my own pleasures, if need be. I am a woman grown. Oh, she was that, beyond a doubt, seeing her there upon the feather bed, smiling that wicked smile, toying with her breast. 
Was there ever a woman with nipples so large or so responsive? You could hardly look at them without wanting to grab them, to suckle them until they were hard and wet and shiny. He looked away. His small clothes were strewn on the carpets. The knight bent to pick them up. Oh, your hands are shaking, she pointed out. They would sooner be caressing me, I think. Must you be in such haste to don your clothes, sir? I prefer you as you are. A bed, unclad, we are our truest selves. A man and a woman, lovers. One flesh, as close as two can be. Our clothes make us different people. I would sooner be flesh and blood than silks and jewels. And you? You are not your white cloak, sir. I am, Sir Aries said. I am my cloak. And this must end for your sake as well as mine. If we should be discovered, men will think you fortunate. Men will think me an oath-breaker. What if someone were to go to your father and tell him how I dishonored you? My father is many things, but no one has ever said he was a fool. The bastard of God's grace had my maidenhead when we were both fourteen. Do you know what my father did when he learned of it? She gathered the bedclothes in her fist and pulled them up under her chin to hide her nakedness. Nothing. My father's very good at doing nothing. He calls it thinking. Tell me true, sir. Is it my dishonor that concerns you, or your own? Uh, both. Her accusation stung. That is why this must be our last time. So you have said before. I did, and meant it too, but I am weak. Else I would not be here now. He could not tell her that. She was the sort of woman who despised weakness. He could sense that. She has more of her uncle in her than her father. He turned away and found his striped silk undertunic on a chair. She had ripped the fabric to the navel when she pulled it down over his arms. This is ruined, he complained. How can I wear it now? Backwards, she suggested. Once you've done your robes, no one will see the tear. Perhaps your little princess will sew it up for you. Or shall I send a new one to the water gardens? Send me no gifts. That would only draw attention. He shook out the under-tunic and pulled it over his head, backwards. The silk felt cool against his skin, though it clung to his back where she'd scratched him. It would serve to get him back to the palace at the least. All I want is to end this. This— Is that gallant, sir? You heard me. I begin to think that all your words of love were lies. Oh, I could never lie to you. Sir Ares felt as if she'd slapped him. Why else would I have forsaken all my honor but for love? When I am with you, I, I can scarcely think— you are all I ever dreamt of, but words are wind. If you love me, do not leave me. I swore a vow not to wed or father children. Well, I have drunk my moon tea, and you know I cannot marry you. She smiled. Though I might be persuaded to keep you for my paramour. Now you mock me. Ah, perhaps a little. Do you think you are the only Kingsguard who ever loved a woman? Well, there have always been men who found it easier to speak vows than to keep them, he admitted. 
Sir Boris Blunt was no stranger to the street of silk, and Sir Preston Greenfield used to call at a certain draper's house whenever the draper was away. But Ares would not shame his sworn brothers by speaking of their failings. Uh, Sir Terence Toyne was found abed with his king's mistress, he said instead. Twas love, he swore, but it cost his life and hers, and brought about the downfall of his house and the death of the noblest knight who ever lived. Yes, and what of Lucamore the Lusty, with his three wives and sixteen children? The song always makes me laugh. Uh, the truth is not so funny. He was never called Lucamore the Lusty whilst he lived. His name was Lucamore Strong, and his whole life was a lie. When his deceit was discovered, his own sworn brothers gelded him, and the old king sent him to the wall. Those sixteen children were left weeping. He was no true knight, no more than Terence Toyne. And the dragon knight? She flung the bedclothes aside and swung her legs to the floor. The noblest knight who ever lived, you said. And he took his queen to bed and got her with child. I will not believe that, he said, offended. The tale of Prince Eamon's treason with Queen Nerys was only that, a tale, a lie his brother told when he wished to set his true-born son aside in favour of his bastard. Aegon was not called the unworthy without cause. He found his sword-belt and buckled it around his waist, though it looked queer against the silken Dornish undertunic. The familiar weight of longsword and dagger reminded him of who and what he was. "'I will not be remembered as Sir Ares the Unworthy,' he declared. "'I will not soil my cloak.' "'Yes,' she said, "'that fine white cloak.' You forget my great-uncle wore the same cloak. He died when I was little, yet I still remember him. He was as tall as a tower, and used to tickle me until I could not breathe for laughing. I never had the honour to know Prince Lewin, Sir Ares said, but all agreed that he was a great knight. A great knight with a paramour. She is an old woman now, but she was a rare beauty in her youth, men say. Prince Lewin, that tale Sir Ares had not heard, it shocked him. Terence Toyne's treason and the deceits of Lucamore the Lusty were recorded in the White Book, but there was no hint of a woman on Prince Lewin's page. My uncle always said that it was the sword in a man's hand that determined his worth, not the one between his legs, she went on. So spare me all your pious talk of soiled cloaks. It is not our love that has dishonoured you. It is the monsters you have served, and the brutes you've called your brothers. That cut him too close to the bone. Robert was no monster. He climbed unto his throne over the corpses of children, she said. Though I will grant you he was no Joffrey. Joffrey? He had been a handsome lad, tall and strong for his age, but that was all the good that could be said of him. It still shames Sir Ares to remember all the times he'd struck that poor Stark girl at the boy's command. When Tyrion had chosen him to go with Marcella to dawn, he lit a candle to the warrior in thanks. A Joffrey is dead, poisoned by the imp. He would never have thought the dwarf capable of such enormity. Tommen is king now, 
and he is not his brother, nor is he his sister. It was true. Tommen was a good-hearted little man who always tried his best, but the last time Sir Eris saw him he had been weeping on the quay. Marcella never shed a tear, though it was she who was leaving hearth and home to seal an alliance with her maidenhood. The truth was, the princess was braver than her brother, and brighter, and more confident as well. Her wits were quicker, her courtesies more polished. Nothing ever daunted her, not even Joffrey. The women are the strong ones, truly. He was thinking not only of Marcella, but of her mother, and his own, of the Queen of Thorns, of the Red Viper's pretty, deadly sand snakes and a princess, Ariane Martel, her most of all. I will not say that you are wrong. His voice was hoarse. Will not, cannot. Marcella is more fit for rule. A son comes before a daughter. Why? What god has made it so? I am my father's heir. Should I give up my rights to my brothers? You twist my words. I never said. Dorne is different. The Seven Kingdoms have never had a ruling queen. The first Viserys intended his daughter Reina to follow him. Do you deny it? But as the king lay dying, the Lord Commander of his King's Guard decided that it should be other ways. Sir Criston Cole. Criston the Kingmaker had set brother against sister and divided the King's Guard against itself, bringing on the terrible war the singers named the Dance of the Dragons. Some claim he acted from ambition, for Prince Aegon was more tractable than his willful older sister. Others allowed him nobler motives, and argued that he was defending ancient Andal custom. A few whispered that Sir Criston had been Princess Rhaenyra's lover before he took the white, and wanted vengeance on the woman who had spurned him. Uh, the kingmaker wrought great harm. Sir Eri said, and gravely did he pay for it. But, but perhaps a seven sent you here, so that one white knight might make right what another set awry. You do know that when my father returns to the water gardens, he plans to take Marcella with him, to keep her safe from those who would do her harm. No, to keep her away from those who'd seek to crown her. Prince Oberon Viper would have placed the crown upon her head himself if he had lived. But my father lacks the courage. She got to her feet. You say you love the girl as you would a daughter of your own blood. Would you let your daughter be despoiled of her rights and locked away in prison? The water gardens are no prison, he protested feebly. A prison does not have fountains and fig trees. Is that what you think? Yet once the girl is there, she will not be allowed to leave. No more than you will. Hotar will see to that. You do not know him as I do. He is terrible when aroused. Sir Aerys frowned. The big Norvasi captain, with a scarred face, had always made him feel profoundly uneasy. They say he sleeps with that great axe beside him. What would you have me do? No more than you have sworn. Protect Marcella with your life. Defend her and her rights. Set a crown upon her head. I swore an oath to Joffrey, not to Tommen. 
Aye, but Tommen is a good-hearted boy. He will be a better king than Joffrey. But not better than Marcella. She loves the boy as well. I know she will not let him come to any harm. Storm's End is his by rights, since Lord Renly left no heir and Lord Stannis is attainted. In time, Castle Rock will pass to the boy as well, through his lady mother. He will be as great a lord as any in the realm. But Marcella, by rights, should sit the Iron Throne. The law, I, I do not know. I do. When she stood, the long black tangle of her hair fell down to the small of her back. Aegon the dragon made the king's guard and its vows, but what uh, one king does, another can undo or change. Formerly the king's guard served for life, yet Joffrey dismissed Sir Barristan so his dog could have a cloak. Marcella would want you to be happy, and she is fond of me as well. She will give us leave to marry, if we ask. Ariane put her arms around him and laid her face against his chest. The top of her head came just beneath his chin. You can have me and your white cloak both, if that is what you want. She's tearing me apart. You know I do, but... I am Princess of Dorne, she said in her husky voice, and it is not meet that you should make me beg. Sir Aerys could smell the perfume in her hair and feel her heart beating as she pressed against him. His body was responding to her closeness, and he did not doubt that she could feel it too. When he put his arms upon her shoulders, he realized she was trembling. Ariane, my princess, what is it, my love? Must I say it, sir? I am afraid. You call me love, yet you refuse me when I have most desperate need of you. Is it so wrong of me to want a knight to keep me safe? He had never heard her sound so vulnerable. No, he said, but you have your father's guards to keep you safe. Why, it is my father's guards, I fear. For a moment she sounded younger than Marcella. It was my father's guards who dragged my sweet cousins off in chains. Not in chains. I have heard that they have every comfort, she gave a bitter laugh. Have you seen them? He will not permit me to see them. Did you know that? They were speaking treason, fomenting war. Loresa is six, Doria eight. What wars could they foment? Yet my father has imprisoned them with their sisters. You have seen him. Fear makes even strong men do things they might never do otherwise, and my father was never strong. Ares, my heart, hear me, for the love you say you bear me. I have never been as fearless as my cousins, for I was made with weaker seed. But Tyene and I are of an age, and have been close as sisters since we were little girls. We have no secrets between us. If she can be imprisoned, so can I and for the same cause, this of Marcella. Your father would never do that. You do not know, my father. I have been disappointing him since I first arrived in this world without a cock. Half a dozen times he has tried to marry me to toothless greybeards, each more contemptible than the last. He never commanded me to wed them, I grant you, but the offers alone proved how little he regards me.
Even so, you're his heir. Am I? He left you to rule in Sonspear when he took himself off to his water gardens, did he not? To rule? Oh, no. He left his cousin, Sir Manfrey as Castellan, old blind Ricasso as Seneschal, his bailiffs to collect duties and taxes for his treasure, Elise Ladybright to count, his sheriffs to police the Shadow City, his justiciers to sit in judgment, and Maester Miles to deal with any letters not requiring the prince's own attention. Above them all he placed the Red Viper. My charge was feasts and frolics, and the entertainment of distinguished guests. Oberon would visit the water gardens twice a fortnight. Me he summoned twice a year. I am not the heir my father wants. He has made that plain. Our laws constrain him. But he would sooner have my brother follow him. I knew it. Your brother? Sir Ares put his hand under her chin and raised her head, the better to look into her eyes. You cannot mean Tristane. He is just a boy. Not Tris. Quentin. Her eyes were bold and black as sin, unflinching. I have known the truth since I was four and ten, since the day I went to my father's solar to give him a good-night kiss, and found him gone. My mother had sent for him, I learned later. He left a candle burning. When I went to blow it out, I found a letter lying incomplete beside it, a letter to my brother Quentin, off at Ironwood. My father told Quentin that he must do all that his maester and his master-at-arms required of him, because one day you will sit where I sit and rule all dawn, and a ruler must be strong of mind and body. A tear crept down Ariane's soft cheek. My father's words, written in his own hand, they burned themselves into my memory. I cried myself to sleep that night and many nights thereafter. Sir Ares had yet to meet Quentin Martell. The prince had been fostered by Lord Ironwood from a tender age, had served him as a page, then a squire, had even taken knighthood at his hands in preference to the Red Vipers. If I were a father, I would want my son to follow me as well, he thought, but he could hear the hurt in her voice, and he knew that if he said what he was thinking, he would lose her. Perhaps you misunderstood, he said. You were only a child. Perhaps the prince was only saying that to encourage your brother to be more diligent. You think so? Then tell me, where is Quentin now? The prince is with Lord Arnwood's host in the Boneway, Sir Eris said cautiously. That was what Sonspear's ancient castellan had told him when he first came to dawn. The maester with the silky beard said the same. Ariane demurred. So my father wishes us to believe, but I have friends who tell me other ways. My brother has crossed the narrow sea in secret, posing as a common merchant. Why? How would I know? There could be a hundred reasons. Or one? Are you aware that the Golden Company has broken its contract with Myrrh? As hair swords break their contracts all the time. Not the Golden Company. Our word is as good as gold, has been their boast since the days of Bittersteel. Myrrh is on the point of war with Lys and Tyrosh, 
why break a contract that offered them the prospect of good wages and good plunder? Or perhaps Lace offered them better wages? Or Tyrosh? No, she said. I would believe it of any of the other free companies, yes. Most of them would change sides for half a groat. The Golden Company is different. A brotherhood of exiles and the sons of exiles united by the dream of bitter steel. It's home they want as much as gold. Lord Ironwood knows that as well as I do. His forebears rode with bitter steel during three of the Blackfire rebellions. She took Sir Ares by the hand and wove her fingers through his own. Have ye ever seen the arms of House Tolan of Ghost Hill? He had to think for a moment. A, a dragon eating its own tail. The dragon is time. It has no beginning and no ending. So all things come round again. And as Ironwood is Kristen Cole reborn. He whispers in my brother's ear that he should rule after my father, that it is not right for men to kneel to women, that Ariane especially is unfit to rule, being the willful wanton that she is. She tossed her hair defiantly. So, yet two princesses share a common courser, and they share as well a knight who claims to love them both, but will not fight for them. I will, Sir Ares sank to one knee. Marcella is the elder and better suited to the crown. Who will defend her rights if not her king's guard? My sword, my life, my honor all belong to her. And to you, my heart's delight. I swear no man will steal your birthright whilst I still have the strength to lift a sword. I am yours. What would you have of me? All. She knelt to kiss his lips. All, my love, my true love, my sweet love, and forever. But first, ask, and it is yours. Marcella? Brain. The stone wall was old and crumbling, but the sight of it across the fields made the hairs on Brian's neck stand up. That was where the archers hid and slew poor Cleos free, she thought. But half a mile further on she passed another wall that looked much like the first and found herself uncertain. The rutted road turned and twisted, and the bare brown trees looked different from the green one, she remembered. Had she ridden past the place where Sir Jamie had snatched his cousin's sword from its scabbard? Where were the woods they'd fought in? The stream where they'd splashed and slashed at one another until they drew the brave companions down upon them. Uh, my lady, uh, sir, Podrick never seemed certain what to call her. What are you looking for? Ghosts. A, a wall I rode by once. It, it does not matter. It was when Sir Jamie still had both his hands. How I loathed him with all his taunts and smiles. Stay quiet, Podrick. There may be outlaws in these woods. The boy looked at the bare brown trees, the wet leaves, the muddy road ahead. I have a long sword. I can fight. Not well enough. Brienne did not doubt the boy's courage, only his training. 
A squire he might be, in name at least, but the men he'd squired for had served him ill. She had gotten his story out of him in fits and starts on the road from Duskendale. His was a lesser branch of House Payne, an impoverished offshoot sprouted from the loins of a younger son. His father had spent his life squiring for richer cousins, and had squired Podrick upon a Chandler's daughter he'd wed before going off to die in the Greyjoy Rebellion. His mother had abandoned him with one of those cousins when he was four, so she could run after a wandering singer who had put another baby in her belly. Podrick did not remember what she looked like. Sir Cedric Payne had been the nearest thing to a parent the boy had ever known, though from his stammered stories it seemed to Brian that cousin Cedric had treated Podrick more like a servant than a son. When Castley Rock called its banners, the knight had taken him along to tend his horse and clean his mail. Then Sir Cedric had been slain in the Riverlands, whilst fighting in Lord Tywin's host. Far from home, alone and penniless, the boy had attached himself to a fat hedge knight named Sir Lorimer the Belly, who was part of Lord Lefford's contingent, charged with protecting the baggage train. The boys who guard the foodstuffs always eat the best, Sir Lorimer liked to say, until he was discovered with a sorted ham he'd stolen from Lord Tywin's personal stores. Tywin Lannister chose to hang him as a lesson to other looters. Podrick had shared the ham and might have shared the rope as well, but his name had saved him. Sir Kevin Lannister took charge of him, and some time later sent the boy to squire for his nephew, Tyrion. Sir Cedric had taught Podrick how to groom a horse and check his shoes for stones, and Sir Lorimer had taught him how to steal, but neither had given him much training with a sword. The imp at least had dispatched him to the Red Keep's master-at-arms when they came to court, but during the bread rites, Sir Aaron Santagar had been amongst those slain, and that had been the end of Podrick's training. Brian cut two wooden swords from fallen branches to get a sense of Podrick's skills. The boy was slow of speech, but not of hand, she was pleased to learn. Though fearless and attentive, he was also underfed and skinny, and not near strong enough. If he had survived the Battle of the Blackwater, as he claimed, it could only be because no one thought him worth the killing. You may call yourself a squire, she told him, but I've seen pages half your age who could have beat you bloody. If you stay with me, you'll go to sleep with blisters on your hands and bruises on your arms most every night, and you'll be so stiff and sore you'll hardly sleep. You don't want that? I do, the boy insisted. I want that. The bruises and the blisters, I mean. I, I, I don't, but I, I do, sir, my lady. So far he had been true to his word and Brian had been true to hers. Podrick had not complained. Every time he raised a new blister on his sword hand, he felt the need to show it to her proudly. He took good care of their horses, too. He's still no squire, she reminded herself, but I am no knight, no matter how many times he calls me sir. She would have sent him on his way, but he had nowhere to go. Besides, though Podrick said he did not know where Sansa Stark had gone, it might be that he knew more than he realized. 
some chance remark, half-remembered, might hold the key to Brian's quest. Sir? Uh, uh, my lady? Podrick pointed. There's a cart ahead. Brian saw it, a wooden ox cart, two-wheeled and high-sided. A man and a woman were laboring in the traces, pulling the cart along the ruts towards Maidenpool. Farm folk, by the look of them. Slowly now, she told the boy, they may take us for outlaws. Say no more than you must, and be courteous. I will, sir, be courteous, my lady. The boy seemed almost pleased by the prospect of being taken for an outlaw. The farm folk watched them warily as they came trotting up, but once Brian made it plain that she meant them no harm, they let her ride beside them. We used to have an ox, the old man told her, as they made their way through the weed-choked fields, lakes of soft mud, and burnt and blackened trees. But the walls made off with him. His face was red from the effort of pulling the cart. They took off our daughter, too, and had their way with her. But she come wandering back after the battle down at Duskendale. The ox never did. The wolves ate him, I expect. The woman had little to add. She was younger than the man by twenty years, but never spoke a word. Only looked at Brian the same way she might have looked at a two-headed calf. The maid of Tarth had seen such eyes before. Lady Stark had been kind to her, but most women were just as cruel as men. She could not have said which she found most hurtful, the pretty girls with their waspish tongues and brittle laughter, or the cold-eyed ladies who hid their disdain behind a mask of courtesy. And common women could be worse than either. Maidenpool was all in ruins when last I saw it, she said. The gates were broken, and half the town was burned. Oh, they rebuilt it some. This Tarly is a hard man, but a braver lord than Mouton. There's still outlaws in the woods, but not so many as there was. Tarly hunted down the worst of them and shortened them with that big sword of his. He turned his head and spat. You've seen no outlaws on the road? None. Not this time. The farther they had come from Duskendale, the emptier the road had been. The only travellers they glimpsed had melted away into the woods before they reached them. Save for a big-bearded septon, they met walking south, with two-score footsore followers. Such inns as they passed had either been sacked and abandoned or turned into armed camps. Yesterday they had encountered one of Lord Randall's patrols, bristling with longbows and lances. The horsemen had surrounded them, while their captain questioned Brian. But in the end, he'd let them continue on their way. Be wary, woman. The next man you meet may not be as honest as my lads. The hounders crossed the trident with a hundred outlaws, and it's said they're raping every wench they come upon, and cutting off their teats for trophies. Brian felt obligated to pass along that warning to the farmer and his wife. The man nodded, as she told him. But when she was done, he spat again and said, Dogs and wolves and lions, may the others take them all. These outlaws won't dare come too near to Maidenpool. <laughs> Not so long as Lord Tarley has the rule there. Brian knew Lord Randall Tarley from her time with King Renly's host. Though she could not find it in herself to like the man, she could not forget the debt she owed him either. 
If the gods are good, we will pass Maidenpool before he knows that I am there. The town will be restored to Lord Mooton once the fight is done, she told the farmer. His lordship has been pardoned by the king. Pardon? The old man laughed. For what? Sitting on his ass in his bloody castle? He sent men off to Riverrun to fight but never went himself. Lions sacked his town, then walls, then cell swords, and his lordship just sat safe behind his walls. His brother had never hid like that. Sir Miles was bold as brass till that Robert killed him. More ghosts, Brian thought. I am looking for my sister, a fair maid of three and ten. Perhaps you've seen her. I've not seen no maids, fair nor foul. No one has but she had to keep asking. Moulton's daughter, she's a maid, the man went on, till the bedding anyways. These hags, they're for her wedding, her and Tarly's sons. The cooks will need hags for cakes. Are they well? Lord Tarly's son, young Dickens, to be wed. She tried to recall how old he was. Eight or ten, she thought. Brian had been betrothed at seven to a boy three years her senior. Lord Caron's younger son, a shy boy with a mole above his lip. They had only met the once on the occasion of their betrothal. Two years later he was dead, carried off by the same chill that took Lord and Lady Caron and their daughters. Had he lived, they would have been wed within a year of her first flowering, and her whole life would have been different. She would not be here now, dressed in man's mail and carrying a sword, hunting for a dead woman's child. More like she'd be at night song, swaddling a child of her own and nursing another. It was not a new thought for Brian. It always made her feel a little sad, but a little relieved as well. The sun was half hidden behind a bank of clouds when they emerged from the blackened trees to find Maidenpool before them, with the deep waters of the bay beyond. The town's gates had been rebuilt and strengthened, Brian saw at once, and Crossbowmen walked its pink stone walls once more. Above the gatehouse floated King Tommen's royal banner, a black stag and a golden lion combatant on a field divided gold and crimson. Other banners displayed their tarly huntsmen, but the red salmon of House Mouton flew only from their castle on its hill. At the portcullis they came upon a dozen guards, armed with halberts. Their badges marked them for soldiers of Lord Tarley's host, though none was Tarley's own. She saw two centaurs, a thunderbolt, a blue beetle, and a green arrow, but not the striding huntsman of Horn Hill. Their sergeant had a peacock on his breast, its bright tail faded by the sun. When the farmers drew their cart up, he gave a whistle. What's this now? Eggs? He tossed one up, caught it, and grinned. We'll take them, the old man squawked. Our eggs is for Lord Mooton, for the wedding cakes and such. Have your ends, more. I haven't done an egg in half a year. Eh, don't say you weren't paid. He flung a handful of pennies at the old man's feet. The farmer's wife spoke up. That's not enough, she said. Not near enough. I say it is, said the sergeant, for them eggs, and you as well. Bring her here, boys. She's too young for that old man. 
Two of the guards lean their halberts against the wall and pull the woman away from the cart, struggling. The farmer watched grey-faced, but dare not move. Brian spurred her mare forward. Release her! Her voice made the guards hesitate long enough for the farmer's wife to wrench free of their grasp. This is none of your concern, one man said. You mind your mouth, wench. Brian drew a sword instead. Well, now, the sergeant said, naked steel. Seems to me I smell an outlaw. You know what Lord Tarly does with outlaws? He still held the eggs he'd taken from the cart. His hand closed, and the yolk oozed through his fingers. I know what Lord Randall does with outlaws, Brian said. I know what he does with rapers, too. She had hoped the name might cow them, but the sergeant only flicked egg off his fingers and signaled to his men to spread out. Brian found herself surrounded by steel points. What was it you were saying, wench? What is it that Lord Tarley does to... Rapers? A deeper voice finished. He gelds them, or sends them to the wall, sometimes both, and he cuts fingers off thieves. The languid young man stepped from the gatehouse, a sword belt buckled at his waist. The surcoat he wore above his steel had once been white, and here and there still was beneath the grass stains and dried blood. His sigil was displayed across his chest, a brown deer, dead and bound and slung beneath a pole. Him? His voice was a punch in her stomach, his face a blade in her bowels. Sir Hoyle? She said stiffly. Best let her by, lads, warned Sir Hoyle Hunt. This is Brian the Beauty, the maid of Tarth, who slew King Renly and half his rainbow guard. She's as mean as she is ugly, and there's no one uglier, except, perhaps, for you, Pispot. But your father was the rear end of an oryx, and so you have a good excuse. Her father is the even star of Tarth. The guards laughed, but the halberts parted. Shouldn't we seize her, sir? The sergeant asked. For killing Renly? Why? Renly was a rebel. So were we all rebels to a man, but now we're Tommen's loyal lads. The knight waved the farm folk through the gate. His lordship, Stuart, will be pleased to see those eggs. You'll find him in the market. The old man knuckled his forehead. My thanks, my lord. You're a true knight, it's plain to see. Come, wife. They put their shoulders to the cart again and rumbled through the gate. Brian trotted after them, with Pudrick at her heels. A true knight, she thought, frowning. Inside the town, she reined up. The ruins of a stable could be seen off to her left, fronting on a muddy alley. Across from it, three half-dressed whores stood on a balcony of a brothel, whispering to one another. One looked a bit like a camp follower who had once come up to Brian to ask if she had a cunt or a cock inside her breeches. That rounds him may be the most hideous horse I've ever seen, said Sir Hyle of Pudrick's Mount. I'm surprised you're not riding it, my lady. Do you plan to thank me for my help? Brian swung down off her mare. She stood a head taller than Sir Hyle. One day I'll thank you in a melee, sir. The way you think, Red Ronnet. <laughs> Hunt laughed. He had a full, rich laugh 
though his face was plain. An honest face, she thought once, before she learned better. Shaggy brown hair, hazel eyes, a little scar by his left ear. His chin had a cleft, and his nose was crooked. But he did laugh well, and often. Or shouldn't you be watching your gate? He made a wry face at her. My cousin Aelin is off hunting outlaws. Doubtless he'll return with a hound's head, gloating and covered in glory. Meanwhile, I am condemned to guard this gate. Thanks to you. I hope you're pleased, my beauty. What is it you're looking for? A stable. Over by the east gate. This one burned. I can see that. What you said to those men, I was with King Renly when he died. But it was some sorcery that slew him, sir. I swear it on my sword. She put a hand upon her hilt, ready to fight, if Hunt named her liar to her face. Aye, and it was the Knight of Flowers who carved up Rainbow God. <laughs> oh, on a good day, you might have been able to defeat Sir Eamon. He was a rash fighter, and he tired easily. Right so? No, Sir Robot was twice the swordsman that you are. Though you're not a swordsman, are you? <laughs> Is there such a word as sword wench? <laughs> what quest brings the maid of Maidenpool, I wonder? A searching for my sister, a maid of three and ten, she almost said. But Sir Hyle would know she had no sisters. There's a man I seek, at a place called the Stinking Goose. I thought Brighton the beauty had no use for men. There was a cruel edge to his smile. The stinking goose, <laughs> an apt name that, <laughs> the stinking part at least. <laughs> it's by the harbour. First you will come with me to see his lordship. Brian did not fear Sir Hyle, but he was one of Randall Tarley's captains. A whistle and a hundred men would come running to defend him. Am I to be arrested? What, for Renly? Who was he? We've changed kings since then. Some of us twice. <laughs> no one cares, no one remembers. He laid a hand lightly on her arm. This way, if you please. She wrenched away. I would thank you not to touch me. Thanks at last, he said with a wry smile. When last she had seen Maidenpool, the town had been a desolation, a grim place of empty streets and burned homes. Now the streets were full of pigs and children and most of the burned buildings had been pulled down. Vegetables had been planted in the lots where some once stood. Merchants' tents and knights' pavilions took the place of others. Brian saw new houses going up, a stone inn rising where a wooden inn had burned, a new slate roof on the town sept. The cool autumn air rang to the sounds of saw and hammer. Men carried timber through the streets, and quarrymen drove their wagons down muddy lanes. Many wore the striding huntsmen on their breasts. The soldiers are rebuilding the town, she said, surprised. They would sooner be dicing, drinking, and fucking. <laughs> I don't doubt, but Lord Randall believes in putting idle men to work. She had expected to be taken to the castle. Instead, Hunt led them toward the busy harbour. The traders had returned to Maidenpool, she was pleased to see. A galley, a galleus, and a big two-masted cog were in port, along with a score of little fishing boats. More fishermen were visible out on the bay. 
If the stinking goose yields nothing, I will take passage on a ship, she decided. Galtown was only a short voyage away. From there she could make her way to the Erie easily enough. They found Lord Tarley in the fish market, doing justice. A platform had been thrown up beside the water, from which his lordship could look down upon the men accused of crimes. To his left stood a long gallows, with ropes enough for twenty men. Four corpses swung beneath it. One looked fresh, but the other three had plainly been there for some time. A crow was pulling strips of flesh from the ripe ruins of one of the dead men. The other crows had scattered, wary of the crowd of townsfolk who gathered in hopes of someone's being hanged. Lord Randall shared the platform with Lord Mouton, a pale, soft, fleshy man in a white doublet and red breeches, his ermine cloak pinned at the shoulder by a red-gold brooch in the shape of a salmon. Tarley wore mail and boiled leather and a breastplate of grey steel. The hilt of a great sword poked up above his left shoulder. Hartsbane, it was named, the pride of his house. A stripling in a rough-spun cloak and soiled jerkin was being heard when they came up. I never know one, my lord, Brian heard him say. I only took what the septons left when they run off. If you gotta take my finger for that, do it. It is customary to take a finger from a thief, Lord Tarley replied in a hard voice. But a man who steals from a sept is stealing from the gods. He turned to his captain of guards. Seven fingers, leave his thumbs. Seven? The thief paled. When the guards seized hold of him, he tried to fight, but feebly, as if he were already maimed. Watching him, Brian could not help think of Sir Jamie and the way he'd screamed when Zola's arrack came flashing down. The next man was a baker accused of mixing sawdust in his flour. Lord Randall fined him fifty silver stags. When the baker swore he did not have that much silver, his lordship declared that he could have a lash for every stag that he was short. He was followed by a haggard, grey-faced whore, accused of giving the pucks to four of Tarley's soldiers. Wash out your private parts with lion, and throw her in a dungeon, Tarley commanded. As the whore was dragged off sobbing, his lordship saw Brian on the edge of the crowd, standing between Podrick and Sir Hyle. He frowned at her, but his eyes betrayed not a flicker of recognition. A sailor of the galleys came next. His accuser was an archer of Lord Mouton's garrison, with a bandaged hand and a salmon on his breast. If it please, my lord, this bastard put a dagger through my hand. He said I was cheating him at dice. Lord Tarley took his gaze away from Brian to consider the men before him. Uh, were you? N no, my lord, I never. For theft I will take a finger. Lie to me, and I will hang you. Shall I ask to see these dice? Uh, the dice? The archer looked to Mouton, but his lordship was gazing at the fishing boats. The bowman swallowed. Uh, might be I, um, them dice... They're lucky for me, it is true, but I... Atali had heard enough. Take his little finger, he can choose which hand, and nail through the palm for the other. He stood. We're done. March the rest of them back to the dungeon. I'll deal with them on the morrow. He turned to beckon Sir Hyle forward. Brian followed. My lord, she said, 
when she stood before him. She felt eight years old again. My lady, to what do we owe this uh, honour? I have been sent to look for... for... she hesitated. How will you find him if you do not know his name? Did you slay Lord Renly? No. Tarly weighed the word. He is judging me as he judged those others. No, he said at last. You only let him die. He had died in her arms, his life's blood drenching her. Brian flinched. It was sorcery. I never... You never... His voice became a whip. I... You never should have done mail, nor buckled on a sword. You never should have left your father's hall. This is a war, not a harvest ball. By all the gods, I ought to ship you back to Tarth. And to that, an answer to the throne. Her voice sounded high and girlish, when she wanted to sound fearless. Podrick, in my bag, you'll find a parchment. Bring it to his lordship. Tarly took the letter and unrolled it, scowling. His lips moved as he read. The king's business? What sort of business? Lie to me, and I will hang you, says the censor's talk. If the Stark girl were here, I'd know it. She's run back north, I'll wager, hoping to find refuge with one of her father's bannermen. She had best hope she chooses the right one. She might have gone to the Vale instead. Brain heard herself blurt out, to her mother's sister. Lord Randall gave her a contemptuous look. Lady Lyser is dead. Some singer pushed her off a mountain. Littlefinger holds the airy now, though not for long. The lords of the Vale are not the sort to bend their knees to some up-jumped jackanapes whose only skill is counting coppers. He handed her back her letter. Go where you want and do as you will, but when you rape, don't look to me for justice. You will have earned it with your folly. He glanced at Sir Hyle. And you, sir, should be at your gate. I gave you the command there, did I not? You did, my lord, said Hyle Hunt. But I thought, you think too much. Lord Tarley strode away. Lyser Tully is dead. Brian stood beneath the gallows, the precious parchment in her hand. The crowd had dispersed, and the crows had returned to resume their feast. A singer pushed her off a mountain. Had the crows dined on Lady Caitlin's sister, too? You spoke of the stinking goose, my lady, said Sir Hyle. If you want me to show you, go back to your gate. A look of annoyance flashed across his face. A plain face. Not an honest one. If that's your wish. It is. It was only a game to pass the time. We meant no harm. He hesitated. Ben died, you know. Cut down on the black water. Farrow, too, and Will the stork. And Mark Mullendore took a wound that cost him half his arm. Good, Brain wanted to say. Good, he deserved it. But she remembered Mullendore sitting outside his pavilion with his monkey on his shoulder, in a little suit of chainmail, the two of them making faces at each other. What was it Caitlin Stark had called them that night at Bitterbridge? The Knights of Summer? And now it was autumn, and they were falling like leaves. She turned her back on Hyle Hunt, 
Podrick, come. The boy trotted after her, leading their horses. Are we going to find the place, the stinking goose? I am. You are going to the stables by the east gate. Ask the stable man if there's an inn where we can spend the night. I will, sir, uh, my lady. Podrick stared at the ground as they went, kicking stones from time to time. Do you know where it is, the goose? The stinking goose, I mean. No. He said he'd show us that night, Sir Kyle. Oil? Uh, uh, oil. What did he do to you, sir? Uh, I mean, my lady. The boy may be a stumble-tongue, but he's not stupid. At Eygarten, when King Renly called his banners, some men played a game with me. Sir Oil was one of them. It was a cruel game, hurtful and unshiverous. She stopped. The east gate is that way. Wait for me there. As you say, my lady, uh, sir. No sign marked the stinking goose. It took her most of an hour to find it, down a flight of wooden steps beneath a knacker's barn. The cellar was dim and the ceiling low, and Brian thumped her head on a beam as she entered. No geese were in evidence. A few stools were scattered about, and a bench had been shoved up against one earthen wall. The tables were old wine casks, grey and wormholed. The promised stink pervaded everything. Mostly it was wine and damp and mildew, her nose told her. But there was a little of the privy, too, and something of the lichyard. The only drinkers were three Tyroshi seamen in a corner growling at each other through green and purple beards. They gave her a brief inspection, and one said something that made the others laugh. The proprietor stood behind a plank that had been placed across two barrels. She was a woman, round and pale and balding, with huge soft breasts swaying beneath a soiled smock. She looked as though the guards had made her out of uncooked dough. Brian did not dare to ask for water here. She bought a cup of wine and said, I'm looking for a man called Nimble Dick. Dick Crab <laughs> comes in most every night. The woman eyed Brian's mail and sword. If you're going to cut him, do it somewhere else. We don't want no trouble with Lord Tarley. I want to talk with him. Why would I do him harm? The woman shrugged. If you would not, when he comes in, I'd be thankful. How thankful? Brian put a cup of star on the plank between them and found a place in the shadows with a good view of the steps. She tried the wine. It was oily on the tongue, and there was a hair floating in it. A hair as slender as my hopes of finding Sansa, she thought as she plucked it out. Chasing after Sir Dantas had been fruitless, and with Lady Lysa dead, the veil no longer seemed a likely refuge. Where are you, Lady Sansa? Did you run home to Winterfell? Or are you with your husband, as Podrick seems to think? Brian did not want to chase the girl across the narrow sea, where even the language would be strange to her. I will be even more a freak there, grunting and gesturing to make myself understood. They will laugh at me, as they laughed at Highgarden. A blush stole up her cheeks as she remembered. When Renly donned his crown, the Maid of Tarth had ridden all the way across the Reach to join him. The king himself had greeted her courteously and welcomed her to his service. 
not so his lords and knights. Brian had not expected a warm welcome. She was prepared for coldness, for mockery, for hostility. She had supped upon such meat before. It was not the scorn of the many that left her confused and vulnerable, but the kindness of the few. The maid of Tarth had been betrothed three times, but she had never been courted until she came to Highgarden. Big Ben Bushy was the first, one of the few men in Renly's camp who overtopped her. He sent his squire to clean her mail, and made her a gift of a silver drinking horn. Sir Edmund Ambrose went him one better, bringing flowers and asking her to ride with him. Sir Hyle Hunt outdid them both. He gave her a book, beautifully illuminated, and filled with a hundred tales of knightly valour. He brought apples and carrots for her horses, and a blue silk plume for her helm. He told her the gossip of the camp, and said clever, cutting things that made her smile. He even trained with her one day, which meant more than all the rest. She thought it was because of him that the others started being courteous. More than courteous. At table, men fought for the place beside her, offering to fill her wine cup or fetch her sweetbreads. Sir Richard Farrow played love songs on his lute outside her pavilion. Sir Hugh Beesbury brought her a pot of honey, as sweet as the maids of Tarth. Sir Mark Mullendore made her laugh with the antics of his monkey, a curious little black-and-white creature from the Summer Isles. A hedge knight, called Will the Stork, offered to rub the knots from her shoulders. Brian refused him. She refused them all. When Sir Owen Itchfield seized her one night and pressed a kiss upon her, she knocked him arse-backwards into a cook-fire. Afterward, she looked at herself in a glass. Her face was as broad and buck-toothed and freckled as ever, big-lipped, thick of jaw, so ugly. All she wanted was to be a knight and serve King Renly. Yet now, it was not as if she were the only woman there. Even the camp followers were prettier than she was, and up in the castle Lord Tyrell feasted King Renly every night, whilst high-born maids and lovely ladies danced to the music of pipe and horn and harp. Why are you being kind to me? She wanted to scream every time some strange knight paid her a compliment. What do you want? Randall Tarley solved the mystery the day he sent two of his men-at-arms to summon her to his pavilion. His young son, Dickon, had overheard four knights laughing as they saddled up their horses, and had told his lord father what they said. They had a wager. Three of the younger knights had started it, he told her, Ambrose, Bushy, and Hyle Hunt, of his own household. As word spread through the camp, however, others had joined the game. Each man was required to buy into the contest with a golden dragon, the whole sum to go to whoever claimed her maidenhead. I've put an end to their sport, Tarly told her. Some of these challengers are less honourable than others, and the stakes were growing larger every day. It was only a matter of time before one of them decided to claim the prize by force. They were knights, she said, stunned, anointed knights, and honourable men. The blame is yours. The accusation made her flinch. I would never, my lord, I did not to encourage them. 
Your being here encouraged them. If a woman will behave like a camp follower, she cannot object to being treated like one. A war host is no place for a maiden. If you have any regard for your virtue or the honour of your house, you will take off that mail, return home, and beg your father to find a husband for you. I came to fight, she insisted, to be a knight. The gods made men to fight and women to bear children, said Randall Tarley. A woman's war is in the birthing bed. Someone was coming down the cellar steps. Brian pushed her wine aside as a ragged, scrawny, sharp-faced man with dirty brown hair stepped into the goose. He gave the Tyrushi sailors a quick look, and Brian a longer one, then went up to the plank. Wine, he said, and none of your horse piss in it, thank ye. The woman gave Brian a look and nodded. I'll buy you wine, she called out. For a word? The man looked her over, his eyes weary. A word? Oh, I know a lot of words. He sat down on the stool across from her. Uh, tell me which my lady wants to hear, and Nimble Dick will say it. I heard you fooled a fool. The ragged man sipped his wine, thinking. Mightn't be I did. Or not. <laughs> he wore a faded, torn doublet from which some lord's badge had been ripped. Who is it wants to know? King Robert. She put a silver stag on the barrel between them. Robert's head was on one side, the stag on the other. Oh, does he now? The man took the coin and spun it, smiling. I'd like to see a king dance. Hey, nonny, hey, nonny, hey, nonny, ho. Mightn't be I saw this fool of yours. Uh, was there a girl with him? Two girls, he said at once. Two girls. Could the other one be Aria? Well, the man said, I never seen the little sweets, mind you, but he was wanting passage for three. Passage where? To their side of the sea, as I recall. Do you remember what he looked like? A fool. He snatched the spinning coin off the table as it began to slow and made it vanish. A frightened fool. Frightened? Why? He shrugged. He never said. But old Nimble Dick knows the smell of fear. He comes here most every night, buying drinks for sailors, making japes, singing little songs. Only one night, some men come in with that hunter on their teats, and your fool went white as milk and got quiet till they left. He edged his stool closer to hers. That Tarley's got soldiers crawling all over the docks watching every ship that comes or goes. Man wants a deer. He goes to the woods. He wants a ship. He goes to the docks. Your fool didn't dare, so I offered him some help. What sort of help? The sort that costs more than one silver stag. Or tell me, and you'll have another. Let's see it, he said. She put another stag on the barrel. He spun it, smiled, scooped it up. A man who can't go to the ships need for the ships to come to him. I told him I knew a place where that might happen. A hidden place, like. Goose prickles rose along Brian's arms. A smuggler's cove. You sent the fool to smugglers? Ahem and them two girls, he chuckled. 
Only thing, well, the place I sent them. Been no ships there for a while. Thirty years, say. He scratched his nose. What's this fool to you? Those two girls are my sisters. Are they now? Poor little things. Had a sister once myself. Skinny girl with nubbly knees. Uh, but then she grew a pair of teats, and a night sun got between her legs. Last I saw her, she was off for King's Landing to make a living on her back. Where did you send them? Another shrug. As to that, I can't recall. Queer. Brian slapped another silver stag down. He flicked the corn back at her with his forefinger. Some place no stag ever found. Though a dragon might. Silver would not get the truth from him, she sensed. Gold might, or it might not. Steel would be more certain. Brian had touched her dagger, then reached into her purse instead. She found a golden dragon and put it on the barrel. Where? The ragged man snatched up the coin and bit it. Mmm, sweet. Puts me in mind of Cracklaw Point. Up north, I hear. "'Tis a wild land of hills and bogs, but it happens I was born and bred there. Dick Crab, I'm named, though most call me Nimble Dick. She did not offer her own name. Where? In Cracklaw Point. The Whispers. You heard of Clarence Crab, of course. No. That seemed to surprise him. Sir Clarence Crab, I said. I got his blood in me. He was eight foot tall, and so strong he could uproot pine trees with one hand and chuck them half a mile. No horse could bear his weight, so he rode an oryx. What does he have to do with a smuggler's cove? Uh, his wife was a woods witch. Whenever Sir Clarence killed a man, he'd fetch his head back home, and his wife would kiss it on the lips and bring it back to life. Lords they were, and wizards, and famous knights and pirates. One was king of Duskendale. They gave old Crab good counsel. Being they were just heads, they couldn't talk real loud. But they never shut up, neither. When you're a head, talking's all you got to pass the day. So Crab's keep got named the Whispers. Still is, though it's been a, a ruin for a thousand years. A lonely place. The whispers. The man walked the coin deftly across his knuckles. One dragon by himself gets lonely. Ten now. Ten dragons are a fortune. Do you take me for a fool? No, but I can take it, one. The coin danced one way and back the other. Take you to the whispers, my lady. Brian did not like the way his fingers played with that gold coin. Still... Six dragons if we find my sister, two if we only find a fool, nothing if nothing is what we find. Crab shrugged. Our six is good. Six will serve. Too quick. She caught his wrist before he could tuck the gold away. Do not play me false. You'll not find me easy meat. When she let him go, Crab rubbed his wrist. Bloody piss. He muttered, You hurt my hand. I, I'm sorry for that. My sister's a girl of three and ten. I need to find her before... before some night gets in her slit. Aye, I, I hear you. She's good as saved. 
Nimble Dick is with you now. Meet me by the east gate at first light. I need to see this man about a horse. Samwell The sea made Samwell Tarley greensick. It was not all his fear of drowning, though that was surely some of it. It was the motion of the ship as well, the way the decks rolled beneath his feet. I have a queasy belly, he confessed to Darian, the day they sailed from east watch by the sea. The singer slapped him on the back and said, With a belly big as yours, Slayer, that is a lot of queas. Sam tried to keep a brave face on him, for Jilly's sake, if little else. She had never seen the sea before. When they were struggling through the snows after fleeing Craster's keep, they had come on several lakes, and even those had been a wonder to her. As Blackbird slipped away from shore, the girl began to tremble, and big salt tears rolled down her cheeks. Cards be good, Sam heard her whisper. Eastwatch vanished first and the wall grew smaller and smaller in the distance until it finally disappeared. The wind was coming up by then. The sails were the faded grey of a black cloak that had been washed too often, and Jilly's face was white with fear. This is a good ship, Sam tried to tell her. You don't have to be afraid. But she only looked at him, held her baby tighter, and fled below. Sam soon found himself clutching tightly to the gunwale, and watching the sweep of the oars. The way they all moved together was somehow beautiful to behold, and better than looking at the water. Looking at the water only made him think of drowning. When he was small, his lord father had tried to teach him how to swim by throwing him into the pond beneath Horn Hill. The water had gotten in his nose and in his mouth and in his lungs, and it coughed and wheezed for hours after Sir Hyle pulled him out. After that, he never dared go in any deeper than his waist. The Bay of Seals was a lot deeper than his waist, and not so friendly as that little fish pond below his father's castle. Its waters were grey and green and choppy, and the wooded shore they followed was a snarl of rocks and whirlpools. Even if he could kick and crawl that far somehow, the waves were like to smash him up against some stone and break his head to pieces. "'Looking for mermaid, Slayer?' asked Darren when he saw Sam staring off across the bay. Fair-haired and hazel-eyed, the handsome young singer out of Eastwatch looked more like some dark prince than a black brother. "'No?' Sam did not know what he was looking for, or what he was doing on this boat. "'Going to the citadel to forge a chain and be a maester to be of better service to the watch,' he told himself. But the thought just made him weary. He did not want to be a maester with a heavy chain wrapped on his neck, cold against his skin. He did not want to leave his brothers, the only friends he'd ever had, and certainly did not want to face the father who had sent him to the wall to die.' It was different for the others. For them, the voyage would have a happy ending. Jilly would be safe at Horn Hill, with all the width of Westeros between her and the horror she had known in the haunted forest. As a serving maid in his father's castle, she would be warm and well-fed, a small part of a great world she could never have dreamed of as Craster's wife. 
She would watch her son grow up big and strong and become a huntsman or a stable hand or a smith. If the boy showed any aptitude for arms, some knight might even take him as a squire. Maester Eamon was going to a better place as well. It was pleasant to think of him spending whatever time remained him, bathed by the warm breezes of Old Town, conversing with his fellow maesters and sharing his wisdom with acolytes and novices. He had earned his rest a hundred times over. Even Darian would be happier. He had always claimed to be innocent of the rape that had sent him to the war, insisting that he belonged at some lord's court singing for his supper. Now he would have that chance. John had named him a recruiter to take the place of a man named Yorin, who had vanished and was presumed dead. His task would be to travel the Seven Kingdoms, singing of the valour of the Night's Watch, and from time to time returning to the Wall with new recruits. The voyage would be long and rough. No one could deny that. But for the others, at least, there would be a happy ending. That was Sam's solace. I am going for them, he told himself, for the Night's Watch and for the happy ending. The longer he looked at the sea, though, the colder and deeper it appeared. But not looking at the water was even worse, Sam realized, in the cramped cabin beneath the stern castle, that the passengers were sharing. He tried to take his mind off the roiling in his stomach by talking with Jilly as she nursed her son. This ship will take us as far as Bravos, he said. We'll find another ship to carry us to Old Town. I read a book about Bravos when I was small. The whole city is built in a lagoon on a hundred little islands, and they have a titan there, a stone man, hundreds of feet high. They have boats instead of horses, and their mummers play out written stories instead of just making up the usual stupid farces. The food is very good, too, especially the fish. They have all kinds of clams and eels and oysters fresh from their lagoon. We ought to have a few days between ships. If we do, we can go and see a mummer show and have some oysters. He thought that would excite her. He could not have been more wrong. Jilly appeared at him with flat, dull eyes, looking through some strands of unwashed hair. If you want, my lord. What do you want? Sam asked her. Nothing. She turned away from him and moved her son from one breast to the other. The motion of the boat was stirring up the eggs and bacon and fried bread that Sam had eaten before the ship set out. All at once he could not stand the cabin one more instant. He pushed himself back to his feet and clambered up the ladder to give his breakfast to the sea. The sickness came on Sam so strongly that he did not stop to gauge which way the wind was blowing. So he wretched from the wrong rail and ended up spattering himself. Even so, he felt much better afterward, though not for long. The ship was Blackbird, the largest of the watch's galleys. Stormcrow and Talon were faster, Cotter Pike told Maester Eamon, back at Eastwatch by the sea. But they were fighting ships, lean, swift birds of prey, where the rowers sat on open decks. Blackbird was a better choice for the rough waters of the narrow sea beyond Skagos. There have been storms, Pike warned them. Winter storms are worse, but autumns are more frequent.
The first ten days were calm enough, as Blackbird crept across the Bay of Seals, never out of sight of land. It was cold when the wind was blowing, but there was something bracing about the salt smell in the air. Sam could hardly eat, but when he did force something down, it did not stay down for long. But aside from that, he did not do too badly. He tried to bolster Jilly's courage and give her what cheer he could, but that proved hard. She would not come up on deck no matter what he said, and seemed to prefer to huddle in the dark with her son. The babe liked the ship no more than his mother did, it seemed. When he was not squalling, he was retching up his mother's milk. His bowels were loose and always moving, staining the furs that Jilly wrapped him in to keep him warm and filling the air with a brown stench. No matter how many tallow candles Sam lit, the smell of shit persisted. It was more pleasant out in the open air, especially when Darren was singing. The singer was known to Blackbird's oarsmen, and would play for them as they rode. He knew all their favorite songs, sad ones like The Day They Hanged Black Robin, The Mermaid's Lament, and Autumn of My Day, rousing ones like Iron Lancers and Seven Swords for Seven Sons, bawdy ones like Milady's Supper, Her Little Flower, and Megget Was a Merry Maid, a merry maid was she. When he sang The Bear and the Maiden Fair, all the oarsmen joined in, and Blackbird seemed to fly across the water. Darien had not been much of a swordsman, Sam knew from their days training under Alistair Thorne, but he had a beautiful voice. Honey poured over thunder, Master Eamon had once called it. He played wood harp and fiddle too, and even wrote his own songs. Though Sam did not think them very good, still it was good to sit and listen, though the chest was so hard and splintery that Sam was almost grateful for his fleshy buttocks. Fat men take a cushion with them wherever they go, he thought. Maester Amon preferred to spend his days on deck as well, huddled beneath a pile of furs and gazing out across the water. What is he looking at? Darian wondered one day. For him, it's as dark up here as it is down in the cabin. The old man heard him. Though Eamon's eyes had dimmed and gone dark, there was nothing wrong with his ears. I was not born blind, he reminded them. When last I passed this way, I saw every rock and tree and whitecap, and watched the grey gulls flying in our wake. I was five and thirty, and had been a master of the chain for sixteen years. Egg wanted me to help him rule, but I knew my place was here. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon, and insisted that his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch, and no recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the watch six kings in golden fetters. Egg emptied out the dungeons, too, so I would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called them. One was no less a man than Brynden Rivers. Later he was chosen Lord Commander. Blood Raven, said Darian. I know a song about him. A Thousand Eyes and One, it's called. 
but I thought he lived a hundred years ago. We all did, once I was as young as you. That seemed to make him sad. He coughed and closed his eyes, and went to sleep, swaying in his furs whenever some wave rocked the ship. Beneath grey skies they sailed east and south and east again, as the Bay of Seals widened about them. The captain, a grizzled brother with a belly like a keg of ale, wore black so stained and faded that the crew called him Old Tattersalt. He seldom said a word. His mate made up for him, blistering the salt air with curses whenever the wind died or the oarsmen seemed to flag. They ate oaten porridge in the mornings, peas porridge in the afternoons, and salt beef, salt cud, and salt mutton at night, and washed it down with ale. Darren sang, Sam retched, Jilly cried, and nursed her babe. Master Amon slept and shivered, and the winds grew colder and more blustery with every passing day. Even so, it was a better voyage than the last one Sam had taken. He had been no more than ten when he set sail on Lord Redwine's Gallius, the Arbor Queen, five times as large as Blackburn and magnificent to behold. She had three great burgundy sails and banks of oars that flashed gold and white in the sunlight. The way they rose and fell as the ship departed Old Town had made Sam hold his breath, but that was the last good memory he had of Redwind Straits. Then, as now, the sea had made him sick to his lord father's disgust. And when they reached the arbor, things had gone from bad to worse. Lord Redwin's twin sons had despised Sam on first sight. Every morn they found some fresh way to shame him in the practice yard. On the third day, Horace Redwin made him squeal like a pig when he begged for quarter. On the fifth, his brother Hubber clad a kitchen girl in his own armor, and let her beat Sam with a wooden sword until he began to cry. When she revealed herself, all the squires and pages and stable boys howled with laughter. The boy needs a bit of seasoning, that's all, his father had told Lord Redwin that night. But Redwin's fool rattled his rattle and replied, Oi, a pinch of pepper, and a few nice cloves, and an apple in his mouth. Thereafter, Lord Randall forbade Sam to eat apples so long as they remained beneath Paxter Redwin's roof. He had been seasick on their voyage home as well, but so relieved to be going that he almost welcomed the taste of vomit at the back of his throat. It was not until they were back at Hornhill that his mother told Sam that his father had never meant for him to return. Horace was to come with us in your place, whilst you remained on the arbor as Lord Paxter's page and cup-bearer. If you had pleased him, you would have been betrothed to his daughter. Sam could still recall the soft touch of his mother's hand as she washed the tears off his face with a bit of lace dampened with her spit. My poor Sam, she murmured, my poor, poor Sam. It will be good to see her again, he thought, as he clung to Blackbird's rail and watched waves breaking on the stony shore. If she saw me in my blacks, it might even make her proud. I'm a man now, mother, I could tell her. A steward, 
and a man of the night's watch. My brothers call me Sam the Slayer sometimes. He would see his brother Dickon, too, and his sisters. See, I could tell them, see, I was good for something after all. If he went to Horn Hill, though, his father might be there. The thought made his belly heave again. Sam bent over the gunnel and retched, but not into the wind. He had gone to the right rail this time. He was getting good at retching. Or so he thought, until Blackbird left the land behind and struck east across the bay for the shores of Skagos. The island sat at the mouth of the Bay of Seals, massive and mountainous, a stark and forbidding land peopled by savages. They lived in caves and grim mountain fastnesses, Sam had read, and rode great shaggy unicorns to war. Skagos meant stone in the old tongue. The Skagossi named themselves the Stoneborn, but their fellow Northmen called them Skags, and liked them little. Only a hundred years ago, Skagos had risen in rebellion. Their revolt had taken years to quell and claimed the life of the Lord of Winterfell and hundreds of his sworn swords. Some songs said the Skags were cannibals. Supposedly their warriors ate the hearts and livers of the men they slew. In ancient days, the Skagossi had sailed to the nearby Isle of Skane, seized its women, slaughtered its men, and ate them on a pebbled beach in a feast that lasted for a fortnight. Skane remained unpeopled to this day. Dere knew the songs as well. When the bleak grey peaks of Skagas rose up from the sea, he joined Sam at Blackbird's prow and said, If the gods are good, we may catch a glimpse of a unicorn. If the captain is good, we won't come that close. The currents are treacherous round Skagos, and there are rocks that can crack a ship's hull like an egg. But don't you mention that to Jilly. She's scared enough. Er, uh, and that squalling whelp of hers. I don't know which of them is noisier. The only time he ever stops crying is when she shoves a nipple in his mouth, and then she starts to sup. Sam had noticed it as well. Maybe the babe is hurting her he said feebly, if his teeth are coming in. Darian plucked at his lute with one finger, sending up a derisive note. I'd heard that wildlings were braver than that. She is brave, Sam insisted, though even he had to admit that he'd never seen Jilly in such a wretched state. Though she hid her face more oft than not, and kept her cabin dark, he could see that her eyes were always red, her cheeks wet with tears. When he asked her what was wrong, though, she only shook her head, leaving him to find answers of his own. The sea scares her, that's all, he told Darian. Before she came to the wall, all she knew was Christa's keep, and the woods around it. I don't know that she went more than half a league from the place that she was born. She knows streams and rivers, but she had never seen a lake until we came on one. And the sea, oh, the sea is a scary thing. We've never been out of sight of land. We will be. Sam did not relish that part himself. Surely a little water doesn't frighten the slayer. No, Sam lied, not me, but Jilly. Maybe if you played some lullabies for them, it would help the babe to sleep. 
Darren's mouth twisted in disgust. Only if she shoves a plug up his ass. I cannot abide the smell. The next day, the rains began, and the seas grew rougher. We had best go below where it's dry, Sam said to Eamon, but the old maester only smiled and said, The rain feels good against my face, Sam. It feels like tears. Let me stay a while longer, I pray you. It has been a long time since last I wept. If Maester Eamon had meant to stay on deck old and frail as he was, Sam had no choice but to do the same. He stayed beside the old man for nigh unto an hour, huddled in his cloak as a soft steady rain soaked him to his skin. Eamon hardly seemed to feel it. He sighed and closed his eyes, and Sam moved closer to him to shield him from the worst of the wind. He will ask me to help him to the cabin soon, he told himself. He must. But he never did. And finally, thunder began to rumble in the distance off to the east. We have to get below, Sam said, shivering. Mr. Eamon did not reply. It was only then that Sam realized that the old man had gone to sleep. Mr., he said, shaking him gently by one shoulder. Mr. Eamon, wake up. Eamon's blind white eye came open. Egg, he said, as the rain streamed down his cheeks. Egg, I dreamed that I was old. Sam did not know what to do. He knelt and scooped the old man up and carried him below. No one had ever called him strong, and the rain had soaked through Maester Eamon's blacks and made him twice as heavy. But even so, he weighed no more than a child. When he shoved into the cabin with Eamon in his arms, he found that Jilly had let all the candles gutter out. The babe was asleep, and she was curled up in a corner, sobbing softly in the folds of the big black cloak that Sam had given her. "'Help me,' he said urgently. "'Help me dry him off and get him warm.' She rose at once, and together they got the old maester out of his wet clothes and buried him beneath a pile of furs. His skin was damp and cold, though, clammy to the touch. You get in with him, Sam told Jilly. Hold him, warm him with your body. We have to warm him up. She did that, too, never saying a word, all the while still sniffling. Where's Darian? asked Sam. We'd all be warmer if we were together. He needs to be here, too. He was headed back up top to find the singer when the deck rose up beneath him, then fell away beneath his feet. Jilly wailed. Sam slammed down hard and lost his legs, and the babe woke screaming. The next roll of the ship came as he was struggling back to his feet. It threw Jilly into his arms and the wildling girl clung to him so fiercely that Sam could hardly breathe. Don't you be frightened, he told her. This is just an adventure. One day you'll tell your son this tale. That only made her dig her nails into his arm. She shuddered, her whole body shaking with the violence of her sobs. Whatever I say just makes her worse. He held her tightly, uncomfortably aware of her breasts pressing up against him. As frightened as he was, somehow that was enough to make him stiff. Hey, she'll feel it, 
he thought, ashamed. But if she did, she gave no sign, only clung to him the harder. The days ran together after that. They never saw the sun. The days were grey and the nights black, except when lightning lit the sky above the peaks of Skagos. All of them were starved, yet none could eat. The captain broached a cask of fire wine to fortify the oarsmen. Sam tried a cup and sighed as hot snakes wriggled down his throat and through his chest. Darren took a liking to the drink as well, and was seldom sober thereafter. The sails went up, the sails came down, and one ripped free of the mast and flew away like a great grey bird. As Blackbird rounded the south coast of Skagos, they spotted the wreckage of a galley on the rocks. Some of her crew had washed up on the shore, and the rooks and crabs had gathered to pay them homage. Too bloody close, grumbled old Tattersalt when he saw. One good blow, and we'll be breaking up beside them. Exhausted as they were, his rowers bent to their oars again, and the ship clawed south toward the narrow sea, till Skagus dwindled to no more than a few dark shapes in the sky that might have been thunderheads, or the tops of tall black mountains, or both. After that they had eight days and seven nights of clear, smooth sailing. Then came more storms, worse than before. Was it three storms, or only one broken up by lulls? Sam never knew, though he tried desperately to care. What does it matter? Darian screamed at him once, when all of them were huddled in the cabin. It doesn't, Sam wanted to tell him, but so long as I'm thinking about that, I'm not thinking about drowning, or being sick, or Mr. Eamon shivering. It doesn't, he managed to squeak but the thunder drowned out all the rest of it, and the deck lurched and knocked him sideways. Jilly was sobbing. The babe was shrieking. And up top he could hear old Tattersalt bellowing at his crew, the ragged captain who never spoke at all. I hate the sea, Sam thought. I hate the sea, I hate the sea, I hate the sea. The next lightning flash was so bright it lit the cabin through the seams in the planking overhead. This is a good sound ship, a good sound ship, a good ship, he told himself. It will not sink. I am not afraid. During one of the lulls between the gales, as Sam clung white-knuckled to the rail, wanting desperately to retch, he heard some of the crew muttering that this was what came of bringing a woman aboard ship, and a wildling woman at that. Fuck your own father! Sam heard one man say, as the wind was rising once again, Worse than whoring, that! Worse than anything! We'll all drown unless we get rid of her, and that abomination that she whelped! Sam dared not confront them. They were older men, hard and sinewy, their arms and shoulders thickened by years of the oars, but he made certain that his knife was sharp, and whenever Jilly left the cabin to make water, he went with her. Even Darian had no good to say about the wilding girl. Once, at Sam's urging, the singer played a lullaby to soothe the babe. But partway through the first verse, Jilly began to sob inconsolably. Seven bloody hells, Darian snapped. Can't you even stop weeping long enough to hear a song? Just play, Sam pleaded. Just sing the song for her. She doesn't need a song, 
said Dara. She needs a good spanking or maybe a hard fuck. Get out of my way, Slayer. He shoved Sam aside and went for the cabin to find some solace in a cup of fire wine and the rough brotherhood of the oars. Sam was at his wit's end by then. He had almost gotten used to the smells, but between the storms and Jilly's sobbing, he had not slept for days. Isn't there something you can give her? he asked Maester Eamon very softly, when he saw that the old man was awake. Some herb or potion, so she won't be so afraid. It is not fear, you hear? the old man told him. That is the sound of grief, and there is no potion for that. Let her tears run their course, Sam. You cannot stem the flow. Sam had not understood. She's going to a safe place, a warm place. Why should she be grieving? Sam, the old man whispered, you have two good eyes, and yet you do not see. She is a mother grieving for her child. He's green-sick, that's all. We're all green-sick. Once we make port in Bravos, the babe will still be Dala's son and not the child of her body. It took Sam a moment to grasp what Eamon was suggesting. That couldn't... She, she wouldn't. Of course he's hers. Jilly would never have left the war without her son. She loves him. She nursed them both and loved them both, said Eamon but not alike. No mother loves all her children the same, not even the mother above. Jilly did not leave the child willingly, I am certain. What threats the Lord Commander made, what promises, I can only guess. But threats and promises there surely were. No, no, that's wrong. John would never, John would never. Lord Snow did. Sometimes there is no happy choice, Sam. Only one less grievous than the others. No happy choice. Sam thought of all the trials that he and Jilly suffered. Craster's keep, and the death of the old bear, snow and ice and freezing winds, days and days and days of walking, the whites at White Tree, cold hands, and the tree of ravens, the wall, the wall, the wall the black gate beneath the earth. What had it all been for? No happy choices and no happy endings. He wanted to scream. He wanted to howl and sob and shake and curl up in a little ball and whimper. He switched the babes, he told himself. He switched the babes to protect the little prince, to keep him away from Lady Melisandre's fires, away from her red god. If she burns Jilly's boy, who will care? No one but Jilly. He was only Christ's whelp. An abomination born of incest, not the son of the king beyond the wall. He's no good for a hostage, no good for a sacrifice, no good for anything. He doesn't even have a name. Wordless, Sam staggered up onto the deck to wretch but there was nothing in his belly to bring up. Night had come upon them, a strange, still night, such as they had not seen for many days. The sea was black as glass. At the oars the rowers rested. One or two were sleeping where they sat. 
The wind was in the sails, and to the north Sam could even see a scattering of stars, and the red wanderer the free folk called the thief. That ought to be my star, Sam thought miserably. I helped to make John Lord Commander, and I brought him Jilly and the babe. There are no happy endings. Slayer! Darren appeared beside him, oblivious to Sam's pain. A sweet night for once. Look, the stars are coming out. We might even get a bit of moon. Might be the worst is done. No. Sam wiped his nose and pointed south with a fat finger toward the gathering darkness. There, he said. No sooner had he spoken than lightning flashed, sudden and silent and blinding bright. The distant clouds glowed for half a heartbeat. Mountains heaped on mountains, purple and red and yellow, taller than the world. The worst isn't done. The worst is just beginning. And there are no happy endings. Gods be good, said Darian, laughing. Slayer, you are such a craven. Jamie Lord Tywin Lannister had entered the city on a stallion, his enameled crimson armour polished and gleaming, bright with gems and goldwork. He left it in a tall wagon draped with crimson banners with six silent sisters riding attendants on his bones. The funeral procession departed King's Landing through the Gate of the Gods, wider and more splendid than the Lion Gate. The choice felt wrong to Jamie. His father had been a lion, that no one could deny, but even Lord Tywin never claimed to be a god. An honor guard of fifty knights surrounded Lord Tywin's wagon. Crimson pennons fluttered from their lances. The lords of the west followed close behind them. The wind snapped at their banners, making their charges dance and flutter. As he trotted up the column, Jamie passed boars, badgers, and beetles. A green arrow and a red ox, crossed halberds, crossed spears, a tree cat, a strawberry, a munch, four sunbursts counterchanged. Lord Brax was wearing a pale grey doublet slashed with cloth of silver. An amethyst unicorn pinned above his heart. Lord Jast was armoured in black steel, three gold lion's heads inlaid on his breastplate. The rumours of his death had not been far wrong to look at him. Wounds and imprisonment had left him a shadow of the man he'd been. Lord Bannerford had weathered battle better, and looked ready to return to war at once. Plum or purple, Prester Ermine, Moorland russet and green, but each had donned a cloak of crimson silk in honour of the man they were escorting home. Behind the lords came a hundred crossbowmen and three hundred men-at-arms, and crimson flowed from their shoulders as well. In his white cloak and white-scale armour, Jamie felt out of place amongst that river of red. Nor did his uncle make him more at ease. A lord commander, Sir Kevin said, when Jamie trotted up beside him at the head of the column. Does her grace have some last command for me? I am not here for Circe. A drum began to beat behind them, slow, measured, funereal. Dead, it seemed to say. Dead, dead. 
I came to make my farewells. He was my father. And hers. I am not Cersei. I have a beard, and she has breasts. If you are still confused, uncle, count our hands. Cersei has two. Both of you have a taste for mockery, his uncle said. Spare me your japes, sir. I have no taste for them. As you will. This is not going as well as I might have hoped. Cersei would have wanted to see you off, but she has many pressing duties. Sir Kevin snorted. So do we all. How fares your king? His tone made the question a reproach. Uh, well enough, Jamie said defensively. Balon Swan is with him during the mornings. A good and valiant knight, a once that went without seeing when men spoke of those who wore the white cloak. No man can choose his brothers, Jamie thought. Give me leave to pick my own men, and the king's guard will be great again. Put that ball there, though. It sounded feeble. An empty boast from a man the realm called Kingslayer. A man with shit for honor. Jamie let it go. He had not come to argue with his uncle. Sir, he said, you need to make your peace with Cersei. Are we at war? No one told me. Jamie ignored that. Strife between Lannister and Lannister can only help the enemies of our house. If there is a strife, it will not be my doing. Cersei wants to rule well and good. The realm is hers. All I ask is to be left in peace. My place is at Darry with my son. The castle must needs be restored, the lands planted and protected. He gave a bark of bitter laughter. <laughs> and your sister has left me little else to occupy my time. I had as well see Lancel wed. His bride has grown impatient, waiting for us to make our way to Darry. <laughs> His widow from the twins. His cousin Lancel was riding ten yards behind them. With his hollow eyes and dry white hair, he looked older than Lord Jest. Jamie could feel his phantom fingers itching at the sight of him. Fucking Lancel and Osmond, Kettleblack and Moonboy, for all I know. He had tried to speak with Lancel more times than he could count, but never found him alone. If his father was not with him, some Septon was. He may be Kevin's son, but he has milk in his veins. Tyrion was lying to me. His words were meant to wound. Jamie put his cousin from his thoughts and turned back to his uncle. Will you remain at Derry after the wedding? For a while, mayhaps. Sandor Clegane is raiding along the trident, it would seem. Your sister wants his head. It may be that he has joined Dundarian. Jamie had heard about salt pans. By now half the realm had heard. The raid had been exceptionally savage. Women raped and mutilated, children butchered in their mother's arms, half the town put to the torch. Randall Tarley is at Maidenpool. Let him deal with the outlaws. I would sooner have you go to Riverrun. Sir Devon has command there. The Warden of the West. He has no need of me. Lancel does. As you say, uncle. Jamie's head was pounding to the same beat as the drum. Dead, dead, dead. You would do well to keep your knights around you. His uncle gave him a cool stare. Is that a threat, sir? A threat? The suggestion took him aback. 
A caution, I only meant. Sandor is dangerous. I was hanging outlaws and robber knights when you were still shitting in your swaddling clothes. I'd not like to go off and face Clegane and Dundarian by myself, if that's what you fear, sir. Not every Lannister is a fool for glory. Why, Uncle, I believe you're talking about me. Adam Marbrand could deal with these outlaws just as well as you. So could Brex, Bainfort, Plum, any of these others. But none would make a good king's hand. Your sister knows my terms. They have not changed. Tell her that the next time you are in her bedchamber. Sir Kevin put his heels into his courser and galloped ahead, putting an abrupt end to their conversation. Jamie let him go, his missing sword hand twitching. He had hoped against hope that Cersei had somehow misunderstood, but plainly that was wrong. He knows about the two of us, about Tommen and Marcella, and Cersei knows he knows. Sir Kevin was a Lannister of Castly Rock. He could not believe that she would ever do him harm, but he was wrong about Tyrion. Why not Cersei? When sons were killing fathers, what was there to stop a niece from ordering an uncle slain? An inconvenient uncle who knows too much. Though perhaps Cersei was hoping that the hound might do her work for her. If Sandor Clegane cut down Sir Kevin, she would not need to bloody her own hands, and he will, if they should meet. Kevin Lannister had once been a stout man with a sword, but he was no longer young, and the hound? The column had caught up to him. As his cousin rode past, flanked by his two septons, Jamie called out to him, Lancel, Cars, I wanted to congratulate you upon your marriage. I only regret that my duties do not permit me to attend. His grace must be protected. And will be. Still, I hate to miss your bedding. It is your first marriage, and her second, I understand. I'm sure my lady will be pleased to show you what goes where. The bawdy remarked to a laugh from several nearby lords, and a disapproving look from Lancel's septons. His cousin squirmed uncomfortably in the saddle. I know enough to do my duty as a husband, sir. That's just the thing a bride wants on her wedding night, said Jamie. A husband who knows how to do his duty. A flush crept up Lancel's cheeks. I pray for you, cousin, and her grace, the queen. May the crone lead her to her wisdom and the warrior defender. Why would Cersei need the warrior? She has me. Jamie turned his horse about, his white cloak snapping in the wind. The imp was lying. Cersei would sooner have Robert's corpse between her legs than a pious foe like Lancel. Tyrion, you evil bastard, you should have lied about someone more likely. He galloped past his lord father's funeral wain toward the city in the distance. The streets of King's Landing seemed almost deserted as Jamie Lannister made his way back to the Red Keep atop Aegon's High Hill. The soldiers who had crowded the city's gambling dens and pot shops were largely gone now. Garland the Gallant had taken half the Tyrell strength back to Highgarden, and his lady mother and grandmother had gone with him. The other half had marched south, 
with Mace Tyrell and Mathis Rowan, to invest Storm's End. As for the Lannister host, two thousand seasoned veterans remained encamped outside the city walls, awaiting the arrival of Paxter Redwind's fleet to carry them across Blackwater Bay to Dragonstone. Lord Stannis appeared to have left only a small garrison behind him when he sailed north, so two thousand men would be more than sufficient, Cersei had judged. The rest of the Westermen had gone back to their wives and children, to rebuild their homes, plant their fields, and bring in one last harvest. Cersei had taken Tommen round their camps before they marched, to let them cheer their little king. She had never looked more beautiful than she did that day, with a smile on her lips and the autumn sunlight shining on her golden hair. Whatever else one might say about his sister, she did know how to make men love her when she cared enough to try. As Jamie trotted through the castle gates, he came upon two dozen knights riding at a quintain in the outer yard. Oh, something else I can no longer do, he thought. A lance was heavier and more cumbersome than a sword, and swords were proving trial enough. He supposed he might try holding the lance with his left hand, but that would mean shifting his shield to the right arm. In a tilt, a man's foe was always to the left. A shield on the right arm would prove as useful as nipples on his breastplate. No, my jousting days are done, he thought as he dismounted. But all the same, he stopped to watch a while. Sir Tather the Tall lost his mount when the sandbag came round and thumped him in the head. Strongbore struck the shield so hard he cracked it. Kenneth of Case finished the destruction. A new shield was hung for Sir Dermot of the Rainwood. Lambert Turnberry only struck a glancing blow, but beardless John Betley, Humphrey Swift, and Alan Staxbeer all scored solid hits and Red Ronnet Connington broke his lance clean. Then the Knight of Flowers mounted up and put the others all to shame. Jousting was three-quarters horsemanship, Jamie had always believed. Sir Loris rode superbly, and handled a lance as if he'd been born holding one, which no doubt accounted for his mother's pinched expression. He puts the point just where he means to put it and seems to have the balance of a cat. Perhaps it was not such a fluke that he unhorsed me. It was a shame that he would never have the chance to try the boy again. He left the whole men to their sport. Cersei was in her solar, in Magor's Holfast, with Tommen and Lord Merriweather's dark-haired, mirish wife. The three of them were laughing at Grand Maester Pycelle. Uh, did I miss some clever jape? Jamie said, as he shoved through the door. Oh, look, purred Lady Merriweather. Your brave brother has returned, your grace. Most of him. The queen was in her cups, Jamie realized. Of late, Cersei always seemed to have a flagon of wine to hand. She, who had once scorned Robert Baratheon for his drinking. He misliked that. But these days, he seemed to mislike everything his sister did. Grand Maester, she said, share the tidings with the Lord Commander, if you would. Pycelle looked desperately uncomfortable. There has been a bird, he said, 
from Stokeworth. Lady Tandy sends word that her daughter, Lollies, has been delivered of a strong, healthy son. And you will never guess what they have named the little bastard brother. They wanted to name him Tywin, I recall. Yes, but I forbade it. I told Felice that I would not have our father's noble name bestowed upon the ill-gotten spawn of some pig-boy and a feeble-witted sow. Lady Stokeworth insists the child's name was not her doing, Grandmaster Bicel put in. Perspiration dotted his wrinkled forehead. Lolly's husband made the choice, she writes. This man, Bron, he, uh, it would seem that he, uh, Tyrion, ventured Jamie. He named the child Tyrion. The old man gave a tremulous nod, mopping at his brow with the sleeve of his robe. Jamie had to laugh. There you are, sweet sister. You have been looking everywhere for Tyrion, and all the time he's been hiding in Lolly's womb. Droll. You and Bronn are both so droll. No doubt the bastard is sucking on one of Lolly's lacquid dugs, even as we speak, whilst this sales horde looks on, smirking at his little insolence. Oh, perhaps this child bears some resemblance to your brother suggested Lady Merriweather. He might have been born deformed or without a nose. <laughs> she laughed a throaty laugh. We shall have to send the darling boy a gift, the Queen declared. Won't we, Tommen? We could send him a kitten. A lion cub, said Lady Merriweather, to whip his little throat out. <laughs> Her smile suggested. I had a different sort of gift in mind, said Cersei. A new stepfather, most like. Jamie knew the look in his sister's eyes. He had seen it before, most recently on the night of Tommen's wedding, when she burned the tower over the hand. The green light of the wildfire had bathed the faces of the watchers, so they looked like nothing so much as rotting corpses, a pack of gleeful ghouls but some of the corpses were prettier than others. Even in the baleful glow, Cersei had been beautiful to look upon. She stood with one hand on her breast, her lips parted, her green eyes shining. She is crying, Jamie had realized, but whether it was from grief or ecstasy, he could not have said. The sight had filled him with disquiet, reminding him of Ares Targaryen, and the way a burning would arouse him. A king has no secrets from his king's guard. Relations between Ares and his queen had been strained during the last years of his reign. They slept apart, and did their best to avoid each other during the waking hours. But whenever Ares gave a man to the flames, Queen Rhaella would have a visitor in the night. The day he burned his mace and dagger hand, Jamie and John Derry had stood at guard outside her bedchamber whilst the king took his pleasure. You're hurting me, they had heard Ryella cry through the oaken door. You're hurting me. In some queer way, that had been worse than Lord Chelstead screaming. We are sworn to protect her as well, Jamie had finally been driven to say. Oh, we are. Darry allowed, but not from him. 
Jamie had only seen Rayella once after that, the morning of the day she left for Dragonstone. The Queen had been cloaked and hooded as she climbed inside the royal wheelhouse that would take her down Aegon's high hill to the waiting ship, but he heard her maids whispering after she was gone. They said the Queen looked as if some beast had savaged her, clawing at her thighs and chewing on her breasts. A crowned beast, Jamie knew. By the end, the Mad King had become so fearful that he would allow no blade in his presence, save for the swords his king's guard wore. His beard was matted and unwashed, his hair a silver-gold tangle that reached his waist. His fingernails cracked yellow claws nine inches long. Yet still the blades tormented him, the ones he could never escape, the blades of the Iron Throne. His arms and legs were always covered with scabs and half-heeled cuts. Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, Jamie remembered, studying his sister's smile. Let him be the king of ashes. Your grace, he said. Might we have a private word? Oh, as you wish. Tommen, it's past time you had your lesson for the day. Go with the Grand Maester. Yes, mother. We are learning about Baylor the Blessed. Lady Merriweather took her leave as well, kissing the Queen on both cheeks. Shall I return for supper, your grace? I shall be very cross with you if you do not. Jamie could not help but note the way the mirish woman moved her hips as she walked. Every step is a seduction. When the door closed behind her, he cleared his throat and said, First these kettleblacks, then Kyburn, now her. It's a queer menagerie you're keeping these days, sweet sister. I'm growing very fond of Lady Taina. She amuses me. She is one of Marjorie Tyrell's companions, Jamie reminded her. She's informing on you to the little queen. Of course she is. Cersei went to the sideboard to fill her cup anew. Marjorie was thrilled when I asked her to leave to take Taina on as my companion. You should have heard her. She will be a sister to you as she has been to me. Of course you must have her. I have my cousins and my other ladies. Our little queen does not want me to be lonely. If you know she is a spy, why take her on? Oh, Marjorie is not half so clever as she thinks. She has no notion what a sweet serpent she has in that mirish slot. I use Taina to feed the little queen what I want her to know. Some of it is even true. Cersei's eyes were bright with mischief, and Taina tells me everything Maid Marjorie is doing. Oh, does she? How much do you know about this woman? I know she is a mother with a young son, and that she wants to rise high in this world. She will do whatever is required to see that he does. Mothers are all the same. Lady Merriweather may be a serpent, but she is far from stupid. She knows I can do more for her than Marjorie, so she makes herself useful to me. You would be surprised at all the interesting things she's told me. What sort of things? Cersei sat beneath the window. Did you know that the Queen of Thorns keeps a chest of coins in her wheelhouse? Old gold from before the conquest. 
Should any tradesman be so unwise as to name a price in golden coins, she pays him with hands from Highgarden, each half the weight of one of our dragons. What merchant would dare complain of being cheated by Mace Tyrell's lady mother? She sipped her wine and said, Did you enjoy your little ride? Our uncle remarked upon your absence. Our uncle's remarks do not concern me. They should. You make good use of him. If not at River Run or the Rock, then in the North against Lord Stannis. Father always relied upon Kevin when... Roose Bolton is our warden of the North. He will deal with Stannis. Lord Bolton is trapped below the neck, cut off from the North by the Iron Men of Moat Kalin. Oh, not for long. Bolton's bastard son will soon remove that little obstacle. Lord Bolton will have two thousand prays to augment his own strength, under Lord Walder's sons, Hustine and Aenys. That should be more than enough to deal with Stannis and a few thousand broken men. Sir Kevin will have his hands full at Darry, teaching Lancel how to wipe his arse. Father's death has unmanned him. He is an old Don man. Davin and Damien will serve us better. They'll uh, suffice. Jamie had no quarrel with his cousins. You still require a hand, however. If not our uncle, who? His sister laughed. <laughs> not you. Have no fear on that count. Perhaps Taina's husband. His grandfather was hand under Ares, the horn of plenty hand. Jamie remembered Owen Merriweather well enough, an amiable man, but ineffectual. As I recall, he did so well that Ares exiled him and seized his lands. Robert gave them back, some at least. Taina would be pleased if Orton could recover the rest. Is this about pleasing some merish whore? Here I thought it was about governing the realm. I govern the realm. Seven save us all you do. His sister liked to think of herself as Lord Tywin with teats, but she was wrong. Their father has been as relentless and implacable as a glacier, when Cersei was all wildfire, especially when thwarted. She had been giddy as a maiden when she learned that Stannis had abandoned Dragonstone, certain that he had finally given up the fight and sailed away to exile. When word came down from the north that he had turned up again at the wall, her fury had been fearful to behold. She does not lack for wits, but she has no judgment and no patience. You need a strong hand to help you. A weak ruler needs a strong hand, as Ares needed father. A strong ruler requires only a diligent servant to carry out his orders. She swirled her wine. Lord Halen might suit. He would not be the first pyromancer to serve as the king's hand. No, I killed the last one. There is talk that you mean to make Oren Waters the master of ships. Has someone been informing on me? When he did not answer, Cersei tossed her hair back and said, Waters is well suited to the office. He has spent half his life on ships. Half his life? He cannot be more than twenty. Two and twenty, and what of it? Father was not even one and twenty when Ares Targaryen named him Hand. 
It is past time Tommen had some young men about him in place of all these wrinkled greybeards. Orain is strong and vigorous. Strong and vigorous and handsome, Jamie thought. She's been fucking Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and Moonboy, for all I know. Paxter Redwin would be a better choice. He commands the largest fleet in Westeros. Orain Waters could command a skiff, but only if you bought him one. You are a child, Jamie. Redwin is Tyrell's bannerman, and nephew to that hideous grandmother of his. I want none of Lord Tyrell's creatures on my council. Tommen's council, you mean. You know what I mean. Too well. I know that Orin Waters is a bad idea, and Helene is a worse one. As for Kyban, oh, gods be good, Cersei, he rode with Varga Hoat. The Citadel stripped him of his chain. The grey sheep. Kyburn has made himself most useful to me, and he is loyal, which is more than I can say of my own kin. Huh? The crows will feast upon us all if you go on this way, sweet sister. Cersei, listen to yourself. You are seeing dwarfs in every shadow and making foes of friends. Uncle Kevin is not your enemy. I am not your enemy. Her face twisted in fury. I begged you for your help. I went down on my knees to you, and you refused me. My vows did not stop you saying, Eris. Words of wind. You could have had me, but you chose a cloak instead. Get out. Sister, get out, I said. I'm sick of looking at that ugly stump of yours. Get out. To speed him on his way, she heaved her wine cup at his head. She missed, but Jamie took the hint. Evenfall found him sitting alone in the common room of White Sword Tower, with a cup of Dornish red and the white book. He was turning pages with the stump of his sword hand when the Knight of Flowers entered, removed his cloak and sword belt, and hung them on a wall peg next to Jamie's. I saw you in the yard today, said Jamie. You rode well. Better than well, surely. Solaris poured himself a cup of wine and took a seat across the half-moon table. A more modest man might have answered, My lord is too kind, or I had a good mount. The arse was adequate, and my lord is as kind as I am modest. Loris waved the book. Lord Renly always said that books were for maesters. This one is for us. The history of every man who has ever worn a white cloak is written here. I have glanced at it. The shields are pretty. I prefer books with more illuminations. Lord Renly owned a few, with drawings that would turn a septon blind. Jamie had to smile. There's none of that here, sir. But the histories will open your eyes. You would do well to know about the lives of those who went before. I do. Prince Haman, the Dragon Knight, Sir Iam Redwin, the Great Heart, Barristan the Bold, Gwaine Corbray, Alan Connington, the Demon of Dari. Ah, you will have heard of Lucamore Strong as well. Sir Lucamore, the Lusty, Sir Loras seemed amused. Three wives and thirty children, was it? <laughs> they cut his cock off. <laughs> Shall I sing the song for you, my lord? And Sir Terence Toyne? bedded the king's mistress, and died screaming. The lesson is, men who wear white breeches need to keep them tightly laced. Giles' grey cloak, 
Aurevel, the open-handed. Agiles was a traitor. Aurevel, a coward. Men who shamed the white cloak. What is my lord suggesting? Oh, little and less. Don't take offence when none was meant, sir. How about Long Tom Costain? Sir Laura shook his head. He was a king's guard knight for sixty years. When was that? I've never... Sir Donnell of Duskendale, then. Well, I may have heard the name, but Addison Hill? The White Owl? Michael Mertens? Geoffrey Norcross? They called him Never Yield. Red Robert Flowers? What can you tell me of them? Flowers is a bastard name. So is Hill. Yet both men rose to command the king's guard. Their tales are in the book. Roland Darklin is in here, too. The youngest man ever to serve in the king's guard until me. He was given his cloak on a battlefield and died within an hour of donning it. He can't have been very good. Oh, good enough. He died, but his king lived. A lot of brave men have worn the white cloak. Most have been forgotten. Most deserve to be forgotten. The heroes will always be remembered. The best, the best, and the worst. So one of us is like to live in a song. And a few who were a bit of both, like him. He tapped the page he had been reading. Who? Solaris craned his head around to see. Ten black pellets on a scarlet field? I do not know those arms. They belong to Kristen Cole who served the first Viserys and the second Aegon. Jamie closed the white book. They called him Kingmaker. Cersei Three wretched fools with a leather sack, the queen thought, as they sank to their knees before her. The look of them did not encourage her. I suppose there's always a chance. Your grace, said Kyburn quietly, the small council will await my pleasure. It may be that we can bring them word of a traitor's death. Off across the city, the bells of Baylor's Sept sang their song of mourning. No bells will ring for you, Tyrion, Cersei thought. I shall dip your head in tower and give your twisted body to the dogs. Off your knees! She told the would-be lords, Show me what you've brought me. They rose, three ugly men and ragged. One had a boil on his neck, and none had washed in half a year. The prospect of raising such to lordship amused her. I could seat them next to Marjorie at feasts. When the chief fool undid the drawstring on his sack and plunged his hand inside, the smell of decay filled her audience chamber like some rank rose. The head he pulled out was grey-green and crawling with maggots. It smells like father. Dorcas gasped, and Jocelyn covered her mouth and retched. The queen considered her prize unflinching. You've killed the wrong dwarf, she said at last, grudging every word. We never did, one of the fools dared to say. This has got to be him, sir, a, a dwarf, see? He's rotted some, is all. He's also grown a new nose, Cersei observed. A rather bulbous one, I'd say. Tyrion's nose was hacked off in a battle. The three fools exchanged a look. No one told us, 
said the one with the head in hand. This one come walking along as bold as you please. Some ugly dwarf, so we thought. He said he were a sparrow, the one with the boil added. And you said he was lying. That was directed at the third man. The queen was angry to think that she had kept her small council waiting for this mummer's farce. You have wasted my time and slain an innocent man. I should have your heads off. But if she did, the next man might hesitate and let the imp slip the net. She would pile dead dwarfs ten feet high before she let that happen. Remove yourselves from my sight. Aye, your grace, said the boil. We beg your pardons. Do you want the head? asked the man who held it. Give it to Sir Merrin. No, in the sack, you lackwit. Yes, Sir Osmond, see them out. Trent removed the head and Kettleblack the headsman, leaving only Lady Jocelyn's breakfast as evidence of their visit. Clean that up at once, the Queen commanded her. This was the third head that had been delivered to her. At least, this one was a dwarf. The last had simply been an ugly child. Someone will find the dwarf, never fear, Sir Osmond assured her. And when they do, we'll kill him good. Will you? Last night Circe had dreamed of the old woman with the pebbly jowls and croaking voice. Maggie the Frog, they had called her, in Lannisporn. If father had known what she said to me, he would have had her tongue out. Circe had never told anyone, though, not even Jamie. Malara said that if we never spoke about her prophecies, we would forget them. She said that a forgotten prophecy couldn't come true. I have informers sniffing after the imp everywhere, your grace, said Kybert. He had garbed himself in something very like Maester's robes, but white instead of grey, immaculate as the cloaks of the king's guard. Walls of gold decorated his hem, sleeves, and stiff high collar and a golden sash was tied about his waist. Old Town, Gold Town, Dorn, even the Free Cities. Wheresoever he might run, my whisperers will find him. You assume he left King's Landing. He could be hiding in Bail or Sep, for all we know, swinging on the bell ropes to make that awful din. Cersei made a sour face and let Dorcas help her to her feet. Come, my lord, my counsel awaits. She took Kyburn by the arm as they made their way down the stairs. Have you attended that, um, little task I set you? I have, your grace. I'm sorry it took so long, such a large head. It took the beetles many hours to clean the flesh. By way of partner have lined a box of ebony and silver with felt to make a fitting presentation for the skull. A cloth sack would serve as well. Prince Doran wants his head. He won't give a fig what sort of box it comes in. The pealing of the bells was louder in the yard. He was only a high septon. How long must we endure this? The ringing was more melodious than the mountain screams had been, but Kyburn seemed to sense what she was thinking. The bells will stop at sunset, your grace. That will be a great relief. How can you know? Knowing is the nature of my service. <laughs> Varus had all of us believing he was irreplaceable. 
what fools we were. Once a queen let it become known that Kyburn had taken the eunuch's place, the usual vermin had wasted no time in making themselves known to him, to trade their whispers for a few coins. It was the silver all along, not the spider. Kyburn will serve us just as well. She was looking forward to the look on Pycelle's face when Kyburn took his seat. A knight of the king's guard was always posted outside the doors of the council chamber when the small council was in session. Today it was Sir Boris Blunt. Sir Boris, the queen said pleasantly, you look quite grey this morning. Something you ate, perchance? Jamie had made him the king's food taster, a tasty task, but shameful for a knight. Blunt hated it. His sagging jowls quivered as he held the door for them. The councillors quieted as she entered. Lord Giles coughed by way of greeting, loud enough to wake Pycelle. The others rose, mouthing pleasantries. Circe allowed herself the faintest of smiles. My lords, I know you will forgive my lateness. We are here to serve your grace, said Sir Harry Swift. It is our pleasure to anticipate your coming. You all know Lord Kyburn, I'm sure. Grand Maester Pycelle did not disappoint her. Lord Kyburn? He managed, purpling, Your Grace, this uh, uh, maester swears sacred vows to hold no lands or lordships. Your citadel took away his chain, Cersei reminded him. If he is not a maester, he cannot be held to a maester's vows. We call the eunuch lord as well, you may recall. Pycelle sputtered. This man is, he, he is unfit. Do not presume to speak to me of fitness, not after the stinking mockery you made of my lord father's corpse. Your grace cannot think. He raised the spotted hand as if to ward off a blow. The silent sisters removed Lord Tywin's bowels and organs, drained his blood. Every care was taken. His body was stuffed with salts and fragrant herbs. Oh, spare me the disgusting details. I smell the results of your care. Lord Kyburn's healing arts saved my brother's life, and I do not doubt that he will serve the king more ably than that simpering eunuch. My lord, you know your fellow councillors? I would be a poor informer if I did not, your grace. Kyburn seated himself between Orton Merriweather and Giles Rusby. My councillors. Cersei had uprooted every rose and all those beholding to her uncle and her brothers. In their places were men whose loyalty would be to her. She had even given them new styles, borrowed from the free cities. The queen would have no masters at court beside herself. Orton Merriweather was her justiceer, Giles Rosby, her lord treasurer. Oren Waters, the dashing young bastard of Driftmark, would be her Grand Admiral. And for a hand, Sir Harry Swift. Soft, bald, and obsequious. Swift had an absurd little white puff of beard where most men had a chin. The blue bantam rooster of his house was worked across the front of his plush yellow doublet in beads of lapis. Over that he wore a mantle of blue velvet decorated with a hundred golden hands. Sir Harry's had been thrilled by his appointment. 
too dim to realize that he was more hostage than hand. His daughter was her uncle's wife, and Kevin loved his chinless lady, flat-chested and chicken-legged as she was. So long as she had Sir Harry's in hand, Kevin Lannister must needs think twice about opposing her. To be sure, a good father is not the ideal hostage, but better a flimsy shield than none. Will the king be joining us? asked Orton Merriweather. My son is playing with his little queen. For the moment, his idea of kingship is stamping papers with the royal seal. His grace is still too young to comprehend affairs of state. And our valiant Lord Commander? Uh, Sir Jamie is at his armourers being fitted for a hand. I know we were all tired of that ugly stump, and I dare say he would find these proceedings as tiresome as Tommen. Rain Waters chuckled at that. Good, Cersei thought. The more they laugh, the less he is a threat. Let them laugh. Uh, do we have wine? Oh, we do, Your Grace. Orton Merriweather was not a comely man, with his big, lumpish nose and shock of unruly, reddish-orange hair, but he was never less than courteous. We have Dornish red and arbor gold, and a fine, sweet Hippocrates from High Garden. The gold, I think. I find Dornish wines as sour as the Dornish. As Merriweather filled her cup, Cersei said, I suppose we had as well begin with them. Grand Maester Pycelle's lips were still quivering, yet somehow he found his tongue. As you command, uh, Prince Doran has taken his brother's unruly bastards into custody, yet Sunspear still seethes. The prince writes that he cannot hope to calm the waters until he receives the justice that was promised him. To be sure, a tiresome creature, this prince. His long wait is almost done. I'm sending Balon Swan to Sunspear to deliver him the head of Gregor Clegane. Sir Balon would have another task as well, but that part was best left unsaid. Ah! Sir Harry Swift fumbled at his funny little beard with thumb and forefinger. He is dead, then, Sir Gregor. I would think so, my lord, Orin Water said dryly. I am told that removing the head from the body is often mortal. Cersei favoured him with a smile. She liked a bit of wit, so long as she was not its target. Sir Gregor perished of his wounds, just as Grand Maester Pycelle foretold. Pycelle hummed and eyed Kyborn Sarley. The spear was poisoned. No man could have saved him. So you said. I recall it well. The queen turned to her hand. What were you speaking of when I arrived, Sir Harris? Sparrows, your grace. Septon Reynard says there may be as many as two thousand in the city, and more arriving every day. Their leaders preach of doom and demon worship. Cersei took a taste of wine. Hmm, very nice. And long past time, wouldn't you agree? What would you call this red god that Stannis worships, if not a demon? The faith should oppose such evil. Kyban had reminded her of that, the clever man. Our late High Septon let too much pass, I fear. 
Age had dimmed his sight and sapped his strength. Ach, he was an old don man, your grace. Kyban smiled at Pysel. His passing should not have surprised us. No man can ask for more than to die peacefully in his sleep, full of years. No, said Cersei, but we must hope that his successor is more vigorous. My friends upon the other hill tell me that it will most like be Torbert or Reynard. Grand Maester Pycelle cleared his throat. I have friends amongst the most devout as well, and they speak of Septon Olidor. Do not discount this man, Lucian, Kyburn said. Last night he fated thirty of the most devout on suckling pig and arbor gold, and by day he hands out hard bread to the poor to prove his piety. Orem Waters seemed as bored as Cersei by all this prattle about septums. Seen up close, his hair was more silvery than gold, and his eyes were grey-green where Prince Rhaegar's had been purple. Even so, the resemblance? She wondered if Waters would shave his beard for her. Though he was ten years her junior, he wanted her. Cersei could see it in the way he looked at her. Men had been looking at her that way since her breast began to bud. Because I was so beautiful, they said. But Jamie was beautiful as well, and they never looked at him that way. When she was small, she would sometimes don her brother's clothing as a lark. She was always startled by how differently men treated her when they thought she was Jamie. Even Lord Tywin himself. Pycelle and Merriweather were still quibbling about who the new High Septon was like to be. One will serve as well as the other, the Queen announced abruptly. But whosoever dons the crystal crown must pronounce an anathema upon the imp. This last High Septon had been conspicuously silent regarding Tyrion. As for these pink sparrows, so long as they preach no treason, they are the faith's problem, not ours. Lord Orton and Sir Harry's murmured agreement. Giles Rusby's attempt to do the same dissolved into a fit of coughing. Cersei turned away in distaste, as he was hacking up a gob of bloody phlegm. Maester, have you uh, brought the letter from the Vale? I have, your grace. Pycelle plucked it from his pile of papers and smoothed it out. It is a declaration rather than a letter, signed at Runestone by Bronze Jan Royce, Lady Wainwood, Lords Hunter, Redfort and Belmore, and Simon Templeton, the Knight of Nine Stars. All have affixed their seals. They write a deal of rubbish. My lords may read the letter if they wish. Royce and these others are massing men below the Irie. They mean to remove Littlefinger as Lord Protector of the Vale forcibly, if need be. The question is, ought we allow this? Does uh, Lord Baelish seek our help? asked Harry Swift. Not as yet. In truth, he seems quite unconcerned. His last letter mentions the rebels only briefly before beseeching me to ship him some old tapestries of Roberts. 
Sir Harry's fingered his chin-beard. "'And these lords of their declaration, do they appeal to the king to take a hand? They do not. Then, uh, mayhaps, we need do nothing.' "'A war in the Vale would be most tragic,' said Pycelle. "'War?' Orton Merriweather laughed. <laughs> "'Lord Baelish is a most amusing man, "'but one does not fight war with witticisms. "'I doubt there will be bloodshed. "'And does it matter who is regent for little Lord Robert, "'so long as the Vale remits his taxes?' "'No.' Cersei decided. If truth be told, Littlefinger had been more use at court. He had a gift for finding gold, and never coughed. Lord Orton has convinced me. Maester Pycelle instruct these lords declarant that no harm must come to Peter. Elsewise, the crown is content with whatever dispositions they might make for the governance of the Vale during Robert Aaron's minority. "'Very good, Your Grace. Uh, "'Might we discuss the fleet?' asked Oren Waters. "'Fewer than a dozen of our ships survive the inferno on the Blackwater. "'We must needs restore our strength at sea.' "'Harry Swift nodded. "'Strength at sea is most essential. Uh, "'Could we make use of the Iron Men?' asked Orton Merriweather. "'The enemy of our enemy?' What would the sea stone chair want of us as the price of an alliance? They want the north, Grand Maester Pycelle said, which our Queen's noble father promised to House Bolton. Oh, how inconvenient, said Merriweather. Still, the north is large. The lands could be divided. It need not be a permanent arrangement. Bolton might consent so long as we assure him that our strength will be his, once Stannis is destroyed. Balin Greyjoy is dead, I had heard, said Sir Harry Swift. Do we know who rules the Isles now? Did Lord Balin have a son? Uh, Leo, <laughs> coughed Lord Giles. Theo. <laughs> Theon Greyjoy was raised at Winterfell, a ward of Eddard Stark, Kyburn said. He's not like to be a friend of ours. I had heard he was slain, said Merriweather. Was there only one son? Sir Harry Swift tugged upon his chin-beard. Brothers, there were brothers, were there not? Varys would have known, Cersei thought with irritation. I do not propose to climb in bed with that sorry pack of squids. Their turn will come once we have dealt with Stannis. What we require is our own fleet. I propose we build new drummonds, said Orain Waters. Ten to start with. Uh, where is the coin to come from? asked Pycelle. Lord Giles took that as an invitation to begin coughing again. He brought up more pink spittle and dabbed it away with a square of red silk. There is no... <laughs> he managed before the coughing ate his words. No, no, we do not. <laughs> Sir Harris proved swift enough, at least, to grasp the meaning between the coughs. The crown incomes have never been greater, he objected. Sir Kevin told me so himself. Lord Giles coughed. 
and expenses, <laughs> gold cloaks. <laughs> Cersei had heard his objections before. Our Lord Treasurer is trying to say that we have too many gold cloaks and too little gold. Rosby's coughing had begun to vex her. Perhaps Garth the Gross would not have been so ill. Though large, the crown incomes are not large enough to keep abreast of Robert's debts. Accordingly, I have decided to defer our repayment of the sums owed the Holy Faith and the Iron Bank of Bravos until war's end. The new High Septon would doubtless wring his holy hands, and the Bravasi would squeal and squawk at her. But what of it? The money saved will be used for the building of our new fleet. Your grace is prudent, said Lord Merriweather. This is a wise measure, and indeed, until the war is done, I concur. And I, said Sir Harris. Your grace, Pycelle said in a quavering voice, this will cause more trouble than you know, I fear. The Iron Bank remains on Bravus, far across the sea. They shall have their gold, maester. A Lannister pays his debts. The Bravasi have a saying, too. Pycelle's jewel chain clinks softly. The Iron Bank will have its due, they say. The Iron Bank will have its due when I say they will. Until such time, the Iron Bank will wait respectfully. Lord Walters, commence the building of your drummonds. Very good, your grace. Sir Harry's shuffled through some papers. Uh, the next matter. We have had a letter from Lord Frey putting forth some claims. How many lands and honours does that man want? snapped the Queen. His mother must have had three teats. My lords may not know, said Kyvan, but in the wine sinks and pot shops of the city, there are those who suggest that the crown might have been somehow complicit in Lord Walder's crime. The other councillors stared at him uncertainly. Do you refer to the Red Wedding? asked Oram Waters. Crime, said Sir Harris. Pycelle cleared his throat noisily. Lord Giles coughed. These sparrows are especially outspoken, warned Kyvan. The Red Wedding was an affront to all the laws of gods and men, they say, and those who had a hand in it are damned. Cersei was not slow to take his meaning. Lord Walder must soon face the father's judgment. He is very old. Let the sparrows spit upon his memory. It has naught to do with us. No, said Sir Harry. No, said Lord Merriweather. No one could think so, said Pycelle. Lord Giles coughed. A little spittle on Lord Walder's tomb is not like to disturb the grave worms, Kyman agreed. But it would also be useful if someone were to be punished for the Red Wedding. A few fray heads would do much to mollify the North. Lord Walder will never sacrifice his own, said Pycelle. No, mused Cersei, but his heirs may be less squeamish. Lord Walder may soon do us the courtesy of dying, we can hope. 
What better way for the new lord of the crossing to rid himself of inconvenient half-brothers, disagreeable cousins, and scheming sisters than by naming them the culprits? Uh, whilst we await Lord Walder's death, there is another matter, said Oren Waters. The Golden Company has broken its contract with Myrrh. Around the docks I've heard men say that Lord Stannis has hired them and is bringing them across the sea. What would he pay them with? asked Merriweather. Snow? They're called the Golden Company. How much gold does Stannis have? Little enough, Cersei assured him. Lord Kyburn has spoken to the crew of that mirish galley in the bay. They claim the Golden Company is making for Volantis. If they mean to cross the Westeros, they are marching in the wrong direction. Perhaps they grow weary of fighting on the losing side, suggested Lord Merriweather. There is that as well, agreed the Queen. Only a blind man could fail to see our war is all but won. Lord Tyrell has Storm's End invested. A river run is besieged by the Freys and my cousin Davin, our new warden of the West. Lord Redwin's ships have passed through the Straits of Tarth and are moving swiftly up the coast. Only a few fishing boats remain on Dragonstone to oppose Redwin's landing. The castle may hold for some time, but once we have the port, we can cut the garrison off from the sea. Then only Stannis himself will remain to vex us. If Lord Janus can be believed, he is trying to make common cause with the wildlings, warned Grand Maester Bizel. Savages in skins, declared Lord Merriweather. Lord Stannis must be desperate indeed to seek such allies. Desperate and foolish, the Queen agreed. The Northmen hate the wildlings. Bruce Bolton should have no trouble winning them to our cause, if you have already joined up with his bastard son to help him clear the wretched ironman from Moat Caelan, and clear the way for Lord Bolton to return. Umber, Riswell, I forget the other names. Even White Harbour is on the point of joining us. Its lord has agreed to marry both his granddaughters to our friends of Frey, and open his port to our ships. I saw we had no ships, Sir Harry said, confused. Uh, Wyman Manderley was a loyal banner man to Eddard Stark, said Grand Maester Pizel. Can such a man be trusted? No one can be trusted. He's a fat old man and frightened. However, he is proving stubborn on one point. He insists that he will not bend the knee until his heir has been returned to him. Do we have this heir? asked Sir Harris. He will be at Harren Hall, if he is still alive. Gregor Clegane took him captive. The mountain had not always been gentle with his prisoners, even those worth a goodly ransom. If he is dead, I suppose we will need to send Lord Manderley the heads of those who killed him with our most sincere apologies. If one head was enough to appease a prince of dawn, a bag of them should be more than adequate for a fat northman wrapped in sealskins. Will not Lord Stannis seek to win the allegiance of White Harbour as well? asked Grand Maester Pycel. Oh, he has tried. Lord Manderley has sent his letters on to us and replied with evasions. Stannis demands White Harbour's swords and silver, 
for which he offers, well, nothing. One day she must light a candle to the stranger for carrying Renly off and leaving Stannis. If it had been the other way round, her life would have been harder. Just this morning there was another bird. Stannis has sent his onion smuggler to treat with White Harbour on his behalf. Manderley has clapped the wretch inside a cell. He asks us what he should do with him. Send him here, that we might question him, suggested Lord Merriweather. The man might know much of value. Let him die, said Kyburn. His death will be a lesson to the North, to show them what becomes of traitors. I quite agree, the Queen said. I have instructed Lord Mantley to have his head off forthwith. That should put an end to any chance of White Harbour supporting Stannis. Stannis will need another hand, observed Oren Waters with a chuckle. <laughs> the turnip knight, perhaps. A turnip knight, said Sir Harry Swift, confused. Who is this man? I've not heard of him. Waters did not reply, except to roll his eyes. What if Lord Mandalay should refuse? asked Merriweather. He dare not. The onion knight's head is the coin he'll need to buy his son's life. Cersei smiled. The fat old fool may have been loyal to the Starks in his own way, but with the wolves of Winterfell extinguished. Your grace has forgotten the Lady Sansa, said Pycelle. The queen bristled. I most certainly have not forgotten that little she-wolf. She refused to say the girl's name. I ought to have shown her to the black cells as the daughter of a traitor, but instead I made her part of mine own household. She shared my hearth and hall, played with my own children. I fed her, dressed her, tried to make her a little less ignorant about the world. And how did she repay me for my kindness? She helped murder my son. When we find the imp, we will find the Lady Sansa too. She is not dead. But before I am done with her, I promise you she will be singing to the stranger, begging for his kiss. An awkward silence followed. Have they all swallowed their tongues? Cersei thought, with irritation. It was enough to make her wonder why she bothered with the council. In any case, the Queen went on, Lord Eddard's younger daughter is with Lord Bolton and will be wed to his son Ramsay as soon as Moat Caelan has fallen. So long as the girl played her role well enough to cement their claim to Winterfell, neither of the Boltons would much care that she was actually some Stuart's whelp, tricked up by Littlefinger. If the North must have a Stark, we'll give them one. She let Lord Merriweather fill her cup once again. Another problem has arisen on the wall, however. The brothers of the Night's Watch have taken leave of their wits and chosen Ned Stark's bastard son to be their Lord Commander. Snow, the boy is called, Pycelle said unhelpfully. I glimpsed him once at Winterfell, the Queen said. Though the Starks did their best to hide him, he looks very like his father. Her husband's by-blows had his look as well, though at least Robert had the grace to keep them out of sight. Once after that sorry business with the cat, he had made some noises about bringing some base-born daughter of his to court. Do as you please, she told him. 
but you may find that the city is not a healthy place for a growing girl. The bruise those words had won her had been hard to hide from Jamie, but they heard no more about the bastard girl. Caitlin Tolly was a mouse, or she would have smothered this John Snow in his cradle. Instead, she has left the filthy task to me. Snow shares Lord Eddard's taste for treason, too, she said. The father would have handed the realm to Stannis. The son has given him lands and castles. The Night's Watch is sworn to take no part in the wars of the Seven Kingdoms, Pycelle reminded them. For thousands of years the Black Brothers have upheld that tradition. Until now, said Cersei. The bastard boy has written us to avow that the Night's Watch takes no side, but his actions give the lie to his words. He has given Stannis food and shelter, yet has the insolence to plead with us for arms and men. An outrage, declared Lord Merriweather. We cannot allow the Night's Watch to join its strength to that of Lord Stannis. We must declare this snow a traitor and a rebel, agreed Sir Harris Swift. The Black Brothers must remove him. Grand Maester Pycelle nodded ponderously. I propose that we inform Castle Black that no more men will be sent to them until such time as snow is gone. Our new drummonds will need oarsmen, said Orin Waters. Let us instruct the lords to send their poachers and thieves to me henceforth, instead of to the wall. Kyburn leaned forward with a smile. The Night's Watch defends us all from snarks and grumpkins. My lords, I say that we must help the brave Black Brothers. Cersei gave him a sharp look. What are you saying? This, Kyburn said, for years now, the Night's Watch has begged for men. Lord Stannis has answered their plea. Can King Tommen do less? His grace should send the wall a hundred men to take the black, ostensibly, but in truth, to remove snow from the command, Cersei finished, delighted. I knew I was right to want him on my council. That is just what we shall do, she laughed. If this bastard boy is truly his father's son, he will not suspect a thing. Perhaps he will even thank me before the blade slides between his ribs. It will need to be done carefully, to be sure. Leave the rest to me, my lords. This was how an enemy should be dealt with, with a dagger, not a declaration. We have done good work today, my lords. I thank you. Is there aught else? Eh, one last thing, your grace, said Orain Waters in an apologetic tone. I hesitate to take up the council's time with trifles, but there has been some queer talk heard along the docks of late. Sailors from the east, they speak of dragons. And manticores, no doubt, and bearded snarks. Cersei chuckled. Come back to me when you hear talk of dwarfs, my lord. She stood to signal that the meeting was at an end. A blustery autumn wind was blowing when Cersei left the council chambers, and bells of blessed Baelor still sang their song of mourning off across the city 
In the yard, two score knights were hammering each other with sword and shield, adding to the din. Sir Boris Blunt escorted the queen back to her apartments, where she found Lady Merriweather chuckling with Jocelyn and Dorcas. What is it you all find so amusing? The Redwind twins, said Taylor. Both of them had fallen in love with Lady Marjorie. They used to fight over which would be the next Lord of the Arbor. Now both of them want to join the King's Guard just to be near the little queen. The Redwinds have always had more freckles than wits. It was a useful thing to know, though. If horror or slubber were to be found abed with Marjorie, Cersei wondered if the little queen liked freckles. Uh, Dorcas, fetch me Sir Osney Kettleblack. Dorcas blushed. As you command. When the girl was gone, Tana Merriweather gave the queen a quizzical look. Why did she turn so red? Love. It was Cersei's turn to laugh. She fancies our Sir Osney. He was the youngest Kettleblack, the clean-shaven one, though he had the same black hair, hook nose, and easy smile as his brother Osmond. One cheek bore three long scratches, courtesy of one of Tyrion's whores. She likes his scars, I think. Lady Merriweather's dark eyes shone with mischief. Just so. Scars make a man look dangerous, and danger is exciting. You shock me, my lady, the queen said, teasing. If danger excites you so, why wed Lord Orton? We all love him, it is true, but still, Peter had once remarked, that the horn of plenty that adorned House Merriweather's arms suited Lord Orton admirably, since he had carrot-coloured hair, a nose as bulbous as a beetroot, and peas porridge for wits. Tana laughed. <laughs> My lord is more bountiful than dangerous. This is so, yet I hope your grace will not think the less of me, but I did not come a maid entire to Orton's bed. You're all whores in the free cities, aren't you? That was good to know. One day she might be able to make use of it. And pray, who was his lover who was so full of danger? Tana's olive skin turned even darker as she blushed. Oh, I should not have spoken. Your grace will keep my secret, yes? Men have scars, women mysteries. Cersei kissed her cheek. I will have his name out of you soon enough. When Dorcas returned with Sir Osney Kettleblack, the queen dismissed her ladies. Come, sit with me by the window, Sir Osney. Will you take a cup of wine? She poured for them herself. Your coat is threadbare. I have a mind to put you in a new one. What, a white one? Who's died? No one, as yet, the queen said. Is that your wish, to join your brother Osmond in our king's guard? I, I'd rather be the queen's guard, if it please your grace. When Osney grinned, the scars on his cheek turned bright red. Cersei's fingers traced their path across his cheek. You have a bold tongue, sir. You will make me forget myself again. Good. Sir Osney caught her hand and kissed her fingers roughly. My sweet queen. You are a wicked man, the queen whispered, and no true knight, I think. She let him touch her breast through the silk of the gown. Enough. It isn't. I want you. 
you've had me. Only once. He grabbed her left breast again and gave it a clumsy squeeze that reminded her of Robert. One good night for one good night. You did me valiant service and you had your reward. Cersei walked her fingers up his laces. She could feel him stiffening through his breeches. Was that a new horse you were riding in the yard yestermorn? The black stallion? I, a gift from my brother, Osfried. Midnight, I call him. How wonderfully original. A fine mount for a battle. For pleasure, though, there's nothing to compare to a gallop on a spirited young filly. She gave him a smile and a squeeze. Tell me true. Do you think our little queen is pretty? Sir Osney drew back, weary. I suppose, for a girl, I'd soon have a woman. Why not both? she whispered. Pluck the little rose for me, and you will not find me to be ungrateful. The little Marjorie, you mean? Sir Osney's ardour was wilting in his breeches. She's a king's wife. Wasn't there some king's guard who lost his head for bedding the king's wife? Ages ago. She was his king's mistress, not his wife, and his head was the only thing he did not lose. Aegon dismembered him, piece by piece, and made the woman watch. Cersei did not want Osney dwelling on that ancient unpleasantness, however. Tommen is not Aegon the unworthy. Have no fear. He will do as I bid him. I mean for Marjorie to lose her head, not you. That gave him pause. Er, maidenhead, you mean? That too. Assuming she still has one. She traced his scars again. Unless you think Marjorie would prove unresponsive to your charms. Osney gave her a wounded look. Ah, oh, she likes me well enough. Them cousins of hers always teasing with me about my nose. How big it is and all. The last time Megga did that, Marjorie told them to stop and said I had a lovely face. There you are, then. There I am, the man agreed in a doubtful tone. But where am I going to be if she... if I... after we do the deed? Cersei gave him a barb smile. Lying with a queen is treason. Tommen would have no choice but to send you to the wall. The wall? he said with dismay. It was all she could do not to laugh. No, best not. Men hate being laughed at. A black cloak would go well with your eyes and that black hair of yours. No one returns from the wall. You will. All you need to do is kill a boy. What boy? A bastard boy in league with Stannis. He's young and green, and you'll have a hundred men. Kettleblack was afraid. She could smell it on him. But he was too proud to own up to that fear. Men are all alike. I've killed more boys than I can count, he insisted. Once this boy is dead, I get my pardon from the king? That and a lordship. Unless Snow's brothers hang you first. A queen must have a consort, one who knows no fear. Lord Kettleblack. A slow smile spread across his face, and his scars flamed red. Aye, I like the sound of that. A lordly lord, and fit to bed a queen. He frowned. The wall is cold. 
and I am warm. Cersei put her arms about his neck. Bed a girl and kill a boy, and I am yours. Do you have the courage? Osney thought a moment before he nodded. I am your man. You are, sir. She kissed him and let him have a little taste of tongue before she broke away. Enough for now. The rest must wait. Will you dream of me tonight? Oi! His voice was hoarse. And when you're abed with our maid Marjorie, she asked him, teasing, when you're in her, will you dream of me then? I will! swore Osney Kettleblack. Good. After he was gone, Cersei summoned Jocelyn to brush her hair out while she slipped off her shoes and stretched like a cat. I was made for this, she told herself. It was the sheer elegance of it that pleased her most. Even Mace Tyrell would not dare defend his darling daughter if she was caught in the act with the likes of Osney Kettleblack, and neither Stannis Baratheon nor Jon Snow would have cause to wonder why Osney was being sent to the wall. She would see to it that Sir Osmond was the one to discover his brother with the little queen. That way the loyalty of the other two Kettleblacks need not be impugned. If father could only see me now, he would not be so quick to speak of marrying me off again. A pity he's so dead. Him and Robert, John Aaron, Ned Stark, Renly Baratheon, all dead. Only Tyrion remains, and not for long. That night the Queen summoned Lady Merryweather to her bedchamber. Will you take a cup of wine? she asked her. A small one? The mirish woman laughed. <laughs> a big one. On the morrow I want you to pay a call on my good daughter, Cersei said as Dorcas was dressing her for bed. Lady Marjorie is always happy to see me. I know. The Queen did not fail to note the style that Tainer used when referring to Tommen's little wife. Tell her I've sent seven beeswax candles to the Baylor Sept in memory of our dear High Septon. Tainer laughed. If so, she will send seven and seventy candles of her own, so as not to be outmourned. I will be very cross if she does not, the Queen said, smiling. Tell her also that she has a secret admirer, a knight so smitten with her beauty that he cannot sleep at nights. Might I ask your grace, which knight? Mischief sparkled in Tainer's big dark eyes. Could it be Sir Osney? It could be, the queen said, but do not offer up that name freely. Make her worm it out of you. Will you do that? If it please you. That is all I wish, Your Grace. Outside, a cold wind was rising. They stayed up late into the morning, drinking arbor gold and telling one another tales. Tana got quite drunk, and Cersei pried the name of her secret lover from her. He was a mereish sea captain, half a pirate, with black hair to the shoulders and a scar that ran across his face from chin to ear. A hundred times I told him no, and he said yes, the other woman told her, until finally I was saying yes as well. <laughs> he was not the sort of man to be denied. I know the sort, the queen said with a wry smile. Has your grace ever known a man like that, I wonder? 
Robert, she lied, thinking of Jamie. Yet when she closed her eyes, it was the other brother that she dreamt of, and the three wretched fools with whom she had begun her day. In the dream it was Tyrion's head they brought her in her sack. She had it bronzed and kept it in her chamber pot. The Iron Captain The wind was blowing from the north as the Iron Victory came round the point and entered the holy bay called Naga's Cradle. Victorian joined Newt the Barber at her prow. Ahead loomed the sacred shore of Old Wyke and the grassy hill above it, where the ribs of Naga rose from the earth like the trunks of great white trees, as wide around as a drumman's mast and twice as tall. The bones of the Grey King's Hall. Victorian could feel the magic of this place. Balin stood beneath those bones when he first named himself the king, he recalled. He swore to win us back our freedoms, and Tarl the thrice-drowned placed a driftwood crown upon his head. Balon, they cried, Balon, Balon, king! They will shout your name as loud, said Newt. Victorian nodded, though he did not share the barber's certainty. Balon had three sons, and a daughter he loved well. He had said as much to his captains at Moat Galen when first they urged him to claim the sea stone chair. Balon's sons are dead, Red Ralph Stonehouse had argued, and Asher is a woman. You were your brother's strong right arm. You must pick up the sword that he let fall. When Victorian reminded them that Balon had commanded him to hold the moat against the Northmen, Ralph Kenning said, The wolves are broken, Lord. What good to win this swamp and lose their isles? And Ralph the Limper added, The crow's eye has been too long away. He knows us not. Euron Greyjoy, King of the Isles and the North. The thought woke an old rage in his heart, but still, Words are wind, Victorian told them, and the only good wind is that which fills our sails. Would you have me fight the crow's eye, brother against brother, ironborn against ironborn? Euron was still his elder, no matter how much bad blood might be between them. Ah, no man is as accursed as the Kingslayer. But when the damp hair summon came, the call to King's Moot, then all was changed. Aaron speaks with the drowned god's voice, Victorian reminded himself. And if the drowned god wills that I should sit the sea stone chair. The next day he gave command of Moot Kalen to Rafe Kenning, and set off overland for the Fever River where the iron fleet lay amongst the reeds and willows. Rough seas and fickle winds had delayed him, but only one ship had been lost, and he was home. Grief and iron vengeance were close behind, as iron victory passed the headland. Behind came Hard Hand, Iron Wind, Grey Ghost, Lord Quellen, Lord Vicken, Lord Dagon, and the rest nine-tenths of the iron fleet, sailing on the evening tide in a ragged column that extended back long leagues. The sight of their sails filled Victorian Greyjoy with content. No man had ever loved his wives half as well as the Lord Captain loved his ships. Along the sacred strand of Old Wyke, 
Longships line the shore as far as the eye could see, their masts thrust up like spears. In the deeper waters rode prizes, cogs, carracks, and drummonds, one in raid or war too big to run ashore. From prow and stern and mast flew familiar banners. Newt the barber squinted toward the strand. Is that Lord Arlor's sea song? The barber was a thick-set man with bandy legs and long arms, but his eyes were not so keen as they had been when he was young. In those days he could throw an axe so well that men said he could shave you with it. A sea song, aye. Roderick the reader had left his books, it would seem. And there's old Drum's Thunderer, with Black Tide's Nightflyer beside her. Victorian's eyes were as sharp as they had ever been. Even with their sails furled and their banners hanging limp, he knew them, as befit the Lord Captain of the Iron Fleet. A silverfin, too. Some kin of Sir Wayne Botley. The crow's eye had drowned Lord Botley, Victorian had heard, and his heir had died at Moat Kalin. But there had been brothers and other sons as well. How many? Four? No, five. And none with any cause to love the crow's eye. And then he saw her, a single-masted galley, lean and low, with a dark red hull. Her sails, now furled, were black as a starless sky. Even at anchor, silence looked both cruel and fast. On her prow was a black iron maiden with one arm outstretched. Her waist was slender, her breasts high and proud, her legs long and shapely. A wind-blown mane of black iron hair streamed from her head, and her eyes were mother-of-pearl. But she had no mouth. Victorian's hands closed into fists. He had beaten four men to death with those hands, and one wife as well. Though his hair was flecked with hoar-frost, he was as strong as he had ever been, with a bull's broad chest and a boy's flat belly. The Kingslayer is accursed in the eyes of gods and men. Balin had reminded him on the day he sent the crow's eye off to sea. He is here, Victorian told the barber. Drop sail. We proceed on oars alone. Command grief and iron vengeance to stand between silence and the sea. The rest of the fleet to seal the bay. None is to leave save at my command, neither man nor crew. The men upon the shore had spied their sails. Shouts echoed across the bay as friends and kin called out greetings, but not from silence. On her decks, a motley crew of mutes and mongrels spoke no word as the iron victory drew nigh. Men, black as tar, stared out at him, and others squat and hairy as the apes of Sotherus. Monsters, Victorian thought. They dropped anchor twenty yards from silence. Lower a boat. I would go ashore. He buckled on his sword belt as the rowers took their places. His long sword rested on one hip, a dirk upon the other. Newt the barber fastened the lord captain's cloak about his shoulders. It was made of nine layers of cloth of gold, sewn in the shape of the kraken of Greyjoy, arms dangling to his boots. Beneath he wore heavy grey chainmail over boiled black leather. In Moat Calen he had taken to wearing mail day and night. 
Sore shoulders and an aching back were easy to bear than bloody bowels. The poisoned arrows of the bug devils need only scratch a man, and a few hours later he would be squirting and screaming as his life ran down his legs in gouts of red and brown. Whoever wins the sea stone chair, I shall deal with the bug devils. Victorian donned a tall black war helm, wrought in the shape of an iron kraken. Its arms coiled down around his cheeks to meet beneath his jaw. By then the boat was ready. I put the chess into your charge, he told Newt as he climbed over the side. See that they are strongly guarded. Much depended on the chess. As you command, your grace. Victorian returned a sour scowl. I am no king as yet. He clambered down into the boat. Aaron Damphair was waiting for him in the surf, with his water-skin slung beneath one arm. The priest was gaunt and tall, though shorter than Victorian. His nose rose like a shark's fin from a bony face, and his eyes were iron. His beard reached to his waist, and tangled ropes of hair slapped at the back of his legs when the wind blew. "'Brother,' he said, as the waves broke white and cold around their ankles. What is dead can never die, but rises again, harder and stronger. Victorian lifted off his helm and knelt. The bay filled his boots and soaked his breeches as Aaron poured a stream of salt water down upon his brow. And so they prayed. Where is our brother, Crozai? the Lord Captain demanded of Aaron Dampfair when the prayers were done. He is in the great tent of cloths of gold, there where the din is loudest. He surrounds himself with godless men and monsters worse than before. In him our father's blood went bad, our mother's blood as well. Victorian would not speak of kingslaying. Here in this godly place, beneath the bones of Naga, and the great king's hall. But many a night he dreamed of driving a male fist into Euron's smiling face, until the flesh split and his bad blood ran red and free. I must not. I pledge my word to Balon. All have come? he asked his priestly brother. All who matter. The captains and the kings. On the Iron Islands they were one and the same, for every captain was a king on his own deck, and every king must be a captain. Do you mean to claim our father's crown? Victorian imagined himself seated on the sea-stone chair. If the drowned god wills it. The waves will speak, said Aaron Damphair, as he turned away. Listen to the waves, brother. Aye. He wondered how his name would sound, whispered by waves and shouted by captains and the kings. If the cup should pass to me, I will not set it by. A crowd had gathered round to wish him well and seek his favour. Victorian saw men from every isle, black tides, tawnies, orkwoods, stone trees, winches, and many more. The good brothers of Old Wyke, the good brothers of Great Wyke, and the good brothers of Orkman all had come. The cods were there, though every decent man despised them. Humble shepherds, weavers, and netlies rub shoulders with men from houses ancient and proud, 
even humble humbles, the blood of thralls and salt wives. A Volmark clapped Victorian on the back. Two spars pressed a wineskin into his hands. He drank deep, wiped his mouth, and let them bear him off to their cook-fires, to listen to their talk of war and crowns and plunder, and the glory and the freedom of his reign. That night the men of the Iron Fleet raised a huge sailcloth tent above the tide-line, so Victorian might feast half a hundred famous captains on roast kid, salted cod, and lobster. Aaron came as well. He ate fish and drank water, whilst the captains quaffed enough ale to float the Iron Fleet. Many promised him their voices. Freyleg the Strong, clever Arvin Sharp, humpbacked Hutho Harlaw. Hutho offered him a daughter for his queen. I have no luck with waves, Victorian told him. His first wife died in childbed, giving him a stillborn daughter. His second had been stricken by a pox, and his third— A king must have an heir, Hutho insisted. The crow's eye brings three sons to show before the king's moot. Ah, bastards and mongrels! How old is this daughter? Twelve, said Hotho. Fair and fertile, newly flowered, with hair the colour of honey. Her breasts are small as yet, but she has good hips. She takes after her mother more than me. Victorian knew that to mean the girl did not have a hump. Yet when he tried to picture her, he only saw the wife he'd killed. He had sobbed each time he struck her, and afterwards carried her down to the rocks to give her to the crabs. I will gladly look on the girl once I am crowned, he said. That was as much as Hotho dared hope for, and he shambled off, content. Baylor Blacktide was more difficult to please. He sat by Victorian's elbow in his lamb's wool tunic of black and green vary, smooth-faced and comely. His cloak was sable, and pinned with a silver seven-pointed star. He had been eight years a hostage in Old Town, and had returned a worshipper of the seven Greenland gods. Balon was mad, Aaron is madder, and Euron is maddest of them all, Lord Balor said. And what of you, Lord Captain, if I shout your name, will you make an end of this mad war? Victorian frowned. Would you have me bend the knee? If need be, we cannot stand alone against all Westeros. King Robert proved that, to our grief. Balon would pay the iron price for freedom, he said, but our women bought Balon's crowns with empty beds. My mother was one such. The old way is dead. Ah, what is dead can never die, but rises harder and stronger. In a hundred years men will sing of Balon the Bold. Balon the Widowmaker, call him. I will gladly trade his freedom for a father. Have you one to give me? When Victorian did not answer, Blacktide snorted and moved off. The tent grew hot and smoky. Two of Goral Goodbrother's sons knocked a table over fighting. Will Humble lost a wager and had to eat his boot. Little Lenwood Tawney fiddled, whilst Romney Weaver sang The Bloody Cop and Steel Rain, and other old reaving songs. Carl the Maid and Eldred Card danced the finger dance. A roar of laughter went up 
when one of Eldred's fingers landed in Rafe the Limper's wine cup. A woman was among those laughing. Victorian rose and saw her by the tent flap, whispering something in the ear of Carl the maid that made him laugh as well. He had hoped she would not be fool enough to come here, yet the sight of her made him smile all the same. Asher, he called in a commanding voice. Niece! She made her way to his side, lean and lithe, in high boots of salt-stained leather, green woolen breeches, and brown quilted tunic, a sleeveless leather jerkin half unlaced. Nonko! Asher Greyjoy was tall for a woman, yet she had to stand on her toes to kiss his cheek. I am pleased to see you at my queen's moot. A queen's moot? <laughs> Victorian laughed. How you drunk, niece? Sit. I did not spy your black wind on the strand. I beached her beneath Norn Good Brother's castle and rode across the island. She sat on a stool and helped herself unasked to Newt the barber's wine. Newt raised no objection. He had passed out drunk some time ago. Who holds the moat? Rafe Kenning. With the young wolf dead, only the bug devils remained to plague us. Uh, the Starks were not the only Norsemen. The Iron Throne has named the Lord of the Dreadfort as Warden of the North. Would you lessen me in warfare? I was fighting battles when you were sucking mother's milk. And losing battles, too. Asher took a drink of wine. Victorian did not like to be reminded of Fair Isle. Every man should lose a battle in his youth, so he does not lose a war when he is old. You have not come to make a claim, I hope. She teased him with a smile. And if I have? Is there a man who remember when you were a little girl swimming naked in the sea and playing with your doll? I played with axes, too. You did, he had to grant. But a woman wants a husband, not a crown. When I am king, I'll give you one. Oh, my knuckle is so good to me. Shall I find a pretty wife for you when I am queen? I have no luck with waves. How long have you been here? Long enough to see that Uncle Dampere has woken more than he intended. The drum means to make a claim, and Tal the thrice-drowned was heard to say that Marion Volmark is the true heir of the Black Line. The king must be a kraken. The crow's eye is a kraken. The elder brother comes before the younger. Asher leaned closer. But I am the child of King Balin's brother, so I come before you both. Hear me, Nuncle. But then a sudden silence fell. The singing died. Little Lenwood Tawny lowered his fiddle. Men turned their heads. Even the clatter of plates and knives was hushed. A dozen newcomers had entered the feast tent. Victorian saw pinch-faced John Meyer, tall old Browntooth, left-hand Lucas Codd. German Botley crossed his arms against the gilded breastplate he had taken off a Lannister captain during Balon's first rebellion. Orkwood of Orkmont stood beside him. Behind them were Stonehand, Kellen Humble, and the red oarsman with his fiery hair in braids. Rafe the shepherd, too, and Rafe of Lordsport, and Carl the thrall. And the crow's eye, Euron Greyjoy. Ah, he looks unchanged, Victorian thought. He looks the same as he did the day he laughed at me and left. Euron was the most comely of Lord Kellan's sons. 
and three years of exile had not changed that. His hair was still black as a midnight sea, with never a white cap to be seen, and his face was still smooth and pale beneath his neat dark beard. A black leather patch covered Euron's left eye, but his right was blue as a summer sky. Ah, his smiling eye, thought Victorian. Crow's eye, he said. King, a crow's eye, brother. Euron smiled. His lips looked very dark in the lamplight, bruised and blue. We shall have no king, but from the king's moot. The damphair stood. No godless man may sit the sea stone chair, I. Euron glanced about the tent. As it happens, I have oft sat upon the sea stone chair of late. It raises no objections. His smiling eye was glittering. Who knows more of gods than I? Horse gods and fire gods, gods made of gold with gemstone eyes, gods carved of cedar wood, gods chiseled into mountains, gods of empty air. I know them all. I've seen their peoples garland them with flowers and shed the blood of goats and bulls and children in their names. And I have heard the prayers in half a hundred tongues. Cure my withered leg, make the maiden love me, grant me a healthy son. Save me, succor me, make me wealthy, protect me, protect me from mine enemies, protect me from the darkness, protect me from the crabs inside my belly. From the horse lords, from the slavers, from the cell swords at my door. Protect me from the silence. <laughs> he laughed. Godless, why, Aaron, I am the godliest man ever to raise sail. You serve one god, Damphir, but I have served ten thousand. From Ib to Asai, when men see my sails, they pray. The priest raised a bony finger. They pray to trees and golden idols and goat-headed abominations, false gods. Just so, said Euron, and for that sin I kill them all. I spill their blood upon the sea and sow their screaming women with my seed. Their little gods cannot stop me so plainly. They are false gods. I am more devout than even you, Aaron. Perhaps it should be you who kneels to me for blessing. The red oarsmen laughed loudly at that, and the others took their lead from him. Fools, said the priest, fools and thralls and blind men. That is what you are. Do you not see what stands before you? A king, said Quellen Humble. The damphair spat and strode out into the night. When he was gone, the crow's eye turned his smiling eye upon Victorian. Lord Captain, have you no greeting for a brother long away? Nor you, Asher? How fares your lady mother? Poorly, Asher said. Some man made her a widow. Euron shrugged. I have heard the storm god swept Balan to his death. Who is this man who slew him? Tell me his name, niece, so I might revenge myself on him. Asher got to her feet. You know his name as well as I. Three years you were gone from us, 
and yet silence returns within a day of my lord father's death. Do you accuse me? Euron asked mildly. Should I? The sharpness in Asher's voice made Victorian frown. It was dangerous to speak so to the crow's eye, even when his smiling eye was shining with amusement. Do I command the winds? The crow's eye asked his pets. Uh, no, your grace, said Orkwood of Orkmont. No man commands the winds, said German Botley. Would that you did, the red oarsman said. You would sail wherever you liked and never be becalmed. There you have it from the mouths of three brave men, Euron said. The silence was at sea when Balon died. If you doubt an uncle's word, I give you leave to ask my crew. A crew of mutes, aye, that would serve me well. A husband would serve you well, Euron turned to his followers again. Torwald, I misremember. Do you have a wife? Uh, only the one. Torwald Brontooth grinned and showed how he had won his name. I am unwed, announced left-hand Lucas Cott. And for good reason, Asher said. All women do despise the Cods as well. Don't look at me so mournful, Lucas. You still have your famous hand. She made a pumping motion with her fist. Cod cursed, till the crow's eye put a hand on his chest. Was that courteous, Asher? You have wounded Lucas to the quick. Easier than wounding him in the prick. I throw an axe as well as any man. But when the target is so small... This girl forgets herself, snarled pinch-faced John Meyer. Balon let her believe she was a man. Your father made the same mistake with you, said Asher. Give her to me, Euron, suggested the red oarsman. I'll spank her till her ass is as red as my hair. Come try, said Asher, and hereafter we can call you the red eunuch. A throwing axe was in her hand. She tossed it in the air and caught it deftly. Here is my husband, uncle. Any man who wants me shall take it up with him. Victorin slammed his fist upon the table. I'll have no bloodshed here, Euron. Take your pets and go. I had looked for a warmer welcome from you, brother. I am your elder and soon your rightful king. Victorian's face darkened. When the king's moot speaks, we shall see who wears the driftwood crown. Oh, on that we can agree. Euron lifted two fingers to the patch that covered his left eye and took his leave. The others followed at his heels like mongrel dogs. Silence lingered behind him, till little Lenwood Tawney took up his fiddle. The wine and ale began to flow again, but several guests had lost their thirst. Eldred Cod slipped out, cradling his bloody hand. Then Will Humble, Hutto Harlaw, a goodly lot of good brothers. Nuncle, Asher put a hand upon his shoulder. Walk with me, if you would. Outside the tent, the wind was rising. Clouds raced across the moon's pale face. They looked a bit like galleys, stroking hard to ram. The stars were faint and few. All along the strand, the longships rested, tall masts rising like a forest from the surf. 
Victorian could hear their hulls creaking as they settled on the sand. He heard the keening of their lines, the sound of banners flapping. Beyond in the deeper waters of the bay, larger ships bobbed at anchor, grim shadows wreathed in mist. They walked along the strand together just above the surf, far from the camps and the cook-fires. Uh, "'Tell me, Uncle,' Asher said, "'why did Urin go away so suddenly? "'The crow's eye off went reeving. "'Never for so long. "'He took the silence east, a lengthy voyage. "'I asked why he went, not where. "'When he did not answer, Asher said, "'I was away when silence sailed. "'I had taken Black Wind round the arbor to the stepstones "'to steal a few trinkets from the Lyceny pirates.' When I came home, Urin was gone, and your new wife was dead. She was only a salt wife. He had not touched another woman, since he gave her to the crabs. I will need to take a wife when I am king, a true wife, to be my queen and bear me sons. A king must have an heir. Oh, my father refused to speak of her, said Asher. It does no good to speak of things no man can change. He was wary of the subject. I saw the reader's longship. It took all my charm to winkle him out of his book tower. She has the Harlows, then. Victorian's frown grew deeper. You cannot hope to rule. You are a woman. Is that why I always lose the pissing contests? Asher laughed. Nuncle, it grieves me to say so, but you may be right. For four days and four nights I have been drinking with the captains and the kings, listening to what they say, and what they will not say. Mine own are with me, and many are laws. I have Trisp Butley, too, and some few others. Not enough. She kicked a rock and sent it splashing into the water between two longships. I am of a mind to shout my uncle's name. Which uncle? he demanded. You have three. Four. Nuncle, hear me. I will place a driftwood crown upon your brow myself, if you will agree to share the rule. Share the rule? How could that be? The woman's not making sense. Does she want to be my queen? Victorin found himself looking at Asher in a way he had never looked at it before. He could feel his manhood beginning to stiffen. She is Balon's daughter, he reminded himself. He remembered her as a little girl throwing axes at a door. He crossed his arms against his chest. The sea stone chair seats but one. Then let my uncle sit, Asher said. I will stand behind you to guard your back and whisper in your ear. No king can rule alone. Even when the dragon sat the iron throne, they had men to help them. The king's hands. Let me be your hand, uncle. No king of the isles had ever needed a head, much less one who was a woman. The captains and the kings would mock me in their cups. Why would you wish to be my hand? To end this war, before this war ends us. We have won all that we are like to win, and stand to lose all just as quick, unless we make a peace. I have shown Lady Glover every courtesy, and she swears our lord will treat with me. If we hand back Deepwood Mott, Torren Square, and Moat Kalin, she says the Northmen will cede us Sea Dragon Point and all the stony shore. 
Those lands are thinly peopled, yet ten times larger than all the isles put together. An exchange of hostages will seal the pact, and each side will agree to make common cause with the other, should the Iron Throne. Victorian chuckled. This, Lady Glover, plays you for a fool, niece. Sea Dragon Point and Stony Shore are ours. Why hand back anything? Winterfell is burnt and broken, and the young wolf ruts headless in the earth. We will have all the north, as your lord father dreamed. When longships learn to row through trees, perhaps. A fisherman may hook a grey leviathan, but it will drag him down to death unless he cuts it loose. The north is too large for us to hold, and too full of northmen. Go back to your dolls, niece. Leave the winning of wars to warriors. Victorin showed her his fists. I have two hands. No man needs three. I know a man who needs house hollow, though. Hotho Humback has offered me his daughter for my queen. If I take her, I will have the Harlows. That took the girl aback. Lord Roderick rules House Harlow. Roderick has no daughters, only books. Hotho will be his heir, and I will be the king. Once he had said the words aloud, they sounded true. The crow's eye has been too long away. Some men look larger at a distance, Asher warned. Walk amongst the cook-fires if you dare, and listen. They are not telling tales of your strength, nor of my famous beauty. They talk only of the crow's eye, the far places he has seen, the women he has raped, and the men he's killed, the cities he has sacked, the way he burned Lord Tywin's fleet at Lannisport. I burn the lion's fleet, Victorian insisted. With my own hands I, I flung the first torch onto his flagship. The crow's eye hatched the scheme. Asher put her hand upon his arm and killed your wife as well. Did he not? Balon had commanded them not to speak of it, but Balon was dead. He put a baby in her belly and made me do the killing. I would have killed him too, but Balon would have no kin slain in his hall. He sent Euron into exile never to return. Ah, so long as Balin lived. Victorian looked at his fists. She gave me horns. I had no choice. Had it been known, men would have laughed at me, as a crow's eye laughed when I confronted him. She came to me, wet and willing, he had boasted. It seems Victorian is big everywhere, but where it matters. But he could not tell her that. I'm sorry for you, said Asher, and sorrier for her. But you leave me small choice but to claim the sea stone chair myself. You cannot. Your breath is yours to waste, woman. It is, she said, and left him. The Drowned Man only when his arms and legs were numb from the cold did Aaron Greyjoy struggle back to shore and don his robes again. He had run before the crow's eye as if he were still the weak thing he had been. But when the waves broke over his head, they reminded him once more that that man was dead. I was reborn from the sea, a harder man and stronger. No mortal man could frighten him no more than the darkness could, nor the bones of his soul, 
the grey and grisly bones of his soul. The sound of a door opening, the scream of a rusted iron hinge. The priest robes crackled as he pulled them down, still stiff with salt from their last washing a fortnight past. The wall clung to his wet chest, drinking the brine that ran down from his hair. He filled his water-skin and slung it over his shoulder. As he strode across a strand, a drowned man returning from a call of nature stumbled into him in the darkness. Damn fair, he murmured. Aaron laid a hand upon his head, blessed him, and moved on. The ground rose beneath his feet, gently at first, then more steeply. When he felt scrub grass between his toes, he knew that he had left the strand behind. Slowly he climbed, listening to the waves. The sea is never weary. I must be as tireless. On the crown of the hill, four and forty monstrous stone ribs rose from the earth like trunks of great pale trees. The sight made Aaron's heart beat faster. Naga had been the first sea dragon, the mightiest ever to rise from the waves. She fed on krakens and leviathans, and drowned whole islands in her wrath. Yet the Grey King had slain her, and the drowned god had changed her bones to stone, so that men might never cease to wonder at the courage of the first of kings. Naga's ribs became the beams and pillars of his long haul, just as her jaws became his throne. For a thousand years and seven he reigned here, Aaron recalled. Here he took his mermaid wife and planned his wars against the storm god. From here he ruled both stone and salt, wearing robes of woven seaweed and a tall pale crown made from Naga's teeth. But that was in the dawn of days when mighty men still dwelt on earth and sea. The hall had been warmed by Naga's living fire, which the Grey King had made his thrall. On its walls hung tapestries woven from silver seaweed most pleasing to the eyes. The Grey King's warriors had feasted on the bounty of the sea at a table in the shape of a great starfish while seated upon thrones carved for mother of pearl. Gone, all the glory gone. Men were smaller now. Their lives had grown short. The storm guard drowned Naga's fire after the grey king's death. The chairs and tapestries had been stolen, the roof and walls had rotted away. Even the grey king's great throne of fangs had been swallowed by the sea. Only Naga's bones endured to remind the ironborn of all the wonders that had been. It is enough, thought Aaron Greyjoy. Nine wide steps had been hewn from the stony hilltop. Behind rose the howling hills of Old Wyke, with mountains in the distance black and cruel. Aaron paused where the doors once stood, pulled the cork from his water skin, took a swallow of salt water, and turned to face the sea. We were born from the sea, and to the sea we must return. Even here he could hear the ceaseless rumble of the waves, and feel the power of the god who lurked below the waters. Aaron went to his knees. You have sent your people to me, he prayed. 
They have left their halls and hovels, their castles and their keeps, and come here to Naga's bones from every fishing village and every hidden vale. Now grant to them the wisdom to know the true king when he stands before them, and the strength to shun the false. All night he prayed, for when the god was in him, Aaron Greyjoy had no need of sleep, no more than the waves did, nor the fishes of the sea. Dark clouds ran before the wind, as the first light stole into the world. The black sky went grey as slate, the black sea turned grey-green, the black mountains of Great Wyke across the bay put on the blue-green hues of soldier pines. As colour stole back into the world, a hundred banners lifted and began to flap. Aaron beheld the silver fish of Butley, the bloody moon of Winch, the dark green trees of Orkwood. He saw war-horns and leviathans and scythes, and everywhere the krakens great and golden. Beneath them, thralls and salt-wives began to move about stirring coals into new life and gutting fish for the captains and the kings to break their fast. The dawnlight touched the stony strand, and he watched men wake from sleep, throwing aside their sealskin blankets as they call for their first horn of ale. Drink deep, he thought, for we have God's work to do today. The sea was stirring too. The waves grew larger as the wind rose, sending plumes of spray to crash against the longships. The drowned god wakes, thought Aaron. He could hear his voice wailing from the depths of the sea. I shall be with you here this day, my strong and faithful servant, the voice said. No godless man will sit my sea-stone chair. It was there beneath the arch of Naga's ribs that his drowned men found him, standing tall and stern, with his long black hair blowing in the wind. Is it time? Russ asked. Aaron gave a nod and said, It is. Go forth and sound the summons. The drowned men took up their driftwood cudgels and began to beat them one against the other as they walked back down the hill. Others joined them, and the clangor spread along the strand, such a fearful clacking and clattering it made, as if a hundred trees were pommeling one another with their limbs. Kettle drums began to beat as well. Boom, 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 boom. A war horn bellowed, then another. Ow! Men left their fires to make their way toward the bones of the Grey King's Hall. Oarsmen, steersmen, sailmakers, shipwrights, the warriors with their axes, and the fishermen with their nets. Some had thralls to serve them, some had salt wives. Others who had sailed too often to the Greenlands were attended by maesters and singers and knights. The common men crowded together in a crescent around the base of the knoll, and the thralls, children, and women towards the rear. The captains and the kings made their way up the slopes. Aaron Damphair saw cheerful Siegfried Stonetree, Andric the Unsmiling, the knight Sir Harris Harlaw, Lord Baylor Blacktide, in his sable cloak, stood beside the stone house in ragged sealskin. Victorian loomed above all of them, 
save Andric. His brother wore no helm, but elsewise he was all in armour, his kraken cloak hanging golden from his shoulders. He shall be our king. What man could look on him and doctor it? When the damfair raised his bony hands, the kettle drums and the war horns fell silent. The drowned men lowered their cudgels, and all the voices stilled. Only the sound of the waves pounding remained, a roar no man could still. We were born from the sea, and to the sea we all return, Aaron began, softly at first, so that men would strain to hear. The storm-god in his wrath plucked Balon from his castle and cast him down, yet now he feasts beneath the waves in the drowned god's watery halls. He lifted his eyes to the sky. Balon is dead! The Iron King is dead! The King is dead! his drowned men shouted. Yet what is dead? may never die, but rises again, harder and stronger, he reminded them. Balon has fallen, Balon, my brother, who honoured the old way, and paid the iron price. Balon the brave, Balon the blessed, Balon twice crowned, who won us back our freedoms and our God. Balon is dead, but an iron king shall rise again to sit upon the sea-stone chair and rule the isles. A king shall rise, they answered. He shall rise. He shall. He must. Aaron's voice thundered like the waves. But who, who shall sit in Balon's place? Who shall rule these holy isles? Is he here among us now? The priest spread his hands wide. Who shall be king over us? A seagull screamed back at him. The crowd began to stir like men waking from a dream. Each man looked at his neighbors to see which of them might presume to claim a crown. The crow's eye was never patient. Aaron Damfair told himself, Mayhaps he will speak first. If so, it would be his undoing. The captains and the kings had come a long way to this feast, and would not choose the first dish set before them. They will want to taste and sample, a bite of him, a nibble of the other, until they find the one that suits them best. Euron must have known that as well. He stood with his arms crossed amongst his mutes and monsters. Only the wind and the waves answered Aaron's call. The ironborn must have a king, the priest insisted, after a long silence. I ask again, who shall be king over us? I will, came the answer from below. At once a ragged cry of, Gilbert, Gilbert King, went up. The captains gave way to let the claimant and his champions ascend the hill to stand at Aaron's side beneath the ribs of Naga. This would-be king was a tall, spare lord with a melancholy visage, his lantern jaw shaved clean. His three champions took up the post two steps below him, bearing his sword and shield and banner. They shared a certain look with the tall lord, 
and Aaron took them for his sons. One unfurled his banner, a great black longship against a setting sun. I am Gilbert Farwint, Lord of the Lonely Light, the Lord told the king's moot. Aaron knew some far winds, a queer folk, who held lands on the westermost shores of Great Wyke and the scattered isles beyond, rock so small that most could support but a single household. Of those, the lonely light was the most distant, eight days' sail to the northwest, among rookeries of seals and sea lions and the boundless grey oceans. The far winds there were even queerer than the rest. Some said they were skin changers unholy creatures who could take on the forms of sea lions, walruses, even spotted whales, the wolves of the wild sea. Lord Gilbert began to speak. He told of a wondrous land beyond the sunset sea, a land without winter or want, where death had no dominion. Make me your king, and I shall lead you there, he cried. We will build ten thousand ships as Nymeria once did and take sail with all our people to the land beyond the sunset. There every man shall be a king, and every wife a queen. His eyes, Aaron saw, were now grey, now blue, as changeable as the seas. Mad eyes, he thought, fool's eyes. The vision he spoke of was doubtless a snare set by the storm-god to lure the ironborn to destruction. The offerings that his men spilled out before the king's mood included sealskins and walrus tusks, arm rings made of whalebone, war horns banded in bronze. The captains looked and turned away, leaving lesser men to help themselves to the gifts. When the fool was done talking, and his champions began to shout his name, only the far winds took up the cry, and not even all of them. Soon enough the cries of, Gilbert! Gilbert King! faded away to silence. The girls screamed loudly above them, and landed atop one of Naga's ribs as the Lord of the Lonely Light made his way back down the hill. Aaron Damphir stepped forward once more. I ask you again, who shall be king over us? Me! A deep voice boomed and once more the crowd parted. The speaker was borne up the hill in a carved driftwood chair carried on the shoulders of his grandsons, a great ruin of a man, twenty stone heavy and ninety years old. He was cloaked in a white bearskin. His own hair was snow-white as well, and his huge beard covered him like a blanket from cheek to thighs, so it was hard to tell where the beard ended and the pelt began. Though his grandsons were great strapping men, they struggled with his weight up the steep stone steps. Before the Grey King's Hall they set him down, and three remained below him as his champions. Ah, sixty years ago this one might well have won the favour of the moot, Aaron thought, but his hour is long past. I, me, the man roared from where he sat in a voice as huge as he was. Why not? Who better? I am Eric Ironmaker, for them who's blind. Eric the Just, Eric Anvil-breaker. Show them my hammer, Thormor. One of his champions 
lifted it up for all to see. A monstrous thing it was. Its haft wrapped in old leather, its head a brick of steel as large as a loaf of bread. I can't count how many hands I've smashed to pulp with that hammer, Eric said. But might be some thief could tell you. I can't say how many heads I've crushed against my anvil neither. But there's some widows, good. <laughs> I can tell you all the deeds I've done in battle. But I'm eight and eighty, and won't live long enough to finish. If old is wise, no one is wiser than me. If big is strong, no one's stronger. You want a king with heirs? I've more than I can count. King Eric, aye, I like the sound of that. Come, say it with me. Eric, Eric, anvil breaker, Eric, king! As his grandsons took up the cry, their own sons came forward with chests upon their shoulders. When they upended them, at the base of the stone steps, a torrent of silver, bronze, and steel spilled forth. Arm rings, collars, daggers, dirks, and throwing axes. A few captains snatched up the choicest items and added their voices to the swelling chant. But no sooner had the cry begun to build than a woman's voice cut through it. Eric! Men moved aside to let her through. With one foot on the lower step, she said, Eric, stand up! A hush fell. The wind blew. Waves broke against the shore. Men murmured in each other's ears. Eric Arnmaker stared down at Asher Greyjoy. Girl? Thrice damn girl? What did you say? Stand up, Eric, she called. Stand up, and I'll shout your name with all the rest. Stand up, and I'll be the first to follow you. You want a crown? Oi, stand up and take it. Elsewhere in the press, the crow's eye laughed. Eric glared at him, the big man's hands close tight around the arms of his driftwood throne. His face went red, then purple. His arms trembled with effort. Aaron could see a thick blue vein pulsing in his neck as he struggled to rise. For a moment it seemed as though he might do it, but the breath went out of him all at once, and he groaned and sank back onto his cushion. Euron laughed all the louder. The big man hung his head and grew old, all in the blink of an eye. His grandsons carried him back down the hill. Who shall rule the unborn? Aaron Damfer called again. Who shall be king over us? Men looked at one another. Some looked at Euron, some at Victorian, a few at Asher. Waves broke green and white against the longships. The gull cried once more, a raucous scream forlorn. I make your claim, Victorian, the Merlin called. Let us have done with this mama's farce. When I am ready, Victorian shouted back. Aaron was pleased. It's better if he waits. The drum came next, another old man, though not so old as Eric. He climbed the hill on his own two legs, and on his hip rode Red Rain, his famous sword, forged of Valerian steel in the days before the doom. His champions were men of note. His son Dennis and Donal, 
both stout fighters, and between them, Andrick the Unsmiling, a giant of a man with arms as thick as trees. It spoke well of the drum that such a man would stand for him. Where is it written that our king must be a kraken? Drum began. What right has Pike to rule us? Great Wyke is the largest isle. Our law the richest, old Wyke the most holy. When the black line was consumed by dragon fire, the ironborn gave the primacy to Viking Greyjoy, I, but as lord, not king. It was a good beginning. Aaron heard shouts of approval but they dwindled as the old man began to tell of the glories of the drums. He spoke of Dale the Dread, Rorin the Reaver, the hundred sons of Gormandrum, the old father. He drew Red Rain and told them how Hilmar Drum the Cunning had taken the blade from an armoured knight with wits and a wooden cudgel. He spoke of ships long lost and battles eight hundred years forgotten and the crowd grew restive. He spoke, and spoke, and then spoke still more. And when Drum's chests were thrown open, the captain saw the niggard's gifts he'd brought them. And no throne was ever bought with bronze, the Damphair thought. The truth of that was plain to hear, as the cries of, Drum! Drum! Dunstan! King! died away. Aaron could feel a tightness in his belly, and it seemed to him that the waves were pounding louder than before. It is time, he thought, it is time for Victorian to make his claim. Who shall be king over us? the priest cried once more, but this time his fierce black eyes found his brother in the crowd. Nine sons were born from the loins of Kellen Greyjoy. One was mightier than all the rest, and knew no fear. Victorian met his eyes and nodded. The captains parted before him as he climbed the steps. Brother, give me blessing, he said when he reached the top. He knelt and bowed his head. Aaron uncorked his waterskin and poured a stream of seawater down upon his brow. What is dead can never die. The priest said, and Victorian replied, But rises again, harder and stronger. When Victorian rose, his champions arrayed themselves beneath him. Rafe the limper, Red Rafe Stonehouse, and Newt the barber, noted warriors all. Stonehouse bore the grey joy banner, the golden kraken, on a field as black as the midnight sea. As soon as it unfurled, the captains and the kings began to shout out the Lord Captain's name. Victorian waited until they quieted, then said, You all know me. If you want sweet words, look elsewhere. I have no singer's tongue. I have an axe, and I have these. He raised his huge, mailed hands up to show them, and Newt the barber displayed his axe, a fearsome piece of steel. I was a loyal brother, Victorian went on. When Balin was wed, it was me he sent to Harlow to bring him back his bride. I led his longships into many a battle and never lost but one. The first time Balin took a crown, it was me sailed into Lannisport to singe the lion's tail. 
The second time it was me, he sent to skin the young wolf, should he come howling home. All you get from me is more of what you got from Balaam. That's all I have to say. With that, his champions began to shout, Victorian, Victorian, Victorian king. Below, his men were spilling out his chests, a cascade of silver gold and gems, a wealth of plunder. Captains scrambled to seize the richest pieces, shouting as they did so, Victorian, Victorian, Victorian king. Aaron watched the crow's eye. And will he speak now, or let the king's moot run its course? Orkwood of Orkmont was whispering in Euron's ear. But it was not Euron who put an end to the shouting. It was the woman. She put two fingers in her mouth and whistled a sharp, shrill sound that cut through the tumult like a knife through curds. Nuncle! Nuncle! Bending, she snatched up a twisted golden collar and bounded up the steps. Newt seized her by the arm, and for half a heartbeat, Aaron was hopeful that his brother's champions would keep her silent. But Asher wrenched free of the barber's hand and said something to Red Rafe that made him step aside. As she pushed past, the cheering died away. She was Balon Greyjoy's daughter, and the crowd was curious to hear her speak. It was good of you to bring such gifts to my queen's mood, Nuncle, she told Victorian. But you need not have worn so much armor. I promise not to hurt you. Asher turned to face the captains. There's no one braver than my uncle, and no one stronger, no one fiercer in a fight. And he counts to ten as quick as any man. I've seen him do it. Though when he needs to go to twenty, he does take off his boots. That made them laugh. He has no sons, though. His wives keep dying. The crow's eye is his elder, and has a better claim. He does, the red oarsman shouted from below. Aye, but my claim is better still. Asher set the collar on her head at a jaunty angle, so the gold gleamed against her dark hair. Balin's brother cannot come before Balin's son. Balin's sons are dead, cried Rafe the limper. All I see is Balin's little daughter. Daughter? Asher slipped a hand beneath her jerkin. Aho! What's this? Shall I show you? Some of you have not seen one since they weaned you. They laughed again. Teats on a king are a terrible thing. Is that the song? Rafe, you have me. I am a woman, though not an old woman like you. Rafe the limper. <laughs> Shouldn't that be Rafe the limp? Asher drew a dirk from between her breasts. I'm a mother, too. An ear is my suckling babe. She held it up. An ear? My champions. They pushed past Victorians three to stand below her. Carl the maid, Christopher Botley, and the knight Saharis Horlaw, whose sword nightfall was as storied as Dunstan Drum's red rain. My uncle says you know him. You know me too. I want to know you better, someone shouted. Go home and know your wife, Asher shot back. Nuncle says he'll give you more of what my father gave you. Well, what was that? Gold and glory, some will say. Freedom, ever sweet. Aye, it's so, he gave us that. And widows, too. 
as Lord Black Tide will tell you. How many of you had your homes put to the torch when Robert came? How many had daughters raped and despoiled? Burnt towns and broken castles? My father gave you that. Defeat is what he gave you. Noglier will give you more. Not me. What will you give us? said Lucas Cod. Knitting? Aye, Lucas, I'll knit us all a kingdom. She tossed her dirk from hand to hand. We need to take a lesson from the young wolf who won every battle and lost all. A wolf is not a kraken, Victorian objected. What the kraken grasps, it does not lose, be it longship or leviathan. And what have we grasped, Knuckle, the north? Why is that but leagues and leagues of leagues and leagues? Far from the sound of the sea, we have taken Mount Caelin, Deepwood Mott, Torrens Square, even Winterfell. What have we to show for it? She beckoned, and her black wind men pushed forward chests of oak and iron on their shoulders. I give you the wealth of the stony shore, Asher said as the first was upended. An avalanche of pebbles clattered forth, cascading down the steps, pebbles grey and black and white, worn smooth by the sea. I give you the riches of deep wood, she said, as the second chest was opened. Pine combs came pouring out to roll and bounce down into the crowd. And last, the gold of Winterfell. From the third chest came yellow turnips, round and hard and big as a man's head. They landed amidst the pebbles and the pine cones. Asher stabbed one with her dirk. Harmond Sharp, she shouted. Your son Harrig died at Winterfell for this. She pulled the turnip off her blade and tossed it to him. You have other sons, I think. If you'd trade their lives for turnips, shout my uncle's name. And if I shout your name, Harmon demanded, what then? Peace said Asher. Land, victory, I give you Sea Dragon Point and the stony shore, black earth and tall trees, and stones enough for every younger son to build a hall. We'll have the Norsemen, too, as friends, to stand with us against the Iron Throne. Your choice is simple. Crown me for peace and victory, or crown my uncle for more war and more defeat. She sheathed her dirk again. What will you have, Iron Men? Victory! shouted Roderick the Reader, his hands cupped about his mouth. Victory! And Asher! Asher! Lord Baylor Blacktide echoed. Asher, Queen! Asher's own crew took up the cry. Asher! Asher! Asher, Queen! They stamped their feet and shook their fists and yelled as the damp fair listened in disbelief. She would leave her father's work undone. Yet Christopher Butley was shouting for her, with many harlows, some good brothers, red-faced Lord Merlin, more men than the priest would ever have believed. For a woman? But others were holding their tongues, or muttering asides to their neighbors. No craven peace! Rafe the limper roared. Red Rafe Stonehouse swirled the Greyjoy banner and bellowed, Victorian! 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 Men began to shove at one another. Someone flung a pine cone at Asher's head. 
When she ducked, her makeshift crown fell off. For a moment it seemed to the priest, as if he stood atop a giant anthill, with a thousand ants in a boil at his feet. Shouts of Asha and Victorian surged back and forth, and it seemed as though some savage storm was about to engulf them all. The storm god is amongst us, the priest thought, sowing fury and discord. Sharp as a sword thrust, the sound of a horn split the air. Bright and baneful was its voice, a shivering hot scream that made a man's bones seem to thrum within him. The cry lingered in the damp sea air. All eyes turned toward the sound. It was one of Urin's mongrels winding the call, a monstrous man with a shaved head. Rings of gold and jade and jet glistened on his arms, and on his broad chest was tattooed some bird of prey, talons dripping with blood. The horn he blew was shiny black and twisted, and taller than a man, as he held it with both hands. It was bound about with bands of red gold and dark steel, incised with ancient valerian glyphs that seemed to glow redly as the sound swelled. It was a terrible sound, a wail of pain and fury that seemed to burn the ears. Aaron Damphir covered his and prayed for the drowned god to raise a mighty wave and smash the horn to silence. Yet still the shriek went on and on. It is the horn of hell, he wanted to scream, though no man would have heard him. The cheeks of the tattooed man were so puffed out they looked about to burst, and the muscles in his chest twitched in a way that made it seem as if the bird was about to rip free of his flesh and take wing. And now the glyphs were burning brightly, every line and letter shimmering with white fire. On and on and on the sound went, echoing amongst the howling hills behind them and across the waters of Nagy's cradle, to ring against the mountains of Great Wyke. On and on and on, until it filled the whole wet world. And when it seemed the sound would never end, it did. The hornblower's breath failed at last. He staggered and almost fell. The priest saw Orkwood of Orkmont catch him by one arm and hold him up, whilst left-hand Lucas Cod took the twisted black horn from his hands. A thin wisp of smoke was rising from the horn, and the priest saw blood and blisters upon the lips of the man who'd sounded it. The bird on his chest was bleeding too. Euron Greyjoy climbed the hill slowly, with every eye upon him. Above the gull screamed and screamed again. No godless man may sit the sea-stone chair, Aaron thought, but he knew that he must let his brother speak. His lips moved silently in prayer. Asher's champions stepped aside, and Victorians as well. The priest took a step backward and put one hand upon the cold, rough stone of Naga's ribs. The crow's eye stopped atop the steps at the doors of the Grey King's Hall, and turned his smiling eye upon the captains and the kings. But Aaron could feel his other eye as well, the one that he kept hidden. 
Iron men, said Euron Greyjoy. You have heard my horn, now hear my words. I am Balin's brother, Kellen's eldest living son. Lord Vicken's blood is in my veins, and the blood of the old Kraken. Yet I have sailed farther than any of them. Only one living Kraken has never known defeat. Only one has never bent his knee. Only one has sailed to Ashai by the shadow, and seen wonders and terrors beyond imagining. If you like the shadow so well, go back there, called out pink-cheek Carl the Maid, one of Asher's champions. The crow's eye ignored him. My little brother would finish Balon's war and claim the north. My sweet niece would give us peace and pine cones. His blue lips twisted in a smile. Asher prefers victory to defeat. Victorian wants a kingdom, not a few scant yards of earth. From me you shall have both. Crow's eye, you call me? Well, who has a keener eye than the crow? After every battle the crows come in, their hundreds and their thousands to feast upon the fallen. A crow can espy death from afar, and I say that all of Westeros is dying. Those who follow me will feast unto the end of their days. We are the ironborn, and once we were conquerors. Our writ ran everywhere the sound of the waves was heard. My brother would have you be content with the cold and dismal north, my niece with even less, but I shall give you Lannisport, Highgarden, the Arbor, Old Town, the Riverlands and the Reach, the Kingswood and the Rainwood, Dawn and the Marshes, the Mountains of the Moon and the Vale of Erin. Tarth and the Stepstones, I say, we take it all. I say we take Westerus. He glanced at the priest. All for the greater glory of our drowned god, to be sure. For half a heartbeat, even Aaron was swept away by the boldness of his words. The priest had dreamed the same dream when first he'd seen the red comet in the sky. We shall sweep over the green lands with fire and sword, root out the seven gods of the Septons and the white trees of the Northmen. Crow's eye, Asher called. Did you leave your wits at Ashoy? If we cannot hold the North, and we cannot, how can we win the whole of the seven kingdoms? Why, it has been done before. Did Balon teach his girl so little? of the ways of war. Victorian, our brother's daughter, has never heard of Aegon the Conqueror, it would seem. Aegon, Victorian crossed his arms against his armored chest. What has the Conqueror to do with us? I know as much of war as you do, Crozai, Asher said. Aegon Targaryen conquered Westeros with dragons. And so shall we, Euron Greyjoy promised. That horn you heard I found amongst the smoking ruins that were Valyria, 
where no man has dared to walk but me. You heard its call and felt its power. It is a dragon horn, bound with bands of red gold and valeria steel, graven with enchantments. The dragon lords of old sounded such horns before the doom devoured them. With this horn, Ironman, I can bind dragons to my will. Asher laughed aloud. A horn to bind ghosts to your will would be of more use, Crozai. There are no more dragons. Again, girl, you are wrong. There are three, and I know where to find them. Surely that is worth a driftwood crown. Euron! shouted left-hand Lucas Cod. Euron! Crozai! Euron! cried the red oarsman. The mutes and mongrels from the silence threw open Euron's chests and spilled out his gifts before the captains and the kings. Then it was Hatho Harlor, the priest's herd, as he filled his hands with gold. Gorol Goodbrother shouted out as well, and Eric Anvilbreaker. Euron! 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 The crowd swelled, became a roar. Euron! Euron! Crow's eye! Euron King! It rolled up Nagas Hill like the storm guard rattling the clouds. Euron! 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 Even a priest may doubt. Even a prophet may know terror. Euron Damfair reached within himself for his god and discovered only silence. As a thousand voices shouted out his brother's name, all he could hear was a scream of a rusted iron hinge. Brain East of Maidenpool, the hills rose wild, and the pines closed in about them like a host of silent, grey-green soldiers. Nimble Dick said the coast road was the shortest way and the easiest, so they were seldom out of sight of the bay. The towns and villages along the shore grew smaller as they went and less frequent. At nightfall they would seek an inn. Crab would share the common bed with other travellers, whilst Brian took a room for her and Podrick. Uh, cheaper if we all shared the same bed, milady, Nimble Dick would say. You can lay your sword between us. Old Dick's a harmless feller, chivalrous as a knight, and honest as the day is long. The days are growing shorter, Brian pointed out. Well, that may be. If you don't trust me in the bed, I could just curl up on the floor, my lady. Not on my floor. A, a man might think you don't trust me none. Trust is earned, like gold. Ah, as you say, my lady, said Crab. But up north... Where the road gives out, you'll need to trust Dick, then. <laughs> if I wanted to take your gold at sword point, who's to stop me? You don't own a sword. I do. She shut the door between them and stood there listening, until she was certain he had moved away. However nimble he might be, Dick Crabb was no Jamie Lannister, no Mad Mouse, not even a Humphrey Wagstaff. He was scrawny and ill-fed, his only armour a dented half-helm sputted with rust. In place of a sword, he carried an old nicked dagger. So long as she was awake, he posed no danger to her. Podrick, she said, 
There will come a time when there are no more inns to shelter us. I do not trust our guide. When we make camp, can you watch over me as I sleep? Stay awake, my lady, uh, sir, he thought. I have a sword. If Crab tries to hurt you, I could kill him. No, she said sternly. You are not to try and fight him. All I ask is that you watch him as I sleep, and wake me if he does anything suspicious. I wake quickly, you will find. Crab showed his true colours the next day when they stopped to water the horses. Brian had to step behind some bushes to empty her bladder. As she was squatting, she heard Podrick say, What are you doing? You get away from there. She finished her business, hiked up her breeches, and returned to the road to find Nimble Dick wiping flour off his fingers. Oh, you won't find any dragons in my saddlebags, she told him. I keep my gold upon my person. Sumbert was in the pouch at her belt, the rest hidden in a pair of pockets sewn inside her clothing. The fat purse inside her saddlebag was filled with coppers, large and small, pennies and half-pennies, groats and stars, and fine white flour to make it fatter still. She had bought the flour from the cook at the Seven Swords the morning she rode out from Doskendale. And Dick meant no harm, my lady. He wriggled his flower-spotted fingers to show he held no weapon. I was only looking to see if you had these dragons that you promised me. <laughs> the world's full of liars, <laughs> ready to cheat an honest man, and not that you're one. Brian hoped he was a better guide than he was a thief. We had best be going. She mounted up again. Dick would often sing as they rode along together, never a whole song. Only a snatch of this and a verse of that. She suspected that he meant to charm her, to put her off her guard. Sometimes he would try to get her and Podrick to sing along with him, to no avail. The boy was too shy and tongue-tied, and Brain did not sing. Do you sing for your father? Lady Stark had once asked her, at Riveron. Did you sing for Rindley? She had not. Not ever, though she had wanted. She had wanted. When he was not singing, Nimble Dick would talk, regaling them with tales of Crackclaw Point. Every gloomy valley had its lord, he said, the lot of them united only by their mistrust of outsiders. In their veins the blood of the first men ran dark and strong. The Andals tried to take Crackclaw, but we bled them in the valleys, and drown them in the bogs. <laughs> Only what their sons couldn't win with swords, their pretty daughters won with kisses. They married into the houses they couldn't conquer. <laughs> the darkling kings of Doskendale had tried to impose their rule on Crackclaw Point. The Moutons of Maidenpool had tried as well, and later the haughty Celtigars of Crab Island. But the crack-claws knew their bugs and forests as no outsider could, and if hard-pressed, would vanish into the caverns that honeycombed their hills. When not fighting would-be conquerors, they fought each other. Their blood feuds were as deep and dark as the bugs between their hills. From time to time some champion would bring peace to the point, but it never lasted longer than his lifetime. Lord Lucifer Hardy, he was a great one and the brothers Brune as well. Old Crackbones, even more so. But the crabs were the mightiest of all. 
Dick still refused to believe that Brian had not heard of Sir Clarence Crabbe and his exploits. Why would I lie? she asked him. Every place has its local heroes. Where I come from, the singers sing of Sir Galadon of Morn, the perfect knight. Sir Galahu of what? he snorted. Never heard of him. Why was he so bloody perfect? Sir Galadon was a champion of such valor that the maiden herself lost her art to him. She gave him an enchanted sword as a token of her love. The Just Maid, it was called. No common sword could check her, nor any shield withstand her kiss. Sir Galadon bore the Just Maid proudly, but only thrice did he unsheathe her. He would not use the maid against a mortal man, for she was so potent as to make any fight unfair. Crabbe thought that was hilarious. <laughs> the perfect knight, ah, the perfect fool, it sounds like. What's the point of having some magic sword if you don't bloody well use it? Honor, she said. The point is honor. That only made him laugh the louder. <laughs> Sir Clarence Crabbe would have wiped his hairy ass with your perfect knight, milady. If they'd ever have met, there'd be one more bloody head sitting on the shelf at the whispers, if you ask me. I should have used the magic sword, and it'd be saying all the other heads. <laughs> I should have used the bloody sword. Brian could not help but smile. Perhaps, she allowed, but Sir Galadon was no fool. Against a foe eight feet tall, mounted on an oryx, he might well have unsheathed the just maid. He used her once to slay a dragon, they say. Nimble Dick was unimpressed. A crackbones fought a dragon too, but he didn't need no magic sword. He just tied its neck in a knot, so every time it breathed fire, it roasted his own ass. <laughs> and what did Crackbone do when Aegon and his sisters came? Brian asked him. Uh, he was dead. Milady must know that. Crab gave her a sideways look. Aegon sent his sister up to Cracklaw, that Visenyar. The lords had heard of Harren's end, being no fools. They laid their swords at her feet. The queen took them as her own men and said they'd owed no fealty to Maidenpool, Crab Island, or Duskendale. Don't stop them bloody Celticars from sending men to the eastern shore to collect his taxes. If he sends enough, a few come back to him. Elseways, we bow only to our own lords and the king. The true king, not Robert and his ilk. He spat. There was crabs and brooms and bugses, with Prince Rhaegar on the trident, and in the king's guard too, a hardy, a cave, a pine, and three crabs, a Clement and Rupert and Clarence the Short. Six foot tall he was, but short compared to the real Sir Clarence. Ah, we're all good dragon men of Crackclawway. The traffic continued to dwindle as they moved north and east, until finally there were no inns to be found. By then the Bayside Road was more weeds than ruts. That night they took shelter in a fishing village. Brian paid the villagers a few coppers to allow them to bed down in a hay barn. She claimed the loft for Podrick and herself, and pulled the ladder up after them. You leave me down here alone, I could bloody well steal your horses. Crab called up from below. Best you get them up the ladder too, my lady. When she ignored him, he went on to say, It's going to rain tonight, 
a cold, hard rain. You and Pudge will sleep all snug and warm, and poor old Dick will be shivering down here by myself. He shook his head, muttering, as he made a bed on a pile of hay. I never knew such a mistrustful maid as you. Brian curled up beneath her cloak, with Podrick yawning at her side. I was not always weary, she might have shouted down at Crab. When I was a little girl, I believed that all men were as noble as my father. Even the men who had told her what a pretty girl she was, how tall and bright and clever, how graceful when she danced. It was Scepter Roel who had lifted the scales from her eyes. They only say those things to win your lord father's favour, the woman had said. You'll find truth in your looking-glass, not on the tongues of men. It was a harsh lesson, one that left her weeping, but it had stood her in good stead at Harrenhal when Sir Hyle and his friends had played their game. A maid has to be mistrustful in this world, or she will not be a maid for long, she was thinking as the rain began to fall. In the melee at Bitterbridge she had sought out her suitors and battered them one by one. Farrow and Ambrose and Bushy, Mark Mullendore and Raymond Nayland, and Will the Stork. She had ridden over Harry Sawyer and broken Robin Potter's helm, giving him a nasty scar. And when the last one had fallen, the mother had delivered Cunnington to her. This time Sir Ronnet held a sword and not a rose. Every blow she dealt him was sweeter than a kiss. Loras Torrell had been the last to face her wrath that day. He'd never courted her, had hardly looked at her at all, but he bore three golden roses on his shield that day, and Brian hated roses. The sight of them had given her a furious strength. She went to sleep dreaming of the fight they'd had, and of Sir Jamie fastening a rainbow cloak about her shoulders. It was still raining the next morning. As they broke their fast, Nimble Dick suggested that they wait for it to stop. When will that be? On the morrow, in a fortnight? When summer comes again? No, we have cloaks and leagues to ride. It rained all that day. The narrow track they followed soon turned to mud beneath them. What trees they saw were naked, and the steady rain had turned their fallen leaves into a sudden brown mat. Despite its squirrel-skin lining, Dick's cloak soaked through, and she could see him shivering. Brian felt a moment's pity for the man. He's not eaten well, that's plain. She wondered if there truly was a smuggler's cove, or a ruined castle called the Whispers. Hungry men do desperate things. This all might be some ploy to cousin her. Suspicion soured her stomach. For a time it seemed as though the steady wash of rain was the only sound in the world. Nimble Dick ploughed on heedless. She watched closely, noting how he bent his back, as if huddling low in the saddle would keep him dry. This time there was no village close at hand when darkness came upon them. Nor were there any trees to give them shelter. They were forced to camp amongst some rocks fifty yards above the tide-line. The rocks at least would keep the wind off. Ah, best we keep a watch tonight, my lady, Crab told her, as she was struggling to get a driftwood fire lit. A, a place like this, there might be squishers. Squishers? Brian gave him a suspicious look. Monsters, Nimble Dick said with relish. 
and they look like men till you get close. But their heads is too big, and they got scales where a proper man's got hair. Fish belly white they are, with webs between their fingers. And they're always damp and fishy smelling. But beneath those blubbery lips, they got rows of green teeth, sharp as needles. Some say the first men killed them all, but don't you believe it. They come by night and steal bad little children, padding along on their webbed feet with a little squish, squish sound. The girls they keep to breed with, but the boys they eat tearing at them with those sharp green teeth. He grinned at Podrick. Ah, they'll eat you, boy. <laughs> they'll eat you raw. If they try, I'll kill them. Podrick touched his sword. You try that. <laughs> you just try. Squishers don't die easy. He winked at Brian. You a bad little girl, milady? No, just a fool. The wood was too damp to light, no matter how many sparks Brian struck off her flint and steel. The kindling sent up some smoke, but that was all. Disgusted, she settled down with her back to a rock, pulled her cloak over herself, and resigned herself to a cold, wet night. Dreaming of a hot meal, she gnawed on a strip of hard salt beef, while Nimble Dick talked about the time Sir Clarence Crabbe had fought the Squisher King. Oh, he tells a lively tale, she had to admit. But Mark Murrendore was amusing, too with his little monkey. It was too wet to see the sun go down, too grey to see the moon come up. The night was black and starless. Crab ran out of tails and went to sleep. Podrick was soon snoring, too. Brian sat with her back to the rock, listening to the waves. Are you near the sea, Sanser? she wondered. Are you waiting at the whispers for a ship that will never come? Who'd you have with you? Passage for three, he said. Has the imp joined you and Sardantas, or did you find your little sister? The day had been a long one, and Brian was tired, even sitting up against the rock, with rain pattering softly all around her. She found her eyelids growing heavy. Twice she dozed. The second time she woke all at once, heart-pounding, convinced that someone was looming over her. Her limbs were stiff, and her cloak had gotten tangled round her ankles. She kicked free of it and stood. Nimble Dick was curled against a rock, half buried in wet, heavy sand, asleep. A dream! It was a dream! Perhaps she had made a mistake in abandoning Sir Creighton and Sir Illifer. They had seemed like honest men. Would that Jamie had come with me? she thought. But he was a knight of the King's Guard, his rightful place— was with his king. Besides, it was Renly that she wanted. I swore I would protect him, and I failed. And I swore I would avenge him, and I failed at that as well. I ran off with Lady Caitlin instead, and failed her too. The wind had shifted, and the rain was running down her face. The next day the road dwindled to a pebbled thread, and finally to a mere suggestion. Near midday it came to an abrupt end at the foot of a wind-carved cliff. Above, a small castle stood, frowning over the waves, its three crooked towers outlined against a leaden sky. Is that the whispers? Podrick asked. That look a bloody ruin to you? Crab spat. 
That's the day again where old Lord Prune keeps his seat. Road ends here, though. It's the pines for us from here on. Brian studied the cliff. How do we get up there? Easy. Nimble Dick turned his horse. Stay close to Dick. The squishers are apt to take the laggards. The way up proved to be a steep stony path hidden within a cleft in the rock. Most of it was natural, but here and there steps had been carved to ease the climb. Sheer walls of rock eaten away by centuries of wind and spray hemmed them in to either side. In some places they had assumed fantastic shapes. Nimble Dick pointed out a few as they climbed. Ah, that's an ogre's head, see, he said, and Brian smiled when she saw it. And that there's a stone dragon. A tother wing fell off when my father was a boy. Above it, that's the dogs drooping down, like some hag's teats. He glanced back at her own chest. Sir, my lady, said Podrick, there's a rider. Where? None of the rocks suggested a rider to her. On the road, not a rock rider, a real rider, following us, down there, he pointed. Brian twisted in her saddle. They had climbed high enough to see for leagues along the shore. The horse was coming up the same road they had taken, two or three miles behind them. Again? She glanced at Nimble Dick suspiciously. Ah, don't squint at me, Crab said. It's not to do with old Nimble Dick, whoever he is. Some man of Brune's, most like, come back from the wars, or one of them singers wandering from place to place. He turned his head and spat. He's no squisher, that's bloody certain. They're short, don't ride horses. No, said Brian. On that at least they could agree. The last hundred feet of the climb proved the steepest and most treacherous. Loose pebbles rolled beneath their horses' hooves and went rattling down the stony path behind them. When they emerged from the cleft in the rock, they found themselves under the castle walls. On a parapet above, a face peered down at them, then vanished. Brain thought it might have been a woman, and said as much to Nimble Dick. He agreed. A brune's too old to go claiming wall walks, and his sons and grandsons went off to the wars. No one left in there but wenches and a snot-nosed babe of three. It was on her lips to ask her guide which king Lord Brune had espoused, but it made no matter any longer. Brune's sons were gone. Some might not be coming back. We will have no hospitality here tonight. A castle full of old men, women, and children was not like to open its doors to armed strangers. You speak of Lord Brune as if you know him, she said to Nimble Dick. Ah, might be I did once. She glanced at the breast of his doublet. Loose threads and a ragged patch of darker fabric showed where some badge had been torn away. Her guide was a deserter, she did not doubt. Could the rider behind them be one of his brothers in arms? We should ride on, he urged, before Brune starts to wonder why we're here beneath his walls. Even a wench can wind a bloody crossbow. Dick gestured towards the limestone hills that rose beyond the castle with their wooded slopes. No more roads from here on, only streams and game trails, but my lady need not fear. Nimble Dick knows these parts. That was what Brian was afraid of. 
The wind was gusting along the top of the cliff, but all she could smell was a trap. What about that rider? Unless his horse could walk on waves, he would soon be coming up the cliff. Ah, what about him? If he's some fool from Maidenpool, he might not even find the bloody path. And if he does, we'll lose him in the woods. He won't have no road to follow there. Only our tracks. Brain wondered if it wouldn't be better to meet the rider here, with her blade in hand. Oh, look, an our fool, if it is a wandering singer or one of Lord Brune's sons. Crab had the right of it, she supposed. If he is still behind us on the morrow, I can deal with him then. As you will, she said, turning her mare toward the trees. Lord Brune's castle dwindled at their backs and soon was lost to sight. Sentinels and soldier pines rose all around them, towering green-clad spears thrusting toward the sky. The forest floor was a bed of fallen needles, as thick as a castle wall, littered with pine cones. The hooves of their horses seemed to make no sound. It rained a bit, stopped for a time, and started again. But amongst the pines they scarce felt a drop. The going was much slower in the woods. Brain prodded her mare through the green gloom, weaving in and out amongst the trees. It would be very easy to get lost here, she realized. Every way she looked appeared the same. The very air seemed grey and green and still. Pine boughs scratched against her arms and scraped noisily against her newly painted shield. The airy stillness grated on her more with every passing hour. It bothered Nimble Dick as well. Later that day, as dusk was coming on, he tried to sing. A bear there was, a bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered with air. He sang, his voice as scratchy as a pair of woolen breeches. The pines drank his song, as they drank the wind and rain. After a little while, he stopped. It's bad here, Bodrick said. This is a bad place. Brian felt the same but it would not serve to admit it. A pine wood is a gloomy place, but in the end it's just a wood. There's no ear that we need fear. What about the squishers and their heads? <laughs> There's a clever lad, said Nimble Dick, laughing. Brian gave him a look of annoyance. There are no squishers, she told Podrick, and no heads. The hills went up, the hills went down. Brian found herself praying that Nimble Dick was honest and knew where he was taking them. By herself, she was not even certain she could have found the sea again. Day or night, the sky was solid grey and overcast, with neither sun nor stars to help her find her way. They made camp early that night, after they came down a hill and found themselves on the edge of a glistening green bug. In the grey-green light, the ground ahead looked solid enough, but when they had ridden out, it had swallowed their horses up to their withers. They had to turn and fight their way back onto more solid footing. It's no matter, Crab assured them. We'll go back up the hill and come down another way. The next day was the same. They rode through pines and bogs under dark skies and intermittent rain, past sinkholes and caves and the ruins of ancient strongholds whose stones were blanketed in moss. Every heap of stones had a story, and Nimble Dick told them all. To hear him tell it 
The men of Crackclaw Point had watered their pine trees with blood. Brian's patience soon began to fray. How much longer? she demanded finally. We must have seen every tree in Crackclaw Point by now. Ah, not hardly, said Crab. We're close now. See, the water's thinning out. We're near the narrow sea. Ah, this fool he promised me is like to be my own reflection in a pond, Brian thought. But it would seem pointless to turn back when she had come so far. She was weary, though. She could not deny that. Her thighs were hard as iron from the saddle, and of late she had been sleeping only four hours a night, whilst Podrick watched over her. If Nimble Dick meant to try and murder them, she was convinced it would happen here, on ground that he knew well. He could be taken them to some robber's den, where he had kin as treacherous as he was. Or perhaps he was just leading them in circles, waiting for that rider to catch up. They had not seen any sign of the man since leaving Lord Brune's castle, but that did not mean he'd given up the hunt. It may be that I will need to kill him, she told herself one night as she paced about the camp. The notion made her queasy. Her old master at arms had always questioned whether she was hard enough for battle. You have a man's strength in your arms, Sir Goodwin had said to her more than once, but your heart is as soft as any maid's. It's one thing to train in the yard with a blunted sword in hand, and another to drive a foot of sharp steel into a man's gut and see the light go out of his eyes. To toughen her, Sir Goodwin used to send her to her father's butcher to slaughter lambs and suckling pigs. The piglets squealed, and the lambs screamed like frightened children. By the time the butchering was done, Brayne had been blind with tears, her clothes so bloody that she had given them to her maid to burn. But Sir Goodwin still had doubts. A piglet is a piglet. It's different with a man. When I was a squire, young as you, I had a friend who was strong and quick and agile, a champion in the yard. We all knew that one day he would be a splendid knight. Then war came to the stepstones. I saw my friend drive his foeman to his knees and knock the axe from his hand. But when he might have finished, he held back for half a heartbeat. In battle, half a heartbeat is a lifetime. The man slipped out his dirk and found a chink in my friend's armor. His strength, his speed, his valor, all his hard-won skill. It was worth less than a mummer's fart, because he flinched from killing. Remember that, girl. I will. She promised his shade there in the piney wood. She sat down on a rock, took out her sword, and began to hone its edge. I will remember, and I pray I will not flinch. The next day dawned bleak and cold and overcast. They never saw the sun come up, but when the blackness turned to grey, Brayne knew it was time to saddle up again. With Nimble Dick leading the way, they rode back into the pines. Brayne followed close behind him, with Podrick bringing up the rear upon his ranzi. The castle came upon them without warning. One moment they were in the depths of the forest, with nothing but pines to see for leagues and leagues. Then they rode around a boulder, and a gap appeared ahead. A mile further on, the forest ended abruptly. Beyond was sky and sea, and an ancient tumbled-down castle. 
abandoned and overgrown on the edge of a cliff. Ah, the whispers, said Nimble Dick. Yeah, ha, ha, have a listen, you can hear the heads. Podrick's mouth gaped open. I hear them. Brian heard them too, a faint soft murmuring that seemed to be coming from the ground as much as from the castle. The sound grew louder as she neared the cliffs. It was a sea, she realized suddenly. The waves had eaten holes in the cliffs below and were rumbling through caves and tunnels beneath the earth. There are no heads, she said. It's the waves you hear whispering. Waves don't whisper, it's heads. The castle was built of old unmortared stones. No two the same. Moss grew thick in clefts between the rocks, and trees were growing up from the foundations. Most old castles had a godswood. By the look of it, the whispers had little else. Brain walked her mare to the cliff's edge where the curtain wall had collapsed. Mounds of poisonous red ivy grew over the heap of broken stones. She tied the horse to a tree and edged as close to the precipice as she dared. Fifty feet below, the waves were swirling in and over the remnants of a shattered tower. Behind it, she glimpsed the mouth of a large cavern. Ah, that's the old beacon tower, said Nimble Dick as he came up behind her. It fell when I was half as old as Pods here. Used to be steps down to the cove, but when the cliff collapsed, they went too. The smugglers stopped landing here after that. Time was they could row their boats into the cave, but no more, see? He put one hand on her back and pointed with the other. Brian's flesh prickled. One shove, and I'll be down there with the tower. She stepped back. Keep your hands off me. Crab made a face. I was only. I don't care what you were only. Where's the gate? Around to the side, he hesitated. Ah, this fool of yours, he's not a man to hold a grudge, is he? He said nervously. I, I mean, last night I got to thinking that he might be angry at old Nimble Dick on account of that map I sold him, and how I left out that the smugglers don't land there no more. With the gold that you got coming, you can give him back. Whatever he paid you for your help. Brian could not imagine Dantas Hollard posing a threat. That is, if he's even here. They made a circuit of the walls. The castle had been triangular, with square tiles at each corner. Its gates were badly rotted. When Brian tugged at one, the wood cracked and peeled away in long, wet splinters, and half the gate came down on her. She could see more green gloom inside. The forest had breached the walls and swallowed Keep and Bailey. But there was a portcullis behind the gate, its teeth sunk deep into the soft, muddy ground. The iron was red with rust, but it held when Brian rattled it. No one's used this gate for a long time. I could climb over, offered Padre, by the cliff where the wall fell down. It's too dangerous. Those stones look loose to me, and that red ivy's poisonous. There has to be a postern gate. They found it on the north side of the castle, half hidden behind a huge blackberry bramble. The berries had all been picked, and half the bush had been hacked down to cut a path to the door. The sight of the broken branches filled Brian with disquiet. Someone's been through here, and recently. Hey, hey, you're a fool, and those girls— said Crab. I told you. 
Sansa. Brain could not believe it. Even a wine-soaked sot like Dantas Hollard would have better sense than to bring her to this bleak place. Something about the ruins filled her with unease. She would not find this dark girl here, but she had to have a look. Someone was here, she thought. Someone who needed to stay hidden. I'm going in, she said. Crab, you come with me. Podrick, I want you to watch the horses. I want to come too. I'm a squall. I can fight. That's why I want you to stay here. There may be outlaws in these woods. We dare not leave these horses unprotected. Podrick scuffed at a rock with his boot. As you say. She shouldered through the blackberries and pulled at a rusted iron ring. The postern door resisted for a moment, then jerked open, its hinges screaming protest. The sound made the hairs on the back of Brain's neck stand up. She drew her sword. Even in mail and boiled leather, she felt naked. Ankle on me, lady, urged Nimble Dick behind her. What are you waiting for? Old Crab's been dead a thousand years. What was she waiting for? Brain told herself that she was being foolish. The sound was just the sea, echoing endlessly through the caverns beneath the castle, rising and falling with each wave. It did sound like whispering, though, and for a moment she could almost see the heads sitting on their shelves and muttering to one another. I should have used the sword, one of them was saying. I should have used the magic sword. Podrick, said Brain, there's a sword and scabbard wrapped up in my bedroll. Bring it here to me. Yes, sir. Uh, my lady, I will. The boy went running off. A sword, nimble Dick. Scratched behind his ear. You got a sword in your hand. What you need another for? This one's for you. Brian offered him the hilt. Half for true? Crab reached out hesitantly, as if the blade might bite him. Had a mistrustful maid given old Dick a sword? You do know how to use one. I'm a crab. He snatched the long sword from her hand. I've got the same blood as old Sir Clarence. He slashed the air and grinned at her. It's the sword that makes the Lord, some say. When Podrick Payne returned, he held Oathkeeper as gingerly as if it were a child. Nimble Dick gave a whistle at the sight of the ornate scabbard with its row of lion's heads, but grew quiet when she drew the blade and tried a cut. Even the sound of it is sharper than an ordinary sword. With me, she told Crab. She slipped sideways through the postern, docking her head to pass beneath the doorway's arch. The bailey opened up before her, overgrown. To her left was the main gate, and the collapsed shell of what might have been a stable. Saplins were poking out of half the stalls and growing up through the dry brown thatch of its roof. To her right she saw rotted wooden steps descending into the darkness of a dungeon or a root cellar. Where the keep had been was a pile of collapsed stones overgrown with green and purple moss. The yard was all weeds and pine needles. Soldier pines were everywhere, drawn up in solemn ranks. In their midst was a pale stranger, a slender young weirwood, with a trunk as white as a cloistered maid. Dark red leaves sprouted from its reaching branches. Beyond was the emptiness of sky and sea where the wall had collapsed. And the remnants of a fire.
The whispers nibbled at her ears, insistent. Raine knelt beside the fire. She picked up a blackened stick, sniffed at it, stirred the ashes. Someone was trying to keep warm last night, or else they were trying to send a signal to a passing ship. Hello! called Nimble Dick. Anyone here? Be quiet, Brian told him. Ah, someone might be hiding, waiting to get a look at us before they show themselves. He walked to where the steps went down beneath the ground and peered down into the darkness. Hello! He called again. Anyone down there? Brian saw a sapling sway. From the bushes slid a man, so caked with dirt that he looked as if he had sprouted from the earth. A broken sword was in his hand, but it was his face that gave her pause, the small eyes and wide, flat nostrils. She knew that nose, she knew those eyes. Pig, his friends had called him. Everything seemed to happen in a heartbeat. A second man slipped over the lip of the well, making no more noise than a snake might make, slithering across a pile of wet leaves. He wore an iron half-helm, wrapped in stained red silk, and had a short, thick throwing-spear in hand. Brian knew him, too. From behind her came a rustling as a head poked down through the red leaves. Crab was standing underneath the weirwood. He looked up and saw the face. Here, he called to Brian. It's your fool. Ah, Dick, she called urgently to me. Shagwell dropped from the weirwood. Braying laughter. He was garbed in motley, but so faded and stained that it showed more brown than grey or pink. In place of a jester's flail, he had a tripled morning star, three spike balls chained to a wooden haft. He swung it hard and low, and one of Crab's knees exploded in a spray of blood and bone. That's funny, Shagwell crowed as Dick fell. The sword she'd given him went flying from his hand and vanished in the weeds. He writhed on the ground, screaming and clutching at the ruins of his knee. Oh, look, said Shagwell, it's Smuggler Dick, the one who made the map for us. Did you come all this way to give us back our gold? Please, Dick whimpered, please don't, my leg. Ah, does it hurt? <laughs> I can make it stop. Leave him be said Brian. Don't! shrieked Dick, lifting bloody hands to shield his head. Shagwell whirled the spike ball once around his head and brought it down in the middle of Crab's face. There was a sickening crunch. In the silence that followed, Brian could hear the sound of her own heart. Bad shags, said the man who'd come creeping from the well. When he saw Brian's face, he laughed. You again, woman! <laughs> what, come to hunt us down? <laughs> or did you miss our friendly faces? Shagwell danced from foot to foot and spun his flail. It's me she come for. She dreams of me every night when she sticks her fingers up her slit. <laughs> she wants me, lads. The big horse missed his merry shags. I'm going to fuck her up the ass and pump her full of motley seed until she whelps a little me. You need to use a different hole for that, shags, said Timion, 
in his Dornish drawl. I'd best use all her holes then, just to make certain. <laughs> he moved to her right as Pig was circling around to her left, forcing her back towards the ragged edge of the cliff. Passage for three, Brian remembered. There are only three of you. Timian shrugged. We all went our own ways after we left Harren Hall. Erswick and his lot rode south for Old Town. Rogues thought he might slip out at salt pans. Me and my lads made for Maidenpool, but we couldn't get near a ship. The Dornishman hefted his spear. You did for Vargo with that bite, you know. His hair turned black and started leaking pus. Rorge and Erswick were for leaving, but the goat says we got old his castle. Lord of Harrenhal, he says he is. No one was going to take it off him. He said it's slobbery, the way he always talked. We heard the mountain killed him piece by piece. A hand one day, a foot the next, lopped off neat and clean. They bandaged up the stumps, so out didn't die. He was saving his cock for last. But some bird called him to King's Landing, so he finished it and rode off. I'm not here for you. I'm looking for my, she almost said, my sister, for a fool. I'm a fool, Shagwell announced happily. The wrong fool, blurted Brian. The one I want is with a high-born girl, the daughter of Lord Stark of Winterfell. Then it's the hound you want, said Timian. He's not here neither. As it happens, <laughs> just us. Sandor Clegane, said Brain. What do you mean? He's the one that got the start, girl. The way I hear it, she was making for River Run, and he stole her. <laughs> Damn dog. River Run, thought Brain. She was making for River Run, for her uncles. How'd you know? Had it for one of Beric's bunch. The Lightning Lord is looking for her, too. <laughs> he sent his men all up and down the Triton, sniffing after her. We chanced on three of them after Harrenhal, and winkled a tail from one before he died. He might have lied. He might have, <laughs> but he didn't. Later on we heard how the Hound slew three of his brother's men at an inn by the crossroads. The girl was with him there. The innkeep swore to it before Rorge killed him, and the whores said the same. An ugly bunch they were. Not so ugly as you, mind you, but still. Oh, he's trying to distract me, Brian realized, to lull me with his voice. Pig was edging closer. Shagwell took a hop toward her. She backed away from them. They will back me off the cliff if I let them. Stay away, she warned them. I think I'm going to fuck you up the nose, wench, Shagwell announced. Won't that be amusing? Oh, he has a very small cock, Timion explained. Drop that pretty sword, and might be we'll go gentle on you, woman. We need gold to pay these smugglers, that's all. And if I give you gold, you'll let us go? <laughs> we will, Timion smiled. Once you fuck a lot of us, ha <laughs> ha! We'll pay you like a proper whore. A silver for each fuck. 
or else we'll take the gold and rape you anyway. And do you, like the mountain did Lord Vargo, <laughs> what's your choice? This, Brian threw herself towards Big. He jerked his broken blade up to protect his face, but as he went high, she went low. Oathkeeper bit through leather, wool, skin, and muscle into the cell sword's thigh. Pig cut back wildly as his leg went out from under him. His broken sword scraped against her chainmail before he landed on his back. Brian stabbed him through the throat, gave the blade a hard turn, and it slid out, whirling just as Timian's spear came flashing past her face. I did not flinch, she thought, as blood ran red down her cheek. Did you see, Sir Goodwin? She hardly felt the cut. Your turn, she told Timian, as the Dornishman pulled out a second spear, shorter and thicker than the first. Throw it! So you can dance away and charge me, I'd end up dead as pig. Now, get her, Shags! You get her, Shagwell said. Did you see what she did to pig? She's mad with moon blood. The fool was behind her, Timian in front. No matter how she turned, one was at her back. Get her! urged Timian. And you can fuck her corpse! Oh, you do love me. The morning star was whirling. Choose one, Brian told herself. Choose one and kill him quickly. Then a stone came out of nowhere and hit Shagwell in the head. Brian did not hesitate. She flew at Timian. He was better than Pig, but he had only a short throwing spear, and she had a Valyrian steel blade. Oathkeeper was alive in her hands. She had never been so quick. The blade became a grey blur. He wounded her in the shoulder as she came at him, but she slashed off his ear and half his cheek, hacked the head off his spear, and put a foot of ripple steel into his belly through the links of the chainmail burney he was wearing. Timian was still trying to fight as she pulled her blade from him, its fullers running red with blood. He clawed at his belt and came up with a dagger, so Brian cut his hand off. That one was for Jamie. Mother have mercy! The Dornishman gasped, the blood bubbling from his mouth and spurting from his wrist. Finish it! Send me back to dawn, you bloody bitch! She did. Shagwell was on his knees when she turned, looking dazed as he fumbled for the morning star. As he staggered to his feet, another stone slammed him in the ear. Podrick had climbed the fallen wall and was standing amongst the ivy, glowering a fresh rock in his hand. I told you I could fight, he shouted down. Shagwell tried to crawl away. I yield, the fool cried. I yield. You mustn't hurt, sweet Shagwell. I'm too droll to die. You are no better than the rest of them. You have robbed and raped and murdered. Oh, I have, I have, I shan't deny it. But I'm amusing. With all my japes and capers, I make men laugh. And women weep. Is that my fault? Women have no sense of humour. Brian lowered Oathkeeper. Dig a grave, there, beneath the weirwood. She pointed with her blade. I have no spade. You have two hands, one more than you left Jamie. Why bother? 
Leave them for the crows. Timian and Pig can feed the crows. Nimble Dick will have a grave. He was a crab. This is his place. The ground was soft from rain, but even so it took the fool the rest of the day to dig down deep enough. Night was falling by the time he was done, and his hands were bloody and blistered. Brian's sheathed oath-keeper gathered up Dick Crab and carried him to the hole. His face was hard to look on. I'm sorry that I never trusted you. I don't know how to do that any more. As she knelt to lay the body down, she thought, A fool will make his try now, whilst my back is turned. She heard his ragged breathing half a heartbeat before Podrick cried out his warning. Shagwell had a jagged chunk of rock clutched in one hand. Brian had a dagger up her sleeve. A dagger will beat a rock almost every time. She knocked aside his arm and punched the steel into his bowels. Laugh, she snarled at him. He moaned instead. Laugh, she repeated, grabbing his throat with one hand and stabbing at his belly with the other. Laugh! She kept saying it over and over until her hand was red up to the wrist and the stink of the fool's dying was like to choke her. But Shagwell never laughed. The sobs that Brian heard were all her own. When she realized that, she threw down her knife and shuddered. Podrick helped her lower nimble dick into his hole. By the time they were done, the moon was rising. Brian rubbed the dirt from her hands and tossed two dragons down into the grave. Why'd you do that, my lady? Sir, asked Pod. It was the reward I promised him for finding me the fool. Laughter sounded from behind them. She ripped Oathkeeper from her sheath and whirled, expecting more bloody mummers. But it was only Hyle Hunt atop the crumbling wall, his legs crossed. If there are brothels down in hell, the wretch will thank you, the knight called on. Elsewise, that's a waste of good gold. I keep my promises. What are you doing here? Lord Randall bid me follow you. If by some freak chance you stumble unto Sansa Stark, he told me to bring her back to Maidenpool. Have no fear. I was commanded not to harm you. Brian snorted. As if you could. What will you do now, my lady? Cover him. About the girl, I meant, the Lady Sansa. Brian thought a moment. She was making for River Run, if Timian told it true. Somewhere along the way she was taken by the hound. If I find him, he'll kill you, or I'll kill him, she said stubbornly. Will you help me to cover up poor Crab, sir? No true knight could ever refuse such beauty. Sir Hyle climbed down from the wall. Together they shoved the dirt on top of Nimble Dick as the moon rose higher in the sky, and down below the ground the heads of forgotten kings whispered secrets. The Queen Maker Beneath the burning sun of dawn, wealth was measured as much in water as in gold, so every well was zealously guarded. The well at Shandystone had gone dry a hundred years before, however, 
and its guardians had departed for some wetter place, abandoning their modest holdfast with its fluted columns and triple arches. Afterward, the sands had crept back in to reclaim their own. Ariane Martel arrived with Dre and Silver, just as the sun was going down, with the west a tapestry of gold and purple, and the clouds all glowing crimson. The ruin seemed aglow as well. The fallen columns glimmered pinkly, red shadows crept across the cracked stone floors, and the sands themselves turned from gold to orange to purple as the light faded. Garen had arrived a few hours earlier, and the night called Dark Star the day before. It is lovely here, Dre observed as he was helping Garen water the horses. They had carried their own water with them. The sand steeds of dawn were swift and tireless, and would keep going for long leagues after other horses had given out, but even such as they could not run dry. How do you know of this place? My uncle brought me here, with Tyene and Sorella. The memory made Ariane smile. He caught some vipers and showed Tyene the safest way to milk them for their venom. Sorella turned over rocks, brushed sand off the mosaics, and wanted to know everything there was to know about the people who had lived here. And what did you do, princess? asked Spotted Silver. I sat beside the wall and pretended that some robber knight had brought me here to have his way with me, she thought. A tall, hard man with black eyes and a widow's peak. The memory made her uneasy. I dreamed, she said, and when the sun went down, I sat cross-legged at my uncle's feet and begged him for a story. Oh, Prince Oberon was full of stories. Garn had been with them as well that day. He was Ariane's milk brother, and they had been inseparable since before they learned to walk. He told me about Prince Garin, I remember, the one that I was named for. Garin the Great offered Dre, the wonder of the Rhine. <laughs> That's the one he made Valeria tremble. Oh, they trembled, said Sir Gerald. Then they killed him. If I led a quarter of a million men to death, they would call me Gerald the Great, he snorted. I shall remain Darkstar, I think. At least it is mine own. He unsheathed his longsword, sat upon the lip of a dry well, and began to hone the blade with an oilstone. Ariane watched him warily. He is high-born enough to make a worthy consort, she thought. Father would question my good sense, but our children would be as beautiful as dragon lords. If there was a handsomer man in Dawn, she did not know him. Sir Gerald Dane had an aquiline nose, high cheekbones, a strong jaw. He kept his face clean-shaven, but his thick hair fell to his collar like a silver glacier divided by a streak of midnight black. Eh, he has a cruel mouth, though, and a crueler tongue. His eyes seemed black as he sat outlined against the dying sun, sharpening his steel, but she had looked at them from a closer vantage, and knew that they were purple, dark purple, dark and angry. He must have felt her gaze upon him, for he looked up from his sword, met her eyes, and smiled. Ariane felt heat rushing to her face. Ahesh never brought him. If he gives me such a look when Ares is here, 
we will have blood on the sun. Whose, she could not say. By tradition, the king's guard were the finest knights in all the seven kingdoms. But Darkstar was Darkstar. The Dornish knights grow cold out upon the sand. Garin gathered wood for them, bleached white branches from trees that had withered up and died a hundred years ago. Grey built a fire, whistling as he struck sparks of his flint. Once the kindling caught, they sat around the flames and passed a skin of summer wine from hand to hand, all but Darkstar, who preferred to drink unsweetened lemon water. Garen was in a lively mood and entertained them with their latest tales from the planky town at the mouth of the Green Blood, where the orphans of the river came to trade with the carracks, cogs, and galleys from across the narrow sea. If uh, the sailors could be believed, the East was seething with wonders and terrors. A slave revolt in Astapor, dragons in Karth, Grey Plague in Yaitai. A new Corsair king had risen in the Basilisk Isles and raided Tall Tree Town, and in Cahor followers of the Red Priest had rioted and tried to burn down the Black Goat. And the Golden Company broke its contract with Mur, just as the Murmen were about to go to war with Lys. The Lyseni bought them off, suggested Silver. Clever Lyseni, Dre said. Clever craven Lyseni. Ariane knew better. If Quentin has the Golden Company behind him, beneath the gold the bitter steel, was their cry. You will need bitter steel and more, brother, if you think to set me aside. Ariane was loved in dawn, Quentin little known. No company of sellswords could change that. Uh, Sir Gerald rose. I believe I'll have a piss. Well, watch where you set your feet. Dre cautioned. It has been a while since Prince Oberon milked the local vipers. Oh, I was weaned on venom, Dalt. Any viper takes a bite of me will rue it. Sir Gerald vanished through a broken arch. When he was gone, the others exchanged glances. Uh, forgive me, princess, said Garin softly, but I do not like that man. A pity, Dre said. I believe he's half in love with you. We need him. Ariane reminded them, it may be that we will need his sword, and we will surely need his castle. High Hermitage is not the only castle in Dawn, Spotted Silver pointed out, and you have other knights who love you well. Dre is a knight. I am, he affirmed. I have a wonderful horse and a very fine sword, and my valor is second to, well, several, actually. More like several hundred, sir, said Garin. Ariane left them to their banter. Dre and Spotted Silver were her dearest friends, aside from her cousin Tyene, and Garin had been teasing her since both of them were drinking from his mother's teats. But just now she was in no mood for japery. The sun was gone, and the sky was full of stars. So many! She leaned her back against a fluted pillar, and wondered if her brother was looking at the same stars tonight, wherever he might be. Do you see the white one, Quentin? That is Nymeria's star, burning bright, and that milky band behind her. Those are ten thousand ships. She burned as bright as any man, and so shall I. You will not rob me of my birthright. 
Quentin had been very young when he was sent to Ironwood, too young, according to their mother. Nor Vashi did not foster out their children, and Lady Malario had never forgiven Prince Doran for taking her son away from her. I like it no more than you do, Ariane had overheard her father say. But there is a blood debt, and Quentin is the only coin Lord Ormond will accept. Coin? her mother had screamed. He is your son. What sort of father uses his own flesh and blood to pay his debts? The princely sort, Doran Martell had answered. Prince Doran was still pretending that her brother was with Lord Ironwood, but Garen's mother had seen him at the Planky Town posing as a merchant. One of his companions had a lazy eye, the same as Cletus Ironwood, Lord Anders Randison. A maester travelled with them too, a maester skilled in tongues. My brother is not so clever as he thinks. A clever man would have left from Old Town even if it meant a longer voyage. In Old Town he might have gone unrecognised. Ariane had friends amongst the orphans of the Planky Town, and some had grown curious as to why a prince and a lord's son might be travelling under false names and seeking passage across the narrow sea. One of them had crept to a window of a night, tickled the lock on Quentin's little strongbox, and found the scrolls within. Ariane would have given much and more to know that this secret trip across the narrow sea was Quentin's own doing, and his alone. But parchments he had carried had been sealed with the sun and spear of dawn. Garen's cousin had not dared break the seal to read them, but— A princess! Sir Geraldine stood behind her, half in the starlight and half in shadow. How was your piss? Ariane inquired archly. Uh, the sands were duly grateful. Dane put a foot upon the head of a statue that might have been the maiden until the sands had scoured her face away. It occurred to me, as I was pissing, that this plan of yours may not yield what you want. And what is it, I want, sir? Uh, the sand snakes freed. Vengeance for Oberon and a liar. Do I know the song? <laughs> you want a little taste of lion blood. That and my birthright. I want Sunspear and my father's seat. I want dawn. I want justice. Uh, call it what you will. Crowning the Lannister girl is a hollow gesture. She will never sit the Iron Throne, nor will you get the war you want. The lion is not so easily provoked. Sir Gerald drew his sword. It glimmered in the starlight, sharp as lies. Uh, this is how you start a war, not with a crown of gold, but with a blade of steel. I am no murderer of children. Put that away. Marcella is under my protection and Sir Ares will permit no harm to come to his precious princess. You know that? Uh, no, my lady, what I know is that Danes have been killing Oakharts for several thousand years. His arrogance took her breath away. It seems to me that Oakharts have been killing Danes for just as long. Uh, we all have our family traditions. Darkstar sheathed his sword. The moon is rising and I see your paragon approaching. His eyes were sharp. The horseman on the tall grey palfrey did indeed prove to be Sir Ares, 
white cloak fluttering bravely as he spurred across the sand. Princess Marcella rode pillion behind him, swaddled in a cowled robe that hid her golden curls. As Sir Ares helped her from the saddle, Dre went to one knee before her. Your grace, my lady liege, spotted silver knelt beside him. My queen, I am your man. Garen dropped to both knees. Confused, Marcella clutched Ares Oakheart by the arm. Why do they call me Grace? she asked in a plaintive voice. Sir Ares, what is this place, and who are they? Has he told her not? Arian moved forward in a swirl of silk, smiling to put the child at ease. They are my true and loyal friends, your grace, and would be your friends as well. Princess Ariane? The girl threw her arms around her. Why do they call me queen? Did something bad happen to Tommen? He fell in with evil men, your grace, Arian said, and I fear they have conspired with him to steal your throne. My throne? You mean the Iron Throne? The girl was more confused than ever. He never stole that. Tommen is younger than you, surely. I'm older by a year. That means the Iron Throne by right is yours, Ariane said. Your brother is only a little boy. You must not blame him. He has bad counsellors. But you have friends. May I have the honour of presenting them? She took the child by the hand. Your Grace, I give you Sir Andre Dalt, the heir to Lemonwood. My friends call me Dre, he said, and I should be greatly honoured if your Grace would do the same. Though Dre had an open face and an easy smile, Marcella regarded him warily. Until I know you, I must call you Sir. Whatever name your Grace prefers, I am her man. Silver cleared her throat, till Ariane said, uh, might I present Lady Silver Santigar, my queen? My dearest spotted silver. Why do they call you that? Marcella asked. Uh, for my freckles, your grace, Silver answered. Though they all pretend it is because I am the heir to Spotswood. Garen was next, a loose-limbed, swarthy, long-nosed fellow with a jade stud in one ear. Here is gay Garen of the orphans who makes me laugh said Ariane. His mother was my wet nurse. I am sorry she is dead, Marcella said. She's not, sweet queen. Garen flashed the golden tooth Ariane had bought him to replace the one she'd broken. I'm of the orphans of the green blood, is what my lady means. Marcella would have time enough to learn the history of the orphans on her voyage up the river. Ariane led her queen-to-be to the final member of her little band. Last but first in valour, I give you Sir Geraldine, a knight of Starfall. Sir Gerald went to one knee. The moonlight shone in his dark eyes as he studied the child coolly. There was an Arthur Dane, Marcella said. He was a knight of the King's Guard in the days of Mad King Ares. He was the sword of the morning. He is dead. Are you the sword of the morning now? No. Men call me Darkstar, and I am of the night. Arian drew the child away. Oh, you must be hungry. We have dates and cheese and olives and lemon sweet to drink. You ought not to eat or drink too much, though. 
After little rest we must ride. Out here on the sands it is always best to travel by night, before the sun ascends the sky. It's kinder to the horses. And the riders, the spotted silver said. Come, your grace, warm yourself. I shall be honoured if you would let me serve you. As she led the princess to the fire, Ariane found Sir Gerald behind her. Uh, my house goes back ten thousand years, unto the dawn of days, he complained. Why is it that my cousin is the only Dane that anyone remembers? He was a great knight, Sir Ares Oakhart put in. He had a great sword, Darkstar said. And a great heart, Sir Ares took Ariane by the arm. Uh, princess, I beg a moment's word. Come. She led Sir Ares deeper into the ruin. Beneath his cloak, the knight wore a cloth of gold doublet embroidered with the three green oak leaves of his house. On his head was a light steel helm topped by a jagged spike, wound about with a yellow scarf in the Dornish fashion. He might have passed for any knight, but for the cloak. Of shimmering white silk it was, pale as moonlight and airy as a breeze. A king's guard cloak beyond all doubt. The gallant fool. How much does the child know? A little enough. Uh, before we left King's Landing, her uncle reminded her that I was her protector, and that any commands that I might give her were meant to keep her safe. She has heard them in the streets as well, shouting out for vengeance. Uh, she knew this was no game. The girl is brave and wise beyond her years. She did all I asked of her, and never asked a question. The knight took her arm, glanced about, lowered his voice. And there are other tidings you should hear. Tywin Lannister is dead. That was a shock. Dead? Uh, murdered by the imp. The queen has assumed the regency. Has she? A woman on the Iron Throne? Arianne thought about that for a moment and decided... It was all to the good. If the lords of the Seven Kingdoms grew accustomed to Queen Cersei's rule, it would be that much easier for them to bend their knees to Queen Marcella. And Lord Tywin had been a dangerous foe. Without him, Dawn's enemies would be much weaker. Lannisters are killing Lannisters. How sweet! What became of the dwarf? He's fled, Sir Aerys said. Cersei is offering a lordship to whosoever delivers her his head. In a tiled inner courtyard, half buried by the drifting sands, he pushed her back against a column to kiss her, and his hand went to her breast. He kissed her long and hard, and would have pushed her skirts up, but Ariane broke free of him, laughing. I see that queen-making excites you, sir, but we have no time for this. Later, I promise you. She touched his cheek. Did you meet with any problems? Only Tristane. He wanted to sit beside Marcella's bedside and play Savassi with her. He had red spots when he was four, I told you. You can only get it once. You should have put out that Marcella was suffering from grayscale. That would have kept him well away. Ah, the boy, perhaps, but not your father's maester. Callia, she said. Did he try to see her? Not once. I described the red spots on her face. He said that nothing could be done until the disease had run its course, and gave me a pot of salve to
to soothe her itching. No one under ten ever died of red spots, but it could be mortal in adults, and Maester Calliot had never suffered it as a child. Ariane learned that when she suffered her own spots at eight. Good, she said. And the handmaid, is she convincing? Uh, from a distance. The imp picked her for this purpose, over many girls of nobler birth. Masilla helped her curl her hair and painted the dots on her face herself. They are distant kin. Lannisport teams with Lannies, Lannettes, Lantels, and lesser Lannisters, and half of them have that yellow hair. Dressed in Marcella's bedrobe, with the maester's salve smeared across her face, she might even have fooled me in a dim light. It was a deal harder to find a man to take my place. Dake is closest to my height, but he's too fat, so I put Rolder in my armor and told him to keep his visor down. The man is three inches shorter than I am, but perhaps no one will notice if I'm not there to stand beside him. He'll keep to Marcella's chambers in any case. All we need is a few days. By that time the princess will be beyond my father's reach. Where? He drew her close and nuzzled at her neck. It's time you told me the rest of the plan, don't you think? She laughed, pushing him away. No, it's time we rode. The moon had crowned the moon maid as they set out from the dust-dry ruins of Shandystone, striking south and west. Ariane and Sir Ares took the lead, with Marcella on a frisky mare between them. Garen followed close behind, with spotted silver, whilst her two Dornish knights took the rear. We are seven, Ariane realized as they rode. She had not thought of that before, but it seemed a good omen for their cause. Seven riders on their way to glory. One day the singers will make us all immortal. Dre had wanted a larger party, but that might have attracted unwelcome attention, and every additional man doubled the risk of betrayal. That much my father taught me, at the least. Even when he was younger and stronger, Doran Martell had been a cautious man, much given to silences and secrets. It is time he put his burdens down, but I will suffer no slights to his honor or his person. She would return him to his water gardens, to live out what years remained him, surrounded by laughing children and the smell of limes and oranges. Yes, and Quentin can keep him company. Once I crown Marcella and free the sand snakes, old Dorn will rally to my banners. The Ironwoods might declare for Quentin, but alone they were no threat. If they went over to Tommen and the Lannisters, she would have Darkstar destroy them root and branch. I am tired, Marcella complained, after several hours in the saddle. Is it much farther? Where are we going? Our Princess Ariane is taking your grace to a place where you'll be safe, Sir Ares assured her. It's a long journey, Ariane said, but it will go easier once we reach the green blood. Some of Garen's people will meet us there, the orphans of the river. They live on boats and pull them up and down the green blood and its vessels, fishing and picking fruit, doing whatever work needs doing. Aye, Garen called out cheerfully, and we sing and play and dance on water and know much and more of healing. My mother is the best midwife in Westeros, 
and my father can cure warts. How can you be orphans if you have mothers and fathers? The girl asked. They are the Roina, Ariane explained, and their mother was the River Roine. Masella did not understand. I thought you were the Roina. You Dornishmen, I mean. We are in part, your grace. Namira's blood is in me, along with that of Moore's Martel, the Dornish lord she married. On the day they went, Namira fired her ships, so her people would understand that there could be no going back. Most were glad to see those flames, for their voyagings had been long and terrible before they came to Dorn, and many and more had been lost to storm, disease, and slavery. There were a few who mourned, however. They did not love this dry red land or its seven-faced god, so they clung to their old ways, hammered boats together from the hulks of the burned ships and became the orphans of the green blood. The mother in their songs is not our mother, but Mother Roin, whose waters nourish them from the dawn of days. I'd heard the Roiner had some turtle god, said Sir Ares. The old man of the river is the lesser god, said Garin. He was born from Mother River too, and fought the Crab King to win dominion over all who dwelt beneath the flowing waters. Oh, said Marcella, I understand you fought some mighty battles too, your grace, said Dre, in his most cheerful voice. It is said you show our brave Prince Tristane no mercy at the Savassi table. He always sets his squares up the same way, with all the mountains in the front and his elephants in the passes, said Marcella. So I send my dragon through to eat his elephants. Does your handmaid play the game as well? asked Dre. Rosamond? asked Marcella. No, I tried to teach her, but she says the rules were too hard. She is a Lannister as well, said Lady Silver. A Lannister of Lannisport, not a Lannister of Costly Rock. Her hair is the same colour as mine, but straight instead of curly. Rosamond doesn't truly favour me, but when she dresses up in my clothes, people who don't know us think she's me. You have done this before, then? Oh, yes. We traded places on this sea swift on the way to Bravas. Scepter Eglatine put brown dye in my hair. She said we were doing it as a game, but it was meant to keep me safe in case the ship was taken by my uncle Stannis. The girl was plainly growing tired, so Ariane called a halt. They watered the horses once again, rested for a bit, and had some cheese and fruit. Marcella split an orange with spotted silver, whilst Garen ate olives and spit the stones at Dre. Ariane had hoped to reach the river before the sun came up, but they had started much later than she'd planned, so they were still in the saddle when the eastern sky turned red. Dark Star cantered up beside her. Uh, princess, he said, I set a faster pace unless you mean to kill the child after all. We have no tents, and by day the sands are cruel. I know the sands as well as you do, sir, she told him. All the same, she did as he suggested. It was hard in their mounts, but better she should lose six horses than one princess. 
Soon enough the wind came gusting from the west, hot and dry and full of grit. Ariane drew her veil across her face. It was made of shimmering silk, pale green above and yellow below, the colors blending into one another. Small green pearls gave it weight and rattled softly against each other as she rode. I know why my princess wears a veil, Sir Eris said, as she was fastening it to the temples of her copper helm. Uh, elsewise her beauty would outshine the sun above. She had to laugh. No, your princess wears a veil to keep the glare out of her eyes and the sand out of her mouth. You should do the same, sir. She wondered how long her white knight had been polishing his ponderous gallantry. Sir Ares was pleasant company abed, but wit and he were strangers. Her Dornish men covered their faces as she did, and spotted silver helped veil the little princess from the sun. But Sir Ares stayed stubborn. Before long the sweat was running down his face and his cheeks had taken on a rosy blush. A much longer and he will cook in those heavy clothes, she reflected. He would not be the first. In centuries past, many a host had come down from the prince's pass with banners streaming, only to wither and broil on the hot red Dornish sands. The arms of House Martel displayed the sun and spear, the Dornishman's two favoured weapons. The young dragon had once written in the boastful conquest of dawn, but of the two, the sun is more deadly. Thankfully, they did not need to cross the deep sands, but only a sliver of the drylands. When Ariane spied a hawk wheeling high above them against a cloudless sky, she knew the worst was behind them. Soon they came upon a tree. It was a gnarled and twisted thing, with as many thorns as leaves, of the sort called sand beggars, but it meant they were not far from water. We're almost there, your grace. Garen told Marcella, cheerfully, when they spied more sandbaggers up ahead, a thicket of them growing all around the dry bed of a stream. The sun was beating down like a fiery hammer, but it did not matter with their journey at its end. They stopped to water the horses again, drank deep from their skins, and wet their veils, then mounted for the last push. Within half a league they were riding over devil grass and past olive groves. Beyond a line of stony hills the grass grew greener and more lush, and there were lemon orchards, watered by a spider's web of old canals. Garen was the first to spy the river, glimmering green. He gave a shout and raced ahead. Ariane Martel had crossed the Mando once, when she had gone with three of the sand snakes to visit Tyene's mother. Compared to that mighty waterway, the green blood was scarcely worthy of the name of river. Yet it remained the life of dawn. It took its name from the murky green of its sluggish waters. But as they approached, the sunlight seemed to turn those waters gold. She had seldom seen a sweeter sight. The next part should be slow and simple, she thought. Up the green blood, and unto the vath, as far as a pole-boat can go. That would give her time enough to prepare Marcella for all that was to come. Beyond Vaith, the deep sands waited. They would need help from Sandstone and the Hell Halt to make that crossing, but she did not doubt that it would be forthcoming. 
The Red Viper had been fostered at Sandstone, and Prince Oberon's paramour, Ilaria Sand, was Lord Uller's natural daughter. Four of the Sand Snakes were his granddaughters. I will crown Marcella at the Hellholt and raise my banners there. They found the boat half a league downstream, hidden beneath the drooping branches of a great green willow. Lower roof and wider beam, the pole boats had hardly any draught to speak of. The young dragon had disparaged them as hovels built on rafts, but that was hardly fair. All but the poorest orphan boats were wonderfully carved and painted. This one was done in shades of green, with a curved wooden tiller shaped like a mermaid, and fish faces peering through her rails. Poles and ropes and jars of olive oil cluttered her decks. An iron lantern swung fore and aft. Ariane saw no orphans. Where is her crew? she wondered. Garen reined up beneath the willow. Wake up, you fish-eyed lagabeds, he called as he leapt down from the saddle. Your queen is here, and wants her royal welcome. Come up, come out, we'll have some songs and sweet wine. My mouth is set for— The door on the pole boat slammed open. Out into the sunlight stepped Ario Hota, long axe in hand. Garen jerked to a halt. Ariane felt as though an axe had caught her in the belly. It was not supposed to end this way. This was not supposed to happen. When she heard Dre say, There's the last face I hope to see. She knew she had to act. Away! she cried, vaulting back into the saddle. Eris, protect the princess! Hotar thumped the butt of his long axe upon the deck. Behind the ornate rails of the pole boat, a dozen guardsmen rose, armed with throwing spears or crossbows. Still more appeared atop the cabin. Eel, my princess, the captain called. Else we must slay all but the child and yourself, by your father's word. Princess Marcella sat motionless upon her mount. Garen backed slowly from the pole boat, his hands in the air. Grey unbuckled his sword belt. Yielding seems to be the wisest course, he called to Ariane, as his sword thumped to the ground. No! Sir Ares Oakhart put his horse between Ariane and the crossbows, his blade a shining silver in his hand. He had unslung his shield and slipped his left arm through the straps. You will not take her whilst I still draw breath. You reckless fool, was all that Ariane had time to think. What do you think you're doing? Darkstar's laughter rang out. Are, are you blind or stupid, Ocott? There are too many. Uh, put up your sword. Uh, do as he says, Sir Ares, Dre urged. We are taken, sir. Ariane might have called out. Your death will not free us. If you love your princess, yield. But when she tried to speak, the words caught in her throat. Sir Ares Oakheart gave her one last longing look, then put his golden spurs into his horse and charged. He rode headlong for the pole boat, his white cloak streaming behind him. Ariane Martel had never seen anything half so gallant or half so stupid. No! she shrieked, 
but she had found her tongue too late. A crossbow thrummed, then another. Hotar bellowed a command. At such close range, the white knight's armor had as well been made of parchment. The first bolt punched right through his heavy oaken shield, pinning it to his shoulder. The second grazed his temple. A thrown spear took Sir Ares' mount in the flank, yet still the horse came on, staggering as he hit the gangplank. No! Some girl was shouting. Some foolish little girl. No, please, this was not supposed to happen. She could hear Marcella shrieking too, her voice shrill with fear. Sir Ares' longsword slashed right and left, and two spearmen went down. His horse reared and kicked a crossbowman in the face as he was trying to reload, but the other crossbowmen were firing, feathering the big courser with their quarrels. The bolts hit home so hard they knocked the horse sideways. His legs went out from under him and sent him crashing down the deck. Somehow Ares Oakhart leapt free. He even managed to keep hold of his sword. He struggled to his knees beside his dying horse and found Ario Hotar standing over him. The white knight raised his blade too slowly. Hotar's long axe took his right arm off of the shoulder, spun away spraying blood, and came flashing back again in a terrible two-handed slash that removed the head of Ares Oakheart and sent it spinning through the air. It landed amongst the reeds, and the green blood swallowed the red with a soft splash. Ariane did not remember climbing from her horse. Perhaps she'd fallen. She did not remember that either. Yet she found herself on her hands and feet in the sand, shaking and sobbing and retching up her supper. No, was all she could think. No, no one was to be hurt. It was all planned. I was so careful. She heard Ario Hotar roar. After him! He must not escape! After him! Marcella was on the ground, wailing, shaking, her pale face in her hands, blood streaming through her fingers. Ariane did not understand. Men were scrambling onto horses, whilst others swarmed over her and her companions. But none of it made sense. She had fallen into a dream, some terrible red nightmare. This cannot be real. I will wake soon and laugh at my night terrors. When they sought to bind her hands behind her back, she did not resist. One of the guardsmen jerked her to her feet. He wore her father's collars. Another bent and seized the throwing knife inside her boot, a gift from her cousin, Lady Nim. Eriohotar took it from the man and frowned at it. The prince said, I must bring you back to Sunspear, he announced. His cheeks and brow were freckled with the blood of Ares Hokart. I'm sorry, little princess. Ariane raised a tear-streaked face. How could he know? She asked the captain. I was so careful. How could he know? Someone told. Hotar shrugged. Someone always tells. Aria
Each night before sleep, she murmured her prayer into her pillow. Sir Gregor, it went. Dunstan, Rafe the Sweetling, Sir Illyn, Sir Merrin, Queen Cersei. She would have whispered the names of the phrase of the crossing, too, if she had known them. One day I'll know, she told herself, and then I'll kill them all. No whisper was too faint to be heard in the house of black and white. A child, said the kindly man one day, what are those names you whisper of a night? I don't whisper any names, she said. You lie, he said. All men lie when they are afraid. Some tell many lies, some but a few. Some have only one great lie. They tell so often that they almost come to believe it. Though some small part of them will always know that it is still a lie, and that will show upon their faces. Tell me of these names. She chewed her lip. Uh, the names don't matter. They do, the kindly man insisted. Tell me, a child. Uh, tell me, or we will turn you out, she heard. Uh, they're, they're people I hate. I want them to die. We hear many such prayers in this house. I know, said Arya. Jack and Hagar had granted three of her prayers once. All I had to do was whisper. Is that why you have come to us? The kindly man went on. To learn our arts so that you may kill these men you hate? Arya did not know how to answer that. Maybe. Then you have come to the wrong place. It is not for you to say who shall live and who shall die. That gift belongs to him of many faces. We are but his servants, sworn to do his will. Oh, Arya glanced at the statues that stood along the walls, candles glimmering around their feet. Oh, which god is he? Why, all of them, said the priest in black and white. He never told her his name. Neither did the waif, the little girl with the big eyes and hollow face, who reminded her of another little girl named Weasel. Like Arya, the waif lived below the temple, along with three acolytes, two serving men, and a cook named Uma. Uma liked to talk as she worked, but Arya could not understand a word she said. The others had no names, or did not choose to share them. One serving man was very old, his back bent like a bow. The second was red-faced with hair growing from his ears. She took them both for mutes until she heard them praying. The acolytes were younger. The eldest was her father's age. The other two could not have been much older than Sansa, who had been her sister. The acolytes wore black and white too, but their robes had no cowls and were black on the left side and white on the right. With the kindly man and the waif, it was the opposite. Arya was given servant's garb, a tunic of undyed wool, baggy breeches, linen small clothes, cloth slippers for her feet. Only the kindly man knew the common tongue. Who are you? he would ask her every day. Ah, no one, she would answer. She who had been Arya of House Stark, Arya Underfoot, Arya Horseface. She had been Arya and Weasel, too, 
and squab and salty. Nan the cupbearer, a grey mouse, a sheep, the ghost of Harrenhal. But not for true. Not in her heart of hearts. In there she was Arya of Winterfell, the daughter of Lord Eddard Stark and Lady Caitlin, who had once had brothers named Rob and Bran and Rickon, a sister named Sansa, a direwolf called Nymeria, a half-brother named Jon Snow. In there she was someone, but that was not the answer that he wanted. Without a common language, Arya had no way of talking to the others. She listened to them, though, and repeated the words she heard to herself as she went about her work. Though the youngest acolyte was blind, he had charge of the candles. He would walk the temple in soft slippers, surrounded by the murmurings of the old women who came each day to pray. Even without eyes, he always knew which candles had gone out. He has the scent to guide him, the kindly man explained, and the air is warmer where a candle burns. He told Arya to close her eyes and try it for herself. They prayed at dawn before they broke their fast, kneeling around the still black pool. Some days a kindly man led the prayer, other days it was the waif. Arya only knew a few words of bravassi, the ones that were the same in High Valerian. So she prayed her own prayer to the many-faced god, the one that went, Sir Gregor, Donson, Rafe the Sweetling, Sir Ilian, Sir Merin, Queen Cersei. She prayed in silence. If the many-faced god was a proper god, he would hear her. Worshippers came to the house of black and white every day. Most came alone and sat alone. They lit candles at one altar or another, prayed beside the pool, and sometimes wept. A few drank from the black cup and went to sleep. More did not drink. There were no services, no songs, no pans of praise to please the god. The temple was never full. From time to time a worshipper would ask to see a priest, and the kindly man or the waif would take him down into the sanctum. But that did not happen often. Thirty different guards stood along the walls, surrounded by their little lights. The weeping woman was the favorite of old women, Arya saw. Rich men preferred the lion of night, poor men the hooded wayfarer. Soldiers lit candles to Bacalon, the pale child. Sailors to Moon Pale Maiden and the Merlin King. The stranger had his shrine as well, though hardly anyone ever came to him. Most of the time only a single candle stood flickering at his feet. The kindly man said it did not matter. He has many faces and many ears to hear. The knoll on which the temple stood was honeycombed with passageways hewn from the rock. The priests and acolytes had their sleeping cells on the first level, Arya and the servants on the second. The lowest level was forbidden to all save the priests. That was where the holy sanctum lay. When she was not working, Arya was free to wander as she would amongst the vaults and storerooms, so long as she did not leave the temple nor descend to the third cellar. She found a room full of weapons and armor, ornate helms and curious old breastplates, 
long-swords, daggers and dirks, crossbows and tall spears with leaf-shaped heads. Another vault was crammed with clothing, thick furs and splendid silks in half a hundred colours, next to piles of foul-smelling rags and threadbare rough-spuns. There must be treasure chambers, too, Arya decided. She pictured stacks of golden plates, bags of silver coins, sapphires blue as the sea, ropes of fat green pearls. One day the kindly man came on her unexpectedly and asked what she was doing. She told him that she had gotten lost. You lie. Worse, you lie poorly. Who are you? Hat no one. Another lie, he sighed. Wiss would have beaten her bloody if he'd caught her in a lie, but it was different in the house of black and white. When she was helping in the kitchen, Uma would sometimes smack her with her spoon if she got in the way, but no one else ever raised a hand to her. They only raise their hands to kill, she thought. She got along well enough with the cook. Uma would slap a knife into her hand and point at an onion, and Arya would chop it. Uma would shove her toward a mound of dough, and Arya would knead it, until the cook said stop. Stop was the first bravassi word she learned. Uma would hand her a fish, and Arya would bone it and fillet it and roll it in the nuts the cook was crushing. The brackish waters that surrounded Bravas teemed with fish and shellfish, of every sort, the kindly man explained. A slow brown river entered the lagoon from the south, wandering through a wide expanse of reeds, tidal pools, and mudflats. Clams and cockles abounded thereabouts. Mussels and muskfish, frogs and turtles, mud crabs and leopard crabs, and climber crabs, red eels, black eels, striped eels, lampreys, and oysters, all made frequent appearances on the carved wooden table where the servants of the many-faced god took their meals. Some nights Uma spiced the fish with sea salt and cracked peppercorns, or cooked the eels with chopped garlic. Once in a great while the cook would even use some saffron. Hot pie would have liked it here, Arya thought. Supper was her favorite time. It had been a long while since Arya had gone to sleep every night with a full belly. Some nights the kindly man would allow her to ask him questions. Once she asked him why the people who came to the temple always seemed so peaceful. Back home people were scared to die. She remembered how that pimply squire had wept when she stabbed him in the belly, and the way Sir Amory Lorch had begged when the goat had him thrown in the bear pit. She remembered the village by the god's eye and the way the villagers shrieked and screamed and whimpered whenever the tickler started asking after gold. Death is not the worst thing, the kindly man replied. It is his gift to us, an end to want and pain. On the day that we are born, the many-faced God sends each of us a dark angel to walk through life beside us. When our sins and our sufferings grow too great to be borne, the angel takes us by the hand to lead us to the nightlands, where the stars burn ever bright. Those who come to drink from the black cup 
are looking for their angels. If they are afraid, the candles soothe them. When you smell our candles burning, what does it make you think of, my child? Uh, Winterfell, she might have said. I smell snow and smoke and pine needles. I smell the stables. I smell Hodar laughing and John and Rob battling in the yard and Sansa singing about some stupid lady fair. I smell the crypts where the stone kings sit. I smell hot bread baking. I smell the god's wood. I smell my wolf. I smell her fur almost as if she were still beside me. I, I don't smell anything, she said, to see what he would say. You lie, he said, but you may keep your secrets if you wish. Arya of House Stark? He only called her that when she displeased him. You know that you may leave this place. You are not one of us, not yet. You may go home any time you wish. You told me that if I left I couldn't come back. Just so. Those words made her sad. Sirio used to say that too, Arya remembered. He said it all the time. Sirio Forrell had taught her needlework and died for her. I don't want to leave. Then stay. But remember, the house of black and white is not a home for orphans. All men must serve beneath this roof. Vola de Heres is how we say it here. Remain if you will, but know that we shall require your obedience, at all times and in all things. If you cannot obey, you must depart. I can obey. We shall see. She had other tasks beside helping Uma. She swept the temple floors. She served and poured at meals. She sorted piles of dead men's clothing, emptied their purses, and counted out stacks of queer coins. Every morning she walked beside the kindly man as he made his circuit of the temple to find the dead. Silent as a shadow, she would tell herself, remembering Syria. She carried a lantern with thick iron shutters. At each alcove she would open the shutter a crack to look for corpses. The dead were never hard to find. They came to the house of black and white, prayed for an hour or a day or a year, drank sweet, dark water from the pool, and stretched out on a stone bed behind one guard or another. They closed their eyes and slept, and never woke. The gift of the many-faced god takes myriad forms, the kindly man told her, but here it is always gentle. When they found a body he would say a prayer and make certain life had fled and Arya would fetch the serving men, whose task it was to carry the dead down to the vaults. There acolytes would strip and wash the bodies. The dead men's clothes and coins and valuables went into a bin for sorting. Their cold flesh would be taken to the lower sanctum, where only the priest could go. What happened in there, Arya was not allowed to know. Once, as she was eating her supper, a terrible suspicion seized hold of her, and she put down her knife and stared suspiciously at a slice of pale white meat. The kindly man saw the horror on her face. It is pork, 
child, he told her. Only pork? Her bed was stone and reminded her of Harrenhal and the bed she'd slept in when scrubbing steps for Weiss. The mattress was stuffed with rags instead of straw, which made it lumpier than the one she'd had at Harrenhal, but less scratchy too. She was allowed as many blankets as she wished, thick woolen blankets, red and green and plaid, and her cell was hers alone. She kept her treasures there, the silver fork and floppy hat and fingerless gloves given her by the sailors on the Titan's daughter, her dagger, boots and belt, her small store of coins, the clothes she had been wearing, and needle. Though her duties left her little time for needlework, she practiced when she could, dueling with her shadow by the light of a blue candle. One night the waif happened to be passing and saw Arya at her sword-play. The girl did not say a word, but the next day the kindly man walked Arya back to her cell. "'You need to rid yourself of all this,' he said of her treasures. Arya felt stricken. "'They're mine!' And who are you? No one. He picked up her silver fork. This belongs to Arya of House Stark. All these things belong to her. There is no place for them here. There is no place for her. Hers is too proud a name, and we have no room for pride. We are servants here. I serve, she said, wounded. She liked the silver fork. You play at being a servant, but in your heart you are a lord's daughter. You have taken other names, but you wore them as lightly as you might wear a gown. Under them was always Arya. I don't wear gowns. You can't fight in a stupid gown. Why would you wish to fight? Are you some bravo, strutting through the alleys, spoiling for blood? He sighed. Before you drink from the cold cup, you must offer up all you are to him of many faces, your body, your soul, yourself. If you cannot bring yourself to do that, you must leave this place. The iron coin has paid your passage here. From this point, you must pay your own way, and the cost is dear. I don't have any gold. What we offer cannot be bought with gold. The cost is all of you. Men take many paths through this veil of tears and pain. Ours is the hardest. Few are made to walk it. It takes uncommon strength of body and spirit, and a heart both hard and strong. Uh, I have a hole where my heart should be, she thought and nowhere else to go. I'm strong, as strong as you. I'm hard. You believe this is the only place for you? It was as if he'd heard her thoughts. You are wrong in that. You would find a softer service in the household of some merchant. You would sooner be a courtesan and have songs sung of your beauty. Speak the word, and we will send you to the black pearl, or the daughter of the dusk. You will sleep on rose petals, and wear silken skirts that rustle when you walk, 
and great lords will beggar themselves for your maiden's blood. Or if it is marriage and children you desire, tell me, and we shall find a husband for you. Some honest apprentice boy, a rich old man, a seafarer, whatever you desire. She wanted none of that. Wordless, she shook her head. Is it Westeros you dream of, child? Luco Prestaine's Lady Bright leaves upon the morrow for Gulltown, Duskendale, King's Landing, and Tyrosh. Shall we find you passage on her? I only just came from Westeros. Sometimes it seemed a thousand years since she had fled King's Landing, and sometimes it seemed like only yesterday. But she knew she could not go back. I'll go, if you don't want me. But I won't go there. My wants do not matter, said the kindly man. It may be that the many-faced God has led you here to be his instrument. And when I look at you, I see a child. And worse, a girl child. Many have served him of many faces through the centuries, but only a few of his servants have been women. Women bring life into the world. We bring the gift of death. No one can do both. He's trying to scare me away, Arya thought, the way he did with a worm. I don't care about that. You should. Stay, and the many-faced God will take your ears, your nose, your tongue. He will take your sad gray eyes that have seen so much. He will take your hands, your feet, your arms and legs, your private parts. He will take your hopes and dreams, your loves and hates. Those who enter his service must give up all that makes them who they are. Can you do that? He cupped her chin and gazed deep into her eyes, so deep it made her shiver. No, he said, I do not think you can. Ira knocked his hand away. I could if I wanted to. So says Arya of her stock, eater of grave worms. I can give up anything I want. He gestured at her treasures. Then start with these. That night after supper, Arya went back to her cell and took off her robe and whispered her names. But sleep refused to take her. She tossed on her mattress, stuffed with rags, gnawing on her lip. She could feel the hole inside her where her heart had been. In the black of night she rose again, donned the clothes she'd worn from Westeros, and buckled on her sword belt. Needle hung over one hip, her dagger from the other. With her floppy hat on her head, her fingerless gloves tucked into her belt, and her silver fork in one hand, she went stealing up the steps. There is no place here for Arya of House Stark, she was thinking. Arya's place was Winterfell, only Winterfell was gone. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. She had no pack, though. They had killed her pack, Sir Ilian and Sir Merin and the Queen, and when she tried to make a new one, all of them ran off, Hot Pie and Gendry and Yorin, 
and lummy green hands, even Harwin, who had been her father's man. She shoved through the doors, out into the night. It was the first time she had been outside since entering the temple. The sky was overcast, and fog covered the ground like a frayed grey blanket. Off to her right she heard paddling from the canal. Bravos, the secret city, she thought. The name seemed very apt. She crept down the steep steps to the covered dock, the mist swirling round her feet. It was so foggy she could not see the water, but she heard it lapping softly at stone pilings. In the distance, a light glowed through the gloom. The night fire at the Temple of the Red Priest, she thought. At the water's edge she stopped, the silver fork in hand. It was real silver, solid through and through. It's not my fork. It was Salty that he gave it to. She tossed it underhand, heard the soft plop as it sank below the water. Her floppy hat went next, then the gloves. They were Salty's too. She emptied her pouch into her palm, five silver stags, nine copper stars, some pennies and half-pennies and groats. She scattered them across the water. Next, her boots. They made the loudest splash. Her dagger followed, the one she'd gotten off the archer, who begged the hound for mercy. Her sword belt went into the canal, her cloak, tunic, breeches, small clothes, all of it, all but needle. She stood on the end of the dock, pale and goose-fleshed and shivering in the fog. In her hand, needles seemed to whisper to her. Stick them with a pointy end, it said, and don't tell Sansa. Micken's mark was on the blade. It's just a sword. If she needed a sword, there were a hundred under the temple. Needle was too small to be a proper sword. It was hardly more than a toy. She had been a stupid little girl when John had it made for her. It's just a sword, she said aloud this time. But it wasn't. Needle was Rob and Bran and Rickon, her mother and her father, even Sansa. Needle was Winterfell's grey walls and the laughter of its people. Needle was the summer snows, old Nan's stories, the heart-tree with its red leaves and scary face, the warm, earthy smell of the glass gardens, the sound of the north wind rattling the shutters of her room. Needle was John Snow's smile. He used to mess my hair, and he called me Little Sister, she remembered, and suddenly there were tears in her eyes. Polliver had stolen the sword from her when the mountain's men took her captive but when she and the hound walked into the inn at the crossroads, there it was. The guards wanted me to have it. Not the seven, nor him of many faces, but her father's guards, the old guards of the north. The many-faced guard can have the rest, she thought, but he can't have this. She padded up the steps as naked as her name-day, clutching needle. Halfway up, one of the stones rocked beneath her feet. Arya knelt and dug around its edges with her fingers. It would not move at first, but she persisted, picking at the crumbling mortar with her nails. Finally the stone shifted. She grunted and got both hands in and pulled. 
a crack opened before her. You'll be safe here, she told Needle. No one will know where you are but me. She pushed the sword and sheath behind the step, then shoved the stone back into place so it looked like all the other stones. As she climbed back to the temple, she counted steps so she would know where to find the sword again. One day she might have need of it. One day, she whispered to herself. She never told the kindly man what she had done, yet he knew. The next night he came to her cell after supper. Child, he said, come sit with me. I have a tale to tell you. What kind of tale? she asked, weary. The tale of our beginnings. If you would be one of us, you had best know who we are and how we came to be. Men may whisper of the faceless men of Bravas, but we are older than the secret city. Before the Titan rose, before the unmasking of Euthra, before the founding, we were. We have flowered in Bravas amongst these northern fogs, but we first took root in Valeria, amongst the wretched slaves who toiled in the deep mines beneath the fourteen flames that lit the freehold's nights of old. Most mines are dank and chilly places, cut from cold, dead stone. But the fourteen flames were living mountains with veins of molten rock and hearts of fire. So the mines of Ovalaria were always hot, and they grew hotter when the shafts were driven deeper, ever deeper. The slaves toiled in an oven, the rocks around them were too hot to touch. The air stank of brimstone and would sear their lungs as they breathed it. The soles of their feet would burn and blister, even through the thickest sandals. Sometimes, when they broke through a wall in search of gold, they would find steam instead, or boiling water, or molten rock. Certain shafts were cut so low that the slaves could not stand upright, but had to crawl or bend. And there were worms in that red darkness, too. Earthworms, she asked, frowning. Fireworms. Some say they are akin to dragons, for worms breathe fire, too. Instead of soaring through the sky, they bore through stone and soil. If the old tales can be believed, there were worms amongst the fourteen flames, even before the dragons came. The young ones are no larger than that skinny arm of yours, but they can grow to monstrous size and have no love for men. Did they kill the slaves? Burnt and blackened corpses were oft found in shafts where the rocks were cracked or full of holes. Yet still the mines drove deeper. Slaves perished by the score, but their masters did not care. Red gold and yellow gold and silver were reckoned to be more precious than the lives of slaves, for slaves were cheap in the old freehold. During war, the Valerians took them by the thousands. In times of peace, they bred them, though only the worst were sent down to die in the red darkness. Didn't the slaves rise up and fight? Uh, some did, he said. Revolts were common in the mines, but few accomplished much. 
the dragon lords of the old freehold were strong in sorcery, and lesser men defied them at their peril. The first faceless man was one who did. Who was he? Arya blurted, before she stopped to think. No one, he answered. Some say he was a slave himself. Others insist he was a freeholder's son, born of noble stock. Some will even tell you he was an overseer who took pity on his charges. The truth is, no one knows. Whoever he was, he moved amongst the slaves and would hear them at their prayers. Men of a hundred different nations labored in the mines, and each prayed to his own god in his own tongue. Yet all were praying for the same thing. It was release, they asked for, an end to pain. A small thing, and simple. Yet their gods made no answer, and their suffering went on. Are their gods all deaf? he wondered, until realization came upon him one night in the red darkness. All gods have their instruments, men and women who serve them, and help to work their will on earth. The slaves were not crying out to a hundred different gods, as it seemed, but to one god with a hundred different faces. And he was that god's instrument. That very night he chose the most wretched of the slaves, the one who had prayed most earnestly for release, and freed him from his bondage. The first gift had been given. Arya drew back from him. He killed the slave. That did not sound right. He should have killed the masters. He would bring the gift to them as well. But that is a tale for another day, one best shared with no one. He cocked his head. And who are you, child? No one. A lie. How do you know? Is it magic? A man does not need to be a wizard to know truth from falsehood? Not if he has eyes. You need only learn to read a face. Look at the eyes, the mouth, the muscles here at the corner of the jaw, and here, where the neck joins the shoulders. He touched her lightly with two fingers. Some liars blink, some stare, some look away, some lick their lips. Many cover their mouths just before they tell a lie, as if to hide their deceit. Other signs may be more subtle, but they are always there. A false smile and a true one may look alike, but they are as different as dusk from dawn. Can you tell dusk from dawn? Arya nodded, though she was not certain that she could. Then you can learn to see a lie, and once you do, no secret will be safe from you. Teach me. She would be no one, if that was what it took. No one had no holes inside her. She will teach you, said the kindly man, as a waif appeared outside her door. Starting with the tongue of Bravus, what use are you if you cannot speak or understand? and you shall teach her your own tongue. The two of you shall learn together, each from the other. 
Will you do this? Yes, she said, and from that moment she was a novice in the house of black and white. Her servant's garb was taken away, and she was given a robe to wear, a robe of black and white, as buttery soft as the old red blanket she'd once had at Winterfell. Beneath it she wore small clothes of fine white linen, and a black undertunic that hung down past her knees. Thereafter she and the waif spent their time together, touching things and pointing, as each tried to teach the other a few words of her own tongue. Simple words at first, cup and candle and shoe, and then harder words, then sentences. One Sirio Pharrell used to make Arya stand on one leg until she was trembling. Later, he sent her chasing after cats. She had danced the water dance on the limbs of trees, a stick sword in her hand. Those things had all been hard, but this was harder. Even sewing was more fun than tongues, she told herself, after a night when she had forgotten half the words she thought she knew, and pronounced the other half so badly that the waif had laughed at her. My sentences are as crooked as my stitches used to be. If the girl had not been so small and starved, Arya would have smashed her stupid face. Instead, she gnawed her lip. Too stupid to learn, and too stupid to give up. The common tongue came to the waif more quickly. One day at supper she turned to Arya and asked, Who are you? No one, Arya answered in bravosi. You lie, said the waif. You must lie gooder. Arya laughed. <laughs> A gooder, <laughs> you mean better, stupid. Better, stupid, I will show you. The next day they began the lying game, asking questions of one another, taking turns. Sometimes they would answer truly, sometimes they would lie. The questioner had to try and tell what was true and what was false. The waif always seemed to know. Arya had to guess. Most of the time she guessed wrong. How many years have you? The waif asked her once in the common tongue. Ten, said Arya, and raised ten fingers. She thought she was still ten. It was hard to know for certain. The Bravasi counted days differently than they did in Westeros. For all she knew, her name day had come and gone. The waif nodded. Arya nodded back, and in her best Bravasi said, How many years have you? The waif showed ten fingers, then ten again, yet again, then six. Her face remained as smooth as still water. She can't be six and thirty, Arya thought. She's a little girl. You're lying, she said. The waif shook her head and showed her once again, ten and ten and ten and six. She said the words for six and thirty and made Arya say them too. The next day she told the kindly man what the waif had claimed. Uh, she did not lie, the priest said, chuckling. The one you call waif is a woman grown, who has spent her life serving him of many faces. She gave him all she was, all she ever might have been, all the lives that were within her. Arya bit her lip. Will I be like her? No, he said, not unless you wish it. It is the poisons that have made her, as you see her. Poisons, 
She understood then. Every evening after prayer, the waif emptied a stone flagon into the waters of the black pool. The waif and kindly man were not the only servants of the many-faced god. From time to time, others would visit the house of black and white. The fat fellow had fierce black eyes, a hooked nose, and a wide mouth full of yellow teeth. The stern face never smiled. His eyes were pale, his lips full and dark. The handsome man had a beard a different color every time she saw him, and a different nose. But he was never less than comely. Those three came most often, but there were others. The squinter, the lordling, the starved man. One time the fat fellow and the squinter came together. Uma sent Arya to pour for them. When you are not pouring, you must stand as still as if you've been carved of stone, the kindly man told her. Can you do that? Yes. Before you can learn to move, you must learn to be still. Sirio Farrell had taught her long ago at King's Landing, and she had. She had served as Roose Bolton's cupbearer at Harrenhal, and he would flay you if you spilled his wine. Good, the kindly man said. It would be best if you were blind and deaf as well. You may hear things, but you must let them pass in one ear and out the other. Do not listen. Ari heard much and more that night, but almost all of it was in the tongue of Bravas, and she hardly understood one word in ten. Still as stone, she told herself. The hardest part was struggling not to yawn. Before the night was done, her wits were wandering. Standing there with a flagon in her hands, she dreamed she was a wolf, running free through a moonlit forest with a great pack howling at her heels. Are the other men all priests? she asked the kindly man the next morning. Were those their real faces? What do you think, child? She thought, no. Is Jaken Hagar a priest, too? Do you know if Jaken will be coming back to Bravas? Who? he said, all innocence. Jaken Hagar. He gave me the iron coin. I know no one by this name, child. I asked him how he changed his face, and he said it was no harder than taking a new name, if you knew the way. Did he? Will you show me how to change my face? If you wish. He cupped her chin in his hand and turned her head. Puff up your cheeks and stick out your tongue. Arya puffed up her cheeks and stuck out her tongue. There, your face is changed. That's not how I meant. Jake can use magic. All sorcery comes at a cost, child. Years of prayer and sacrifice and study are required to work a proper glamour. Years, she said dismayed. If it were easy, all men would do it. You must walk before you run. Why use a spell when mummer's tricks will serve? I don't know any mummer's tricks either. Then practice making faces. Beneath your skin are muscles. Learn to use them. It is your face, your cheeks, your lips, your ears. Smiles and scowls should not come upon you like sudden squalls. A smile should be a servant and come only when you call it. Learn to rule your face. Uh, show me how. Puff up your cheeks, she did. Lift your eyebrows. No, no, higher. She did that too. 
Good. See how long you can hold that. It will not be long. Try it again on the morrow. You will find a mirish mirror in the vaults. Train before it for an hour every day. Eyes, nostrils, cheeks, ears, lips. Learn to rule them all. He cupped her chin. Who are you? No one. A lie. A sad little lie, child. She found the mirish mirror the next day, and every morn and every night she sat before it, with a candle on each side of her, making faces. Rule your face, she told herself, and you can lay. Soon thereafter the kindly man commanded her to help the other acolytes prepare the corpses. The work was not near as hard as scrubbing steps for Weiss. Sometimes, if the corpse was big or fat, she would struggle with the weight. But most of the dead were old dried bones in wrinkled skins. Aria would look at them as she washed them, wondering what brought them to the black pool. She remembered a tale she had heard from old Nan, about how, sometimes during a long winter, men who'd lived beyond their years would announce that they were going hunting, and their daughters would weep and their sons would turn their faces to the fire, she could hear old Nan saying. But no one would stop them, or ask what game they meant to hunt, with the snow so deep and the cold wind howling. She wondered what the old Bravasi had told their sons and daughters, before they set off for the house of black and white. The moon turned and turned again, though Arya never saw it. She served, washed the dead, made faces at the mirrors, learned the bravasi tongue, and tried to remember that she was no one. One day the kindly man sent for her. Your accent is a horror, he said. But you have enough words to make your once understood, after a fashion. It is time that you left us for a while. The only way you will ever truly master our tongue is if you speak it every day from dawn to dusk. You must go. When? she asked him. Where? Now, he answered. Beyond these walls you will find the hundred isles of Bravas in the sea. You have been taught the words for mussels, cockles, and clams, have you not? Yes, she repeated them in her best bravasi. Her best bravasi made him smile. It will um, serve. Along the wharfs below the drowned town you will find a fishmonger named Brusco, a good man with a bad back. He has need of a girl to push his barrow and sell his cockles, clams, and mussels to the sailors off the ships. You shall be that girl. Do you understand? Yes. And when Brusco asks, who are you? No one. No, that will not serve outside this house. She hesitated. I could be salty from salt pans. As salty is known to Tanesio Terris and the men of the Titan's daughter, you are marked by the way you speak, so you must be some girl of Westeros, but a different girl, I think. She bit her lip. Could I be Cat? Cat, he considered. Yes, Brathos is full of cats. One more will not be noticed. You are Cat, an orphan of King's Landing. She had visited White Harbor with her father twice, 
but she knew King's Landing better. Just so. Your father was oar master on a galley. When your mother died, he took you off to sea with him. Then he died as well, and his captain had no use for you. So he put you off the ship in Bravus. And what was the name of the ship? Nemeria, she said at once. That night she left the house of black and white. A long iron knife rode on her right hip, hidden by her cloak, a patched and faded thing of the sort an orphan might wear. Her shoes pinched her toes, and her tunic was so threadbare that the wind cut right through it. But Bravus lay before her. The night air smelled of smoke and salt and fish. The canals were crooked, the alleys crookeder. Men gave her curious looks as she went past, and beggar children called out words she could not understand. Before long, she was completely lost. Sir Gregor, she chanted, as she crossed the stone bridge supported by four arches. From the center of its span, she could see the mass of ships in the Ragman's Harbor. Donson, Rafe the Sweetling, Sir Ilian, Sir Merrin, Queen Cersei. Rain began to fall. Arya turned her face up to let the raindrops wash her cheeks. So happy she could dance. Valar Magolus, she said. Valar Magolus. Valar Magolus. Elaine. As the rising sun came streaming through the windows, Elaine sat up in bed and stretched. Gretchel heard her stir, and rose at once to fetch her bedrobe. The rooms had grown chilly during the night. It will be worse when winter has us in its grip, she thought. Winter will make this place as cold as any tomb. Elaine slipped into the robe and belted it about her waist. The fire is almost out, she observed. Put another log on, if you would. As my lady wishes the old woman said. Elaine's apartments in the Maiden's Tower were larger and more lavish than the little bedchamber where she'd been kept when Lady Lysa was alive. She had a dressing-room and a privy of her own now, and a balcony of carved white stone that looked off across the vale. Whilst Gretchel was tending to the fire, Elaine padded barefoot across the room and slipped outside. The stone was cold beneath her feet, and the wind was blowing fiercely, as it always did up here, but the view made her forget all that for half a heartbeat. Maidens was the easternmost of the Iris Seven Slender Towers, so she had the veil before her, her forests and rivers and fields all hazy in the morning light. The way the sun was hitting the mountains made them look like solid gold. So lovely. The snow-clad summit of the giant's lance loomed above her, an immensity of stone and ice that dwarfed the castle perched upon its shoulder. Icicles twenty feet long draped the lip of the precipice where Lisa's tears fell in summer. A falcon soared above the frozen waterfall, blue wings spread wide against the morning sky. Would that I had wings as well. She rested her hands on the carved stone balustrade and made herself peer over the edge. She could see sky 
six hundred feet below, and the stone steps carved into the mountain, the winding way that led past snow and stone all the way down to the valley floor. She could see the towers and keeps of the gates of the moon, as small as a child's toys. Around the walls the hosts of Lords Declarant were stirring, emerging from their tents like ants from an anthill. If only they were truly ants, she thought. We could step on them and crush them. Young Lord Hunter and his levies had joined the others two days past. Nestor Royce had closed the gates against them, but he had fewer than three hundred men in his garrison. Each of the Lords Declarant had brought a thousand, and there were six of them. Elaine knew their names as well as her own. Benadar Belmore, Lord of Strongsong, Simon Templeton, the Knight of Nine Stars, Horton Redfort, Lord of Redfort, Anya Wainwood, Lady of Iron Oaks, Gilwood Hunter, called Young Lord Hunter by all and sundry, Lord of Longbow Hall, and Yon Royce, mightiest of them all, the redoubtable Bronze Yon, Lord of Runestone, Nestor's cousin, and the chief of the senior branch of House Royce. The six had gathered at Runestone after Lysa Aaron's fall, and there made a pact together, vowing to defend Lord Robert, the Vale, and one another. Their declaration made no mention of the Lord Protector, but spoke of misrule that must be ended, and of false friends and evil counsellors as well. A cold gust of wind blew up her legs. She went inside to choose a gown to break her fast in. Peter had given her his late wife's wardrobe, a wealth of silks, satins, velvets, and furs, far beyond anything she had ever dreamed, though the great bulk of it was far too large for her. Lady Eliza had grown very stout during her long succession of pregnancies, stillbirths, and miscarriages. A few of the oldest gowns had been made for young Lysa Tully of River Run, however, and others Gretchel had been able to alter to fit Elaine, who was almost as long of leg at three and ten as her aunt had been at twenty. This morning her eye was caught by a party-coloured gown of Tully red and blue, lined with vair. Gretchel helped her slide her arms into the belled sleeves and laced her back, then brushed and pinned her hair. Elaine had darkened it again last night before she went to bed. The wash her aunt had given her changed her own rich auburn into Elaine's burnt brown, but it was seldom long before the red began creeping back at the roots. And what must I do when the dye runs out? The wash had come from Tyrish, across the narrow sea. As she went down to break her fast, Elaine was struck again by the stillness of the area. There was no quieter castle in all the Seven Kingdoms. The servants here were few and old, and kept their voices down so as not to excite the young lord. There were no horses on the mountain, no hounds to bark and growl, no knights training in the yard. Even the footsteps of the guards seemed strangely muffled as they walked the pale stone halls. She could hear the wind moaning and sighing round the towers, but that was all. When she had first come to Eri, there had been the murmur of Elisa's tears as well, but the waterfall was frozen now. Gretchel said it would stay silent till the spring.
she found Lord Robert alone in the morning hall, above the kitchens, pushing a wooden spoon listlessly through a big bowl of porridge and honey. I wanted eggs, he complained when he saw her. I wanted three eggs, boiled, soft, and some back bacon. They had no eggs, no more than they had bacon. The area's granaries held sufficient oats and corn and barley to feed them for a year, but they depended on a bastard girl named Maya Stone to bring fresh foodstuffs up from the valley floor. With the Lord's declarant encamped at the foot of the mountain, there was no way for Maya to get through. Lord Belmore, first of the six to reach the gates, had sent a raven to tell Littlefinger that no more food would go up to the area until he sent Lord Robert down. It was not quite a siege, not as yet, but it was the next best thing. You can have eggs when Maya comes, as many as you like, Elaine promised the little lordling. She'll bring eggs and butter and melons, all sorts of tasty things. The boy was unappeased. I wanted eggs today. Sweet Robin, there are no eggs, you know that. Please eat your porridge, it's very nice. She ate a spoonful of her own. Robert pushed his spoon across the bowl and back, but never brought it to his lips. I'm not hungry, he decided. I want to go back to bed. I never slept last night. I heard singing. Maester Coleman gave me dream wine, but I could still hear it. Elaine put down her spoon. If there had been singing, I should have heard it too. You had a bad dream, that's all. No, it wasn't a dream. Tears filled his eyes. Marillion was singing again. Your father says he's dead, but he isn't. He is. It frightened her to hear him talk like this. Bad enough that he is small and sickly. What if he is mad as well? Sweet Robin, he is. Marillion loved your lady mother too much and could not live with what he'd done to her. So he walked into the sky. Elaine had not seen the body, no more than Robert had, but she did not doubt the fact of the singer's death. He's gone, truly. But I hear him every night, even when I close the shutters and put a pillow on my head. Your father should have cut his tongue out. I told him to, but he wouldn't. He needed a tongue to confess. Be a good boy and eat your porridge, Elaine pleaded. Please, for me. I don't want porridge. Robert flung his spoon across the hall. It bounced off a hanging tapestry and left a smear of porridge upon a white silk moon. The Lord wants eggs. The Lord shall eat porridge and be thankful for it said Peter's voice behind them. Elaine turned and saw him in the doorway arch with Maester Coleman at his side. You should heed the Lord Protector, my lord, the maester said. Your lord's bannermen are coming up the mountain to pay you homage, so you will need all your strength. Robert rubbed his left eye with a knuckle. Send them away. I don't want them. If they come, I'll make them fly. You tempt me sorely, my lord, but I fear I promise them safe conduct, said Peter. In any case, it's too late to turn them back.
By now they may have climbed as far as stone. Why won't they leave us be? wailed Elaine. We never did them any harm. What do they want of us? Just uh, Lord Robert, him, and the veil. Peter smiled. There will be eight of them. Lord Nestor is showing them up, and they have Lynn Corbray with them. Serlin is not the sort of man to stay away when blood is in the offing. His words did little to soothe her fears. Lynn Corbray had slain almost as many men in duels as he had in battle. He had won his spurs during Robert's rebellion, she knew, fighting first against Lord John Aaron at the gates of Gulltown and later beneath his banners on the Trident, where he had cut down Prince Lewin of Dawn, a white knight of the King's Guard. Peter said that Prince Lewin had been sorely wounded by the time the tide of battle swept him to his final dance with Lady Forlorn, but added, That's not a point you'll want to raise with Corbray, though. Those who do are soon given a chance to ask Martel himself. The truth of it, down in the halls of hell. If even half of what she had heard from Lord Robert's guards were true, Lynn Corbray was more dangerous than all six of the Lord's declarant put together. Why is he coming? she asked. I thought the Corbrays were for you. Lord Lionel Corbray is well disposed toward my rule, said Peter. But his brother goes his own way, and the trident when their father fell wounded. It was Lynn who snatched up Lady Forlorn and slew the man who cut him down, whilst Lionel was carrying the old man back to the maesters in the rear. Lynn led his charge against the Dornishmen, threatening Robert's left, broke their lines to pieces, and slew Lewin Martell. So when old Lord Corbray died, he bestowed the lady upon his younger son. Lionel got his lands, his title, his castle, and all his coin, yet still feels he was cheated of his birthright. While Sir Lynn, well, he loves Lionel as much as he loves me. He wanted Lysa's hand for himself. I don't like Sir Lynn, Robert insisted. I won't have him here. You send him back down. I never said he could come, not here. The Eyrie is impregnable, Mother said. Your mother is dead, my lord, until your sixteenth name day. I rule the Eyrie. Peter turned to the stoop-backed serving woman, hovering near the kitchen steps. Mella, fetch his lordship a new spoon. He wants to eat his porridge. I do not let my porridge fly. This time, Robert flung the bowl, porridge and honey, and all. Peter Baelish ducked aside nimbly, but Maester Coleman was not so quick. The wooden bowl caught him square in the chest, and its contents exploded upward over his face and shoulders. He yelped in a most unmaester-like fashion, whilst Elaine turned to soothe the little lording, but too late. The fit was on him. A pitcher of milk went flying as his hand caught it, flailing. When he tried to rise, he knocked his chair backwards and fell on top of it. One foot caught Elaine in the belly, so hard it knocked the wind out of her. Oh, God, be good, she heard Peter say, disgusted. Gloves of porridge dotted Maester Coleman's face and hair as he knelt over his charge, murmuring soothing words. One gobbet crept slowly down his right cheek, like a lumpy, grey-brown tear. It is not so bad a spell as the last one, Elaine thought, 
trying to be hopeful. By the time the shaking stopped, two guards in sky-blue cloaks and silvery mail shirts had come at Peter's summons. Take him back to bed and leech him, the Lord Protector said, and the taller guardsman scooped the boy up in his arms. I could carry him myself, Elaine thought. He is no heavier than a doll. Coleman lingered a moment before following. Uh, my lord, this parley might best be left for another day. His lordship's spells have grown worse since Lady Lysa's death, more frequent and more violent. I bleed the child as often as I dare and mix him dream wine and milk of the poppy to help him sleep, but uh, he sleeps twelve hours a day, Peter said. I require him awake from time to time. The maester combed his fingers through his hair, dribbling globs of porridge on the floor. Lady Lysa would give his lordship her breast whenever he grew overwrought. Archmaester Ebros claims that mother's milk has many healthful properties. Is that your counsel, maester, that we find a wet nurse for the lord of the airy and defender of the vale? When shall we wean him? On his wedding day. <laughs> that way he can move directly from the nurse's nipple to his wife's. <laughs> lord Peter's laugh made it plain what he thought of that. No, I think not. I suggest you find another way. The boy is fond of sweets, is he not? Sweets, said Coleman. Sweets. Cakes and pies, jams and jellies, honey on the comb, perhaps a pinch of sweet sleep in his milk. Have you tried that? Just a pinch to calm him and stop his wretched shaking? A, a pinch, the apple in the maester's throat moved up and down as he swallowed. One small pinch, perhaps, yes, perhaps, not too much, not, not too often. Yes, I might try. A pinch, Lord Peter said, before you bring him forth to meet the lords. As you command, my lord. The maester hurried out, his chain clinking softly with every step. Father, Elaine asked when he was gone, Will you have a bowl of porridge to break your fast? I despise porridge. He looked at her with little fingers' eyes. I'd sooner break my fast with a kiss. A true daughter would not refuse her sire a kiss. So Elaine went to him and kissed him, a quick dry peck upon the cheek, and just as quickly stepped away. How dutiful! Little finger smiled with his mouth, but not his eyes. Well, I have other duties for you, as it happens. Tell the cook to mull some red wine with honey and raisins. Our guests will be cold and thirsty after their long climb. You are to meet them when they arrive and offer them refreshment. Wine, bread, and cheese. What sort of cheese is left to us? The sharp white and the stinky blue. The white. And you'd best change as well. Elaine looked down at her dress, the deep blue and rich dark red of Riveron. Is it too? It is too tolly. The Lord's declarant will not be pleased by the sight of my bastard daughter prancing about in my dead wife's clothes. Choose something else. Need I remind you to avoid sky blue and cream? No. Sky blue and cream were the colours of House Erin. Eight, you said. 
Bronzion is one of them? The only one who matters. Bronzion knows me, she reminded him. He was a guest at Winterfell when his son rode north to take the black. She had fallen wildly in love with Sir Waymar, she remembered dimly, but that was a lifetime ago, when she was a stupid little girl. And that was not the only time Lord Roy saw. He saw Sansa Stark again at King's Landing during the Hand's Tourney. Peter put his finger under his chin. That Royce glimpsed this pretty face, I do not doubt, but it was one face in a thousand. A man fighting in a tourney has more to concern himself than some child in a crowd. And at Winterfell, Sansa was a little girl with auburn hair, my daughter as a maiden tall and fair, and her hair is chestnut. Men see what they expect to see, Elaine. He kissed her nose. Have Maddie lay a fire in the solar. I shall receive our Lord's declarant there. Not the high hall? No. Gods forbid they glimpse me near the high seat of the errands. They might think I mean to sit in it. Cheeks born so low as mine must never aspire to such lofty cushions. The solar? She should have stopped with that, but the words came tumbling out of her. If you gave them Robert. And the veil? They have the veil. Oh, much of it, that's true. Not all, however. I'm well loved in Gulltown, and have some lordly friends of mine own as well. Grafton, Lindley, Lionel Corbury, though I grant you they're no match for the Lord Declarant. Still, where would you have us go, Elaine? Back to my mighty stronghold on the fingers? She had thought about that. Geoffrey gave you Harrenhal. You are lord in your own right there. By title. I need a great seat to marry Lysa, and the Lannisters were not about to grant me Casterly Rock. Yes, but the castle is yours. Ah, and what a castle it is. Cavernous halls and ruined towers, ghosts and draughts, ruinous to heat, impossible to garrison, and there's that small matter of a curse. Curses are only in songs and stories. That seemed to amuse him. As someone made a song about Gregor Clegane dying of a poisoned spear thrust, or about the cell swords before him, whose limbs Sir Gregor removed a joint at a time, that one took the castle from Sir Amory Lorch, who received it from Lord Tywin. A bear killed one, your dwarf the other. Lady Wentz died as well, I hear. Luston, Strongs, Haraways, Harrenhal has withered every hand to touch it. Then give it to Lord Frey. Peter laughed. <laughs> Perhaps I shall, or better still, to our sweet Cersei. Though I should not speak harshly of her, she is sending me some splendid tapestries. Isn't that kind of her? The mention of the Queen's name made her stiffen. She's not kind, she scares me. If she should learn where I am, I might have to remove her from the game sooner than I'd planned. Providing she does not remove herself first. Peter teased her with a little smile. In the game of thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you plan for them. Mark that well, Elaine. It's a lesson that Cersei Lannister still has yet to learn. Now, uh, don't you have some duties to perform? She did indeed. She saw to the mulling of the wine first, 
found a suitable wheel of sharp white cheese, and commanded the cook to bake bread enough for twenty, in case the Lord's declarant brought more men than expected. Once they eat our bread and salt, they are our guests and cannot harm us. The Freyres had broken all the laws of hospitality when they had murdered her lady mother and her brother the twins. But she could not believe that a lord as noble as Jan Royce would ever stoop to do the same. The Solar next. Its floor was covered by a mirish carpet, so there was no need to lay down rushes. Elaine asked two serving men to erect the trestle table and bring up eight of the heavy oak and leather chairs. For a feast, she would have placed one at the head of the table, one at the foot, and three along each side, but this was no feast. She had the men arrange six chairs on one side of the table, two on the other. By now the Lord's declarant might have climbed as far as snow. It took most of the day to make the climb, even on muleback. A foot, most men took several days. It might be that the lords would talk late into the night. They would need fresh candles. After Maddie laid the fire, she sent her down to find the scented beeswax candles Lord Waxley had given Lady Lysa when he sought to win her hand. Then she visited the kitchens once again, to make certain of the wine and bread. All seemed well in hand, and there was still time enough for her to bathe and wash her hair and change. There was a gown of purple silk that gave her pause, and another of dark blue velvet, slashed with silver, that would have woken all the colour in her eyes. But in the end she remembered that Elaine was after all a bastard, and must not presume to dress above her station. The dress she picked was lamb's wool, dark brown and simply cut, with leaves and vines embroidered around the bodice, sleeves, and hem in golden thread. It was modest and becoming, though scarce richer than something a servant girl might wear. Peter had given her all of Lady Lysa's jewels as well, and she tried on several necklaces, but they all seemed ostentatious. In the end she chose a simple velvet ribbon in autumn gold. When Gretchel fetched her Lysa's silvered looking-glass, the colour seemed just perfect with Elaine's mess of dark brown hair. Lord Royce will never know me, she thought. Why, I hardly know myself. Feeling near as bold as Peter Baelish, Elaine Stone donned her smile and went down to meet their guests. The area was the only castle in the Seven Kingdoms where the main entrance was underneath the dungeons. Steep stone steps crept up the mountainside past the way castles, stone and snow, but they came to an end at Sky. The final six hundred feet of the ascent were vertical, forcing would-be visitors to dismount their mules and make a choice. They could ride the swaying wooden basket that was used to lift supplies, or clamber up a rocky chimney using handholds carved into the rock. Lord Redfort and Lady Wainwood, the most elderly of the Lord's declarant, chose to be drawn up by the winch after which the basket was lowered once more for fat Lord Belmore. The other lords made the climb. Elaine met them in the crescent chamber beside a warming fire, where she welcomed them in Lord Robert's name, and served them bread and cheese and cups of hot mulled wine in silver cups. 
Peter had given her a roll of arms to study, so she knew their heraldry, if not their faces. The red castle was red fort, plainly. A short man with a neat grey beard and mild eyes. Lady Anya was the only woman amongst the lord's declarant, and wore a deep green mantle with the broken wheel of Wainwood picked out in beads of jet. Six silver bells on purple. That was Belmore. Pear-bellied and round of shoulder. His beard was a ginger-grey horror, sprouting from a multiplicity of chins. Simon Templeton's, by contrast, was black and sharply pointed. A beak of a nose on icy blue eyes made the knight of nine stars look like some elegant bird of prey. His doublet displayed nine black stars within a golden saltire. Young Lord Hunter's ermine cloak confused her till she spied the brooch that pinned it. Five silver arrows fanned. Elaine would have put his age closer to fifty than to forty. His father had ruled at Longbow Hall for nigh on sixty years, only to die so abruptly that some whispered the new lord had hastened his inheritance. Hunter's cheeks and nose were red as apples, which bespoke a certain fondness for the grape. She made certain to fill his cup as often as he emptied it. The youngest man in the party had three ravens on his chest, each clutching a blood-red heart in its talons. His brown hair was shoulder-length. One stray lock curled down across his forehead. Salin Corbray, Elaine thought, with a wary glance at his hard mouth and restless eyes. Last of all came the Royces, Lord Nestor and Bronzion. The Lord of Runestone stood as tall as the hound. Though his hair was grey and his face lined, Lord Yon still looked as though he could break most younger men like twigs in those huge, gnarled hands. His seamed and solemn face brought back all of Sansa's memories of his time at Winterfell. She remembered him at table, speaking quietly with her mother. She heard his voice booming off the walls when he rode back from the hunt with a buck behind his saddle. She could see him in the yard, a practice sword in hand, hammering her father to the ground, and turning to defeat Sir Roderick as well. He will know me. How could he not? She considered throwing herself at his feet to beg for his protection. He never fought for Rob. Why should he fight for me? The war is finished, and Winterfell has fallen. Lord Royce, she asked timidly. Will you have a cup of wine to take the chill off? Bronze John had slate-gray eyes, half-hidden beneath the bushiest eyebrows she had ever seen. They crinkled when he looked down at her. Do I know you, girl? Elaine felt as though she had swallowed her tongue, but Lord Nestor rescued her. Elaine is the Lord Protector's natural daughter, he told his cousin gruffly. Little fingers, little finger. "'Has been busy,' said Lynn Corbury, with a wicked smile. "'Belmore laughed, and Elaine could feel the colour rising in her cheeks. "'How old are you, child?' asked Lady Wainwood. Four and fourteen, my lady.' "'For a moment she had forgotten how old Elaine should be. "'And I'm no child, but a maiden flowered. "'But not de-flowered, one can hope.' "'Young Lord Hunter's bushy moustache hid his mouth entirely. Yet said Lynn Corbury, as if she were not there. 
but ripe for plucking soon, I'd say. Is that what passes for courtesy at heart's home? Anya Wainwood's hair was greying, and she had crow's feet round her eyes and loose skin beneath her chin. But there was no mistaking the air of nobility about her. The girl is young and gently bred, and has suffered enough horrors. Mind your tongue, sir. My tongue is my concern, Corbray replied. Your ladyship should take care to mind her own. I've never taken kindly to chastisement, as any number of dead men could tell you. Lady Wainwood turned away from him. Best take us to your father, Elaine. The sooner we are done with this, the better. The Lord Protector awaits you in the solar. If my lords would follow me. From the crescent chamber they climbed a steep flight of marble steps that bypassed both undercrofts and dungeons and passed beneath three murder holes, which the Lord's declarant pretended not to notice. Belmore was soon puffing like a bellows, and Redford's face turned as grey as his hair. The guards atop the stairs raised the portcullis at their coming. This way, if you please, my lords. Elaine led them down the arcade past a dozen splendid tapestries. Sir Lothar Brune stood outside the solar. He opened the door for them and followed them inside. Peter was seated at the trestle table with a cup of wine to hand, looking over a crisp white parchment. He glanced up as the Lord's declarant filed in. My Lord, be welcome. And you as well, my lady. The ascent is wearisome, I know. Please be seated. Elaine, my sweet, more wine for a noble guest. As you say, father. The candles had been lighted, she was pleased to see. The solar smelled of nutmeg and other costly spices. She went to fetch the flagon, whilst the visitors arranged themselves side by side, all save Nestor Royce, who hesitated before walking around the table to take the empty chair beside Lord Peter and Lynn Corbray who went to stand beside the hearth instead. The heart-shaped ruby in the pommel of his sword shone redly as he warmed his hands. Elaine saw him smile at Sir Lothar Brune. Selin is very handsome for an older man, she thought, but I do not like the way he smiles. I've been reading this remarkable declaration of yours, Peter began. Splendid! Whatever maester wrote this as a gift for words, I only wish you had invited me to sign as well. That took them unawares. You, said Belmore, sign? I will the quill, as well as any man, and no one loves Lord Robert more than I do. As for these false friends and evil counsellors, by all means, let us root them out. My lords, I am with you, heart and hand. Show me where to sign, I beg you. Elaine, pouring, heard Lynn Corbridge chuckle. The other seemed at a loss, till bronze Jan Royce cracked his knuckles and said, We do not come for your signature, nor do we mean to bandy words with you, little finger. What a pity I do so love a nicely banded word. Peter set the parchment to one side. As you wish, let us be blunt. What would you have of me? my lords and ladies. Uh, we will have naught of you. Simon Templeton fixed the Lord Protector with his cold blue stare. We will have you gone. 
gone. Peter feigned surprise. Where would I go? The crown has made you Lord of Harrenhal, young Lord Hunter pointed out. That should be enough for any man. The Riverlands have need of a lord, old Horton Redford said. River Run stands besieged. Bracken and Blackwood are at open war, and outlaws roam freely on both sides of the Trident, stealing and killing as they will. Unburied corpses litter the landscape everywhere you go. You make it sound so wonderfully attractive, Lord Redford, Peter answered. But as it happens, I have present duties here, and there is Lord Robert to consider. Would you have me drag a sickly child into the midst of such carnage? His lordship will remain in the vale, declared Jan Royce. I mean to take the boy with me to Runestone and raise him up to be a knight that John Aaron would be proud of. Why Runestone? Peter mused. Why not Iron Oaks or the Red Fort? Why not Longbow Hall? Any of these would serve as well, declared Lord Belmore, and his lordship will visit each in turn in due time. Willie! Peter's tone seemed to hint at doubts. Lady Wainwood sighed. Ah, Lord Peter, if you think to set us one against the other, you may spare yourself the effort. We speak with one voice here. Runestone suits us all. Lord Yon raised three fine sons of his own. There is no man more fit to foster his young lordship. Mr. Hellywig is a good deal older and more experienced than your own Mr. Coleman, and better suited to treat Lord Robert's frailties. In Runestone, the boy will learn the arts of war from strong Sam Stone. No man could hope for a finer master at arms. Septon Lucas will instruct him in the matters of the spirit. At Runestone he will also find other boys his own age, more suitable companions than the old women and sellswords that presently surround him. Peter Baelish fingered his beard. His lordship needs companions. I do not disagree. Elaine is hardly an old woman, though. Lord Robert loves my daughter dearly. He will be glad to tell you so himself. And as it happens, I have asked Lord Grafton and Lord Lindley to send me each a son to ward, each of them as a boy of an age with Robert. Lynn Corbury laughed. Two pops from a pair of lapdogs. Robert should have an older boy about him, too. A promising young squire, say. Someone he could admire and try to emulate. Peter turned to Lady Wainwood. You have such a boy at Arnoaks, my lady. Perhaps you might agree to send me Harold Harding. Anya Wainwood seemed amused. Lord Petrie, you are as bold a thief as I'd ever care to meet. I do not wish to steal the boy, said Peter. But he and Lord Robert should be friends. Bronze Jan Royce leaned forward. It is meet and proper that Lord Robert should befriend young Harry, and he shall, at Runestone under my care, as my ward and squire. Give us the boy, said Lord Belmore, and you may depart the vale unmolested for your proper seat at Harrenhal. Peter gave him a look of mild reproach. Are you suggesting 
that elsewise I might come to harm, my lord. I cannot think why. My late wife seemed to think this was my proper seat. Lord Baelish, Lady Wainwood said, Lysa Tully was John Aaron's widow and the mother of his child and ruled here as his regent. You, uh, let's be frank, you are no Aaron and Lord Robert is no blood of yours. By what right do you presume to rule us? Lysa named me Lord Protector, I do seem to recall. Young Lord Hunter said, Lysa Tully was never truly of the Vale, nor had she the right to dispose of us. And Lord Robert, Peter asked, will your lordship also claim that Lady Lysa had no right to dispose of her own son? Nestor Royce had been silent all this while, but now he spoke up loudly. I once hoped to win Lady Lysa myself, as did Lord Hunter's father and Lady Anya's son. Corbray scarce left her side for half a year. Had she chosen any one of us, no man here would dispute his right to be the Lord Protector. It happens that she chose Lord Littlefinger, and entrusted her son to his care. He was John Aaron's son as well, cousin, Bronze John said, frowning at the keeper. He belongs to the Vale. Peter feigned puzzlement. The airy is as much a part of the Vale as Runestone, unless someone has moved it. Ah, jeep all you like, little finger, Lord Belmore blustered. The boy shall come with us. I am loath to disappoint you, Lord Belmore, but my stepson will be remaining here with me. He's not a robust child, as all of you well know. The journey would tax him sorely. As his stepfather and Lord Protector, I cannot permit it. Simon Templeton cleared his throat and said, Each of us has a thousand men at the foot of this mountain, little finger. What a splendid place for them. If need be, we can summon many more. Are you threatening me with war, sir? Peter did not sound the least afraid. Bronzion said, We shall have Lord Robert. For a moment it seemed as though they had come to an impasse, until Lynn Corbury turn from the fire. All this talk makes me ill. Littlefinger will talk you out of your small clothes if you listen long enough. The only way to settle his sort is with steel. He drew his longsword. Peter spread his hands. I wear no sword, sir. Easily remedied. Candlelight rippled along the smoke-gray steel of Corbray's blade, so dark that it put Sansa in mind of ice. Her father's greatsword. Your apple-eater holds a blade. Tell him to give it to you. Or draw that dagger. She saw Lothar Brune reach for his own sword. But before the blades could meet, Bronzion rose in wrath. Put up your steel, sir. Are you a corbry or a fray? We are guests here. Lady Wainwood pursed her lips and said, This is unseemly. Sheathe your sword, Corbray, young Lord Hunter echoed. You shame us all with this. Come, Lynn, chided Redfort in a softer tone. This will serve for naught. Put Lady Forlorn to bed. My lady has a thirst, Sir Lynn insisted. Whenever she comes out to dance, she likes a drop of red. Your lady must go thirsty. Bronzion put himself 
squarely in Corbray's path. Oh, the Lord's declarant, Lynn Corby snorted. You should have named yourself the Six Old Women. He slid the dark sword back into a scabbard and left them, shouldering Brune aside as if he were not there. Elaine listened to his footsteps recede. Anya Wainwood and Horton Redford exchanged a look. Hunter drained his wine cup and held it out to be refilled. Lord Baelish, Sir Simon said, you must forgive us that display. Must I? Littlefinger's voice had grown cold. You brought him here, my lords. Bronzion said, it was never our intent. You brought him here. I would be well within my rights to call my guards and have all of you arrested. Hunter lurched to his feet so wildly that he almost knocked the flagon out of Elaine's hands. You gave us a safe conduct. Yes, be grateful that I have more honour than some. Peter sounded as angry as she'd ever heard him. I have read your declaration and heard your demands. Now hear mine. Remove your armies from this mountain. Go home and leave my son in peace. Misrule there has been. I will not deny it. But that was Lysa's work, not mine. Grant me but a year, and with Lord Nestor's help, I promise that none of you shall have any cause for grievance. So you see, said Belmore. Yet how shall we trust you? You dare call me untrustworthy. It was not me who bared steel at a parley. You're right of defending Lord Robert, even as you deny him food. That must end. I'm no warrior, but I will fight you if you do not lift the siege. There are other laws besides you in the Vale, and King's Landing will send men as well. If it is war you want, say so now, and the Vale will bleed. Elaine could see the doubt blooming in the eyes of the Lord's declarant. A year is not so long a time. Lord Redford said uncertainly. Mayhaps uh, if you gave assurances. None of us wants war, acknowledged Lady Wainwood. Autumn wanes, and we must gird ourselves for winter. Belmore cleared his throat. At the end of this year, if I have not set the veil to rights, I shall willingly step down as Lord Protector. Peter promised him. I call that more than fair, Lord Nestor Royce put in. There must be no reprisals, insisted Templeton. No talk of treason or rebellion. You must swear to that as well. Gladly, said Peter. It is friends I want, not foes. I shall pardon all of you, in writing if you wish. Even Lind Corbury. His brother is a good man. There's no need to bring down shame upon a noble house. Lady Wainwood turned to her fellow lord's declarant. My lords, perhaps we might confer. There is no need. It's plain that he has won. Bronze Jan's grey eyes considered Peter Baelish. I like it not, but it would seem you have your year. Best use it well, my lord. Not all of us are fooled. He opened the door so forcefully that he all but wrenched it off its hinges. Later there was a feast of sorts, though Peter was forced to make apologies for the humble fare. Robert was trotted out in a doublet of cream and blue and played the little lord quite graciously. 
Bronze John was not there to see. He had already departed from the Eyrie to begin the long descent, as had Selin Corbray before him. The other lords remained with them till morn. He bewitched them, Elaine thought, as she lay abed that night, listening to the wind howl outside her windows. She could not have said where the suspicion came from, but once it crossed her mind, it would not let her sleep. She tossed and turned, worrying at it like a dog at some old bone. Finally she rose and dressed herself, leaving Gretchel to her dreams. Peter was still awake, scratching out a letter. "'Elaine,' he said. "'My sweet, what brings you here so late?' I had to know. What will happen in a year? He put down his quill. Red Fort and Wainwood are old. One or both of them may die. Gilwood Hunter will be murdered by his brothers, most likely by young Harlan, who arranged Lord Ian's death. In for a penny, in for a stag, I always say. Belmore is corrupt and can be bought. Templeton I shall befriend. Bronze Yon Royce will continue to be hostile, I fear, but so long as he stands alone, is not so much a threat. And Selin Corbray? The candlelight was dancing in his eyes. Selin will remain my implacable enemy. He will speak of me with scorn and loathing to every man he meets, and lend his sword to every secret plot to bring me down. That was when her suspicion turned to certainty. And how shall you reward him for this service? Littlefinger laughed aloud. With gold, <laughs> and boys, <laughs> and promises, of course. Selin is a man of simple taste, my sweetling. All he likes is gold, and boys, and killing. Cersei. The king was pouting. I want to sit on the Iron Throne, he told her. You always let Joff sit up there. But Joff was twelve. But I'm the king. The throne belongs to me. Oh, who told you that? Cersei took a deep breath, so Dorcas could lace her up more tightly. She was a big girl, much stronger than Sunil, though clumsier as well. Tommen's face turned red. No one told me. No one? Is that what you call your lady wife? The Queen could smell Marjorie Tyrell all over this rebellion. If you lie to me, I will have no choice but to send for Pate and have him beaten till he bleeds. Pate was Tommen's whipping boy, as he had been Geoffrey's. Is that what you want? No, the King muttered sullenly. Who told you? He shuffled his feet. Lady Marjorie. He knew better than to call her queen in his mother's hearing. That is better, Tommen. I have grave matters to decide, matters that you are far too young to understand. I do not need a silly little boy fidgeting on the throne behind me and distracting me with childish questions. I suppose Marjorie thinks you ought to be at my council meetings, too. Yes, he admitted. She says I have to learn to be king. When you are older, you can attend as many councils as you wish, Cersei told him. 
I promise you, you'll soon grow sick of them. Robert used to doze through the sessions. When he troubled to attend at all, he preferred to hunt and hawk and leave the tedium to old Lord Aaron. Do you remember him? He died of a bellyache. So he did, poor man. As you are so eager to learn, perhaps you should learn the names of all the kings of Westeros and the hands who served them. You may recite them to me on the morrow. Yes, mother, he said meekly. That's my good boy. The rule was hers. Cersei did not mean to give it up until Tommen came of age. I waited. So can he. I waited half my life. She had played the dutiful daughter, the blushing bride, the pliant wife. She had suffered Robert's drunken groping, Jamie's jealousy, Renly's mockery, Varys with his titters, Stannis endlessly grinding his teeth. She had contended with John Aaron, Ned Stark, and her vile, treacherous, murderous dwarf brother, all the while promising herself that one day it would be her turn. If Marjorie Tyrrell thinks to cheat me of my R in the sun, she had bloody well think again. Still, it was an ill way to break her fast, and Cersei's day did not soon improve. She spent the rest of the morning with Lord Giles in his ledger books, listening to him cough about stars and stags and dragons. After him, Lord Waters arrived to report that the first three Drummonds were near completion and begged for more gold to finish them in the splendour they deserved. The Queen was pleased to grant him his request. Moonboy capered as she took her midday meal with members of the merchant guilds and listened to them complain about sparrows wandering the streets and sleeping in the squares. I may need to use the gold cloaks to chase these sparrows from the city, she was thinking, when Pycelle intruded. The Grand Maester had been especially querulous in council of late. At the last session he had complained bitterly about the men that Oren Waters had chosen to captain her new drummonds. Waters meant to give the ships to younger men, whilst Pycelle argued for experience, insisting that their command should go to those captains who had survived the fires of the Blackwater. Seasoned men of proven loyalty, he called them. Cersei called them old, and sided with Lord Waters. The only thing these captains proved was that they know how to swim, she'd said. No mother should outlive her children, and no captain should outlive his ship. Purcell had taken the rebuke with ill grace. He seemed less choleric today, and even managed a sort of tremulous smile. Your grace, glad tidings, he announced. Wyman Mandalay has done as you commanded and beheaded Lord Stannis's onion knight. We know this for a certainty. The man's head and hands have been mounted above the walls of White Harbor. Lord Wyman avows this, and the phrase confirm. They have seen the head there with an onion in its mouth, and the hands, one marked by his shortened fingers. Very good, said Cersei. Send a bird to Mandalay and inform him that his son will be returned forthwith, now that he has demonstrated his loyalty. White Harbour would soon return to the king's peace, and Roose Bolton and his bastard son were closing in on Moat Caelan, 
from south and north. Once the moat was theirs, they would join their strength and clear the ironmen out of Torren Square and Deepwood Mott as well. That should win them the allegiance of Ned Stark's remaining bannermen when the time came to march against Lord Stannis. To the south, meanwhile, Mace Tyrell had raised a city of tents outside Storm's End and had two dozen mangonels flinging stones against the castle's massive walls, thus far to small effect. Ah, Lord Tyrell the warrior, the Queen mused. His sigil ought to be a fat man sitting on his arse. That afternoon, the Dour Bravassi envoy turned up for his audience. Cersei had put him off for a fortnight, and would have gladly put him off another year. But Lord Giles claimed he could no longer deal with the man, though the Queen was starting to wonder if Giles was capable of doing anything but coughing. No ho, Demetrius, the Bravassi named himself. An irritating name for an irritating man. His voice was irritating, too. Cersei shifted in her seat as he went on, wondering how long she must endure his hectoring. Behind her loomed the iron throne, its barbs and blades throwing twisted shadows across the floor. Only the king or his hand could sit upon the throne itself. Cersei sat by its foot, in a seat of gilded wood piled with crimson cushions. When the Bravasi paused for breath, she saw her chance. This is more properly a matter for our Lord Treasurer. That answer did not please a noble noho, it would seem. I have spoken with Lord Giles of six times. He coughs at me and makes excuses, Your Grace. But the gold is not forthcoming. Speak to him a seventh time, Cersei suggested pleasantly. The number seven is sacred to our gods. It pleases your grace to make a jest, eh? I see. <laughs> when I make a jest, I smile. Do you see me smiling? Do you hear laughter? I assure you, when I make a jest, men laugh. King Robert is dead, she said sharply. The Bank will have its gold when this rebellion has been put down. He had the insolence to scowl at her. Your grace, this audience is at an end. Cersei had suffered quite enough for one day. Sir Meryn, show this noble Noho Demeters to the door. Sir Osmond, you may escort me back to my apartments. Her guests would soon arrive, and she had to bathe and change. Supper promised to be a tedious affair as well. It was hard work to rule a kingdom, much less seven of them. Sir Osmond Kettleback fell in beside her on the steps, tall and lean, in his king's guard whites. When Cersei was certain they were quite alone, she slid her arm through his. How is your little brother faring, pray? Sir Osmond looked uneasy. Er, uh, well, enough, only, uh Only? The queen let a hint of anger edge her words. I must confess I am running short of patience with dear Osney. It is past time he broke in that little filly. I named him Tommen's Sworn Shield, so he could spend part of every day in Marjorie's company. He should have plucked the rose by now. Is the little queen blind to his charms? Oh, his charms is fine. He's a kettle black, ain't he? Uh, begging your pardon? Sir Osmond ran his fingers through his oily black hair. 
It's her that's a trouble. And why is that? The Queen had begun to nurse doubts about Sir Osney. Perhaps another man would have been more to Marjorie's liking. Orane Waters with that silvery hair. Or a big strapping fellow like Sir Teller. Would the maid prefer someone else? Does your brother's face displease her? Oh, she likes his face. She touched his scars two days ago, he told me. What woman gave you these? she asked. Osney never said it was a woman, but she knew. Might be someone told her. She's always touching him when they talk, he says, straightening the clasp on his cloak, brushing back his hair and like that. One time, at the archery butt, she had him show her how to hold a longbow. So he had to put his arms around her. Osney tells her, bawdy Jess, and she laughs and comes back with ones that are even bawdier. Oh, she wants him, that's plain, but... But, Cersei prompted, they are never alone. The king's with them most all the time. And when he's not, there's someone else. Two of her ladies share her bed. Different ones every night. Two others bring her breakfast and help her dress. She prays with her scepter, reads with her cousin Eleanor, sings with her cousin Alla, sews with her cousin Megger. When she's not off hawking with Janna Fussaway and Mary Crane, she's playing Come Into My Castle with that little Bulwer girl. She never goes riding, but she takes a tail. Four or five companions and a dozen guards at least, and there's always men about her, even in the maiden vault. Men? That was something. That had possibilities. What men are these, pray tell? Sir Osmond shrugged. Singers. She's a fool for singers and jugglers and such. Knights come round to moon over her cousins. Sir Talad's the worst, Osney says. That big oaf don't seem to know if it's Eleanor or Arla he wants, but he knows he wants her awful bad. The Redwind twins come calling too. Slubber brings flowers and fruit, and horror's taken up the loot. To hear Osney tell it, you can make a sweeter sound strangling a cat. The summer islanders always underfoot as well. Cersei gave a derisive snort, begging her for gold and swords to win his homeland back, most like. Beneath his jewels and feathers, Zoe was little more than a well-born beggar. Robert could have put an end to his importuning for good with one firm no, but the notion of conquering the Summer Isles had appealed to her drunken lout of a husband. No doubt he dreamed of brown-skin wenches, naked, beneath feathered cloaks with nipples black as coal. So instead of no, Robert always told Zoe next year, though somehow next year never came. Why couldn't say if he was begging, Your Grace? Sir Osmond answered. Osney says he's teaching them the summer tongue. Not Osney, the qu uh, the filly and her cousins. A horse that speaks a summer tongue would make a great sensation, the queen said dryly. Tell your brother to keep his spurs well honed. I shall find some way for him to mount his filly soon. He may rely on that. I'll tell him, your grace. He's eager for that roid. <laughs> Don't think he ain't. Oh, she's a pretty little thing, <laughs> that filly. It is me he's eager for, fool, the queen thought. All he wants of Marjorie is the lordship between her legs. 
As fond as she was of Osmond, at times he seemed as slow as Robert. I hope his sword is quicker than his wits. The day may come that Tommen has some need of it. They were crossing beneath the shadow of the broken tower of the hand, when the sound of cheers swept over them. Across the yard some squire had made a pass at the quintain, and sent the cross-arm spinning. The cheers were being led by Marjorie Tyrrell and her hens. A lot of uproar for very little. You would think the boy had won a tawny. Then she was startled to see that it was Tommen on the courser, clad all in gilded plate. The queen had little choice but to don a smile and go to see her son. She reached him as the knight of flowers was helping him from his horse. The boy was breathless with excitement. Did you see? He was asking everyone. I did it just the way Sir Loris said. Did you see, Sir Osney? I did, said Osney Kettleblack. A pretty sight. You have a better seat than me, sire, put in Sir Dermot. I broke the lance too, Sir Loris. Did you hear it? As loud as a crack of thunder. A rose of jade and gold clasped Sir Loris's white cloak at the shoulder, and the wind was riffling artfully through his brown locks. You rode a splendid course, but once is not enough. You must do it again upon the morrow. You must ride every day until every blow lands true and straight, and your lance is as much a part of you as your arm. I want to. You were glorious. Marjorie went to one knee, kissed the king upon his cheek, and put an arm around him. Brother, take care, she warned Loris. My gallant husband will be unhorsing you in a few more years, I think. Her three cousins all agreed, and the wretched little Bulwer girl began to hop about chanting, Tommen will be the champion, the champion, the champion. When he is a man grown, said Cersei. Their smiles withered like roses kissed by frost. The puck-faced old scepter was the first to bend her knee. The rest followed, save for the little queen and her brother. Tommen did not seem to notice the sudden chill in the air. Mother, did you see me? He burbled happily. I broke my lance on the shield, and the bag never hit me. I was watching you from across the yard. You did very well, Tommen. I would expect no less of you. "'Justing is in your blood. "'One day you shall rule the lists as your father did. "'No man will stand before him.' "'Marjorie Tyrrell gave the Queen a coy smile. "'But I never knew that King Robert was so accomplished at the joust. "'Pray tell us, Your Grace, what tawnies did he win? "'What great knights did he unseat? "'I know the King should like to hear about his father's victories.' "'A flush crept up Circe's neck.' The girl had caught her out. Robert Baratheon had been an indifferent jouster, in truth. During tourneys he had much preferred the melee, where he could beat men bloody with blunted axe or hammer. It had been Jamie she had been thinking of when she spoke. It's not like me to forget myself. Robert won the tourney of the Trident, she had to say. He overthrew Prince Rhaegar and named me his Queen of Love and Beauty. I'm surprised you do not know that story, good daughter. She gave Marjorie no time to frame a reply. Sir Osmond, help my son from his armour, if you would be so good. Sir Loras, walk with me. I need a word with you. The Knight of Flowers had no recourse but to follow at her heels, like the puppy he was. 
Cersei waited until they were on the serpentine steps before she said, Whose notion was that, pray? My sister's, he admitted. Sir Talad, Sir Dermot, and Sir Portifer were riding at the Quintain, and the Queen suggested that his grace might like to have a turn. He calls her that to irk me. And your part? I helped his grace to don his armour and showed him how to couch his lance, he answered. The horse was much too large for him. What if he had fallen off? What if the sandbag had smashed his head in? Bruises and bloody lips are all part of being a knight. I begin to understand why your brother is a cripple. That wiped the smile off his pretty face. She was pleased to see. Perhaps my brother failed to explain your duties to you, sir. You are here to protect my son from his enemies. Training him for knighthood is the province of the master at arms. The Red Keep has had no master at arms since Aaron Santigar was slain, Sir Loras said, with a hint of reproach in his voice. His grace is almost nine and eager to learn. At his age, he should be a squire. Someone has to teach him. Someone will, but it will not be you. Pray, who did you squire for, sir? she asked sweetly. Lord Rindley, was it not? I had that honour. Yes, I thought as much. Cersei had seen how tight the bonds grew between squires and the knights they served. She did not want Tommen growing close to Loras Tyrell. The Knight of Flowers was no sort of man for any boy to emulate. I have been remiss. With a realm to rule, a war to fight, and a father to mourn, somehow I overlook the crucial matter of naming a new master at arms. I shall rectify that error at once. Sir Loras pushed back a brown curl that had fallen across his forehead. Your Grace will not find any man half so skilled with sword and lance as I. Oh, humble, aren't we? Tommen is your king, not your squire. You are to fight for him and die for him if need be. No more. She left him on the drawbridge that spanned the dry moat with its bed of iron spikes and entered Magar's holdfast alone. Where am I to find a master at arms? She wondered as she climbed to her apartments. Having refused Solaris, she dare not turn to any of the King's Guard's knights. That would be salt in the wound, certainly to anger Highgarden. Sir Tanad? Sir Dermot? There must be someone. Tommen was growing fond of his new sworn shield, but Osnir was proving himself less capable than she had hoped in the matter of Maid Marjorie, and she had a different office in mind for his brother Osfrid. It was rather a pity that the hound had gone rabid. Tommen had always been frightened of Sandor Clegane's harsh voice and burned face, and Clegane's scorn would have been the perfect antidote to Loras Tyrell's simpering chivalry. Aron Sentikar was Dornish, Cersei recalled. I could send to Dorn. Centuries of blood and war lay between Sunspear and High Garden. Yes, a Dornishman might suit my needs admirably. There must be some good swords in Dorn. When she entered her solar, Cersei found Lord Kyburn reading in a window seat. If it please your grace, I have reports. More plots and treasons? Cersei asked. 
I've had a long and tiring day. Tell me quickly. He smiled sympathetically. As you wish, there is talk that the Archon of Tyrosh has offered terms to Lys to end their present trade war. It had been rumored that Myr was about to enter the war on the Tyrosh's side. But without the Golden Company, the Myrish did not believe the... What the Myrish believed does not concern me. The free cities were always fighting one another. Their endless betrayals and alliances meant little and less to Westeros. Do you have any news of more import? The slave revolt in Astapur has spread to Mirin, it would seem. Sailors of a dozen ships speak of dragons, harpies. It is harpies in Mirin. She remembered that from somewhere. Mirin was at the far end of the world, out east beyond Valyria. Let the slaves revolt. Why should I care? We keep no slaves in Westeros. Is that all you have for me? There is some news from Dorne that your grace may find of more interest. Prince Dorne has imprisoned Sir Damon Sand, a bastard who once squired for the Red Viper. I recall him. Sir Damon had been amongst the Dornish knights who had accompanied Prince Oberon to King's Landing. What did he do? He demanded that Prince Oberon's daughters be set free. More fool him. Also, Lord Kyburn said, the daughter of the Knight of Spotswood was betrothed quite unexpectedly to Lord Eastermont, our friends in Dorne inform us. She was sent to Greenstone that very night, and it said she and Eastermont have already wed. Well, a bastard in the belly would explain that. Cersei toyed with a lock of her hair. How old is the blushing bride? Three and twenty, your grace. Whereas Lord Eastermon must be seventy, I am aware of that. The Eastermons were her good kin through Robert, whose father had taken one of them to wife in what must have been a fit of lust or madness. By the time Cersei wed the king, Robert's lady mother was long dead, though both of her brothers had turned up for the wedding and stayed for half a year. Robert had later insisted on returning the courtesy with a visit to Eastermont, a mountainous little island off Cape Roth. The dank and dismal fortnight Cersei spent at Greenstone, the seat of House Estermont, was the longest of her young life. Jamie dubbed the castle Greenshit at first sight, and soon had Cersei doing it too. Elsewise, she passed her days watching her royal husband hawk hunt, and drink with his uncles, and bludgeon various male cousins senseless in Greenshit's yard. There had been a female cousin, too, a chunky little widow with breasts as big as melons, whose husband and father had both died at Storm's End during the siege. Her father was good to me, Robert told her, and she and I would play together when the two of us were small. It did not take him long to start playing with her again. As soon as Cersei closed her eyes, the king would steal off to console the poor, lonely creature. One night she had Jamie follow him to confirm her suspicions. When her brother returned, he asked her if she wanted Robert dead. No, she had replied. I want him horned. She liked to think that that was the night Joffrey was conceived. Eldon Estermont has taken a wife fifty years his junior she said to Kyburn. 
Why should that concern me? He shrugged. I do not say it should. But Damon Sand and the Santigar girl were both close to Prince Doran's own daughter, Ariane, or so the Dornishman would have us believe. Perhaps it means little or less, but I thought your grace should know. Now I do. She was losing patience. Do you have more? One more thing, a trifling matter. He gave her an apologetic smile and told her of a puppet show that had recently become popular amongst the city's small folk. A puppet show wherein the kingdom of the beasts was ruled by a pride of haughty lions. Uh, the puppet lions grow greedy and arrogant as this treasonous tale proceeds, until they begin to devour their own subjects. When the noble stag makes objection, the lions devour him as well, and roar that it is their right as the mightiest of beasts. And is that the end of it? Cersei asked, amused. Looked at in the right light, it could be seen as a salutary lesson. No, your grace. At the end, a dragon hatches from an egg and devours all the lions. The ending took the puppet show from simple insolence to treason. Witless fools. Only cretins would hazard their heads upon a wooden dragon. She considered a moment. Send some of your whisperers to these shows and make note of who attends. If any of them should be men of note, I would know their names. What will be done with them, if I may be so bold? Any men of substance shall be fined. Half their worth should be sufficient to teach them a sharp lesson and refill our coffers without quite ruining them. Those too poor to pay can lose an eye for watching treason. For the puppeteers, the axe. There are four. Perhaps your grace might allow me two of them for mine own purposes. A woman would be especially... I gave you Sunel, the queen said sharply. Uh, alas, the poor girl is quite uh, exhausted. Cersei did not like to think about that. The girl had come with her unsuspecting, thinking she was along to serve and pour. Even when Kyburn clapped the chain around her wrist, she had not seemed to understand. The memory still made the queen queasy. The cells were bitter cold, even the torches shivered, and that foul thing screaming in the darkness. Yes, you may take a woman, too, if it please you, but first I will have names. As you command, Kyburn withdrew. Outside the sun was setting. Dorcas had prepared a bath for her. The queen was soaking pleasantly in the warm water and contemplating what she would say to her supper guests when Jamie came bursting through the door and ordered Jocelyn and Dorcas from the room. Her brother looked rather less than immaculate and had a smell of horse about him. He had Tommen with him, too. Sweet sister, he said, the king requires a word. Cersei's golden tresses floated in the bathwater. The room was steamy. A drop of sweat trickled down her cheek. Tommen, she said, in a dangerously soft voice, what is it now? The boy knew that tone. He shrank back. His grace wants his white courser on the morrow, Jamie said, for his jousting lesson. 
she sat up in the tub. There will be no jousting. Yes, there will. Tommen puffed out his lower lip. I have to ride every day. And you shall, the queen declared, once we have a proper master at arms to supervise your training. I don't want a proper master at arms. I want Solaris. You make too much of that boy. Your little wife has filled your head with foolish notions of his prowess. I know. But Sir Osmond Kettleblack is thrice the knight that Loris is. Jamie laughed. Not the Osmond Kettleblack I know. She could have throttled him. Perhaps I need to command Sir Loris to allow Sir Osmond to unhorse him. That might chase the stars from Tommen's eyes, salt a slug and shame a hero, and they shrink right up. I'm sending for a Dornishman to train you, she said. The Dornish are the finest justers in the realm. They are not, said Tommen. Anyway, I don't want any stupid Dornishman. I want Sir Loris. I command it. Jamie laughed. He is no help at all. Does he think this amusing? The queen slapped the water angrily. Must I send for Pate? You do not command me. I am your mother. Yes, but I'm the king. Marjorie says that everyone has to do what the king says. I want my white courser saddled on the morrow so Sir Loris can teach me how to just. I want a kitten, too, and I don't want to eat beets. He crossed his arms. Jamie was still laughing. The queen ignored him. Tommen, come here. When he hung back, she sighed. Are you afraid? A king should not show fear? The boy approached the tub, his eyes downcast. She reached out and stroked his golden curls. King or no, you are a little boy. Until you come of age, the rule is mine. You will learn to joust, I promise you, but not from Loris. The knights of the king's guard have more important duties than playing with a child. Ask the Lord Commander. Isn't that so, sir? Very important duties, Jamie smiled thinly. Riding round the city walls, for an instance. Tommen looked close to tears. Can I still have a kitten? Perhaps, the queen allowed, so long as I hear no more nonsense about jousting. Can you promise me that? He shuffled his feet. Yes. Good. Now run along. My guests will be here shortly. Tommen ran along, but before he left, he turned back to say, When I'm king, in my own right, I'm going to outlaw beats. Her brother shoved the door shut with his stump. Your grace, he said, when he and Cersei were alone, I was wondering, are you drunk or merely stupid? She slapped the water once again, sending up another splash to wash across his feet. Guard your tongue, or, or what? Will you send me to inspect the city walls again? He sat and crossed his legs. Your bloody walls are fine. I've crawled over every inch of them and had a look at all seven of the gates. The hinges on the iron gate are rusted, and the king's gate and mud gate need to be replaced after the pounding Stannis gave them with his rams. The walls are as strong as they have ever been, but perchance your grace has forgotten that our friends of Highgarden are inside the walls. I forget nothing, she told him, thinking of a certain gold coin 
with a hand on one face and the head of a forgotten king on the other. How did some miserable wretch of a jailer come to have such a coin hidden beneath his chamber pot? How does a man like Rugen come to have old gold from Highgarden? This is the first I've heard of a new master-at-arms. You'll need to look long and hard to find a better jouster than Loris Terrell. Sir Loris is— I know what he is. I won't have him near my son. You had best remind him of his duties. Her bath was growing cool. He knows his duties, and there's no better lance. You were better, before you lost your hand. Sir Barristan, when he was young. Arthur Dane was better, and Prince Rhaegar was a match for even him. Do not prate at me about how fierce the flower is. He's just a boy. She was tired of Jamie balking her. No one had ever balked her lord father. When Tywin Lannister spoke, men obeyed. When Cersei spoke, they felt free to counsel her, to contradict her, even refuse her. It's all because I am a woman, because I cannot fight them with a sword. They gave Robert more respect than they give me, and Robert was a witless sot. She would not suffer it, especially not from Jamie. I need to rid myself of him, and soon. Once upon a time, she had dreamt that the two of them might rule the Seven Kingdoms side by side. But Jamie had become more of a hindrance than a help. Cersei rose from the bath. Water ran down her legs and trickled from her hair. When I want your counsel, I will ask for it. Leave me, sir. I must needs dress. Your supper guests, I know. What plot is this now? There are so many I lose track. His glance fell to the water, beading in the golden hair between her legs. He still wants me. Pining for what you've lost, brother? Jamie raised his eyes. I love you too, sweet sister. But you're a fool. A beautiful, golden fool. The word stung. You called me kinder words at Greenstone, the night you planted Juff inside me, Cersei thought. Get out! She turned her back on him and listened to him leave, fumbling at the door with his stump. Whilst Jocelyn was making certain that all was in readiness for the supper, Dorcas helped the Queen into her new gown. It had stripes of shiny green satin alternating with stripes of plush black velvet an intricate black, mirish lace above the bodice. Mirish lace was costly, but it was necessary for a queen to look her best at all times, and her wretched washerwomen had shrunk several of her old gowns, so they no longer fit. She would have whipped them for their carelessness, but Tana had urged her to be merciful. The small folk will love you more if you are kind, she had said. So Cersei had ordered the value of the gowns deducted from the women's wage, a much more elegant solution. Dorcas put a silver looking-glass into her hand. Very good, the Queen thought, smiling at her reflection. It was pleasant to be out of mourning. Black made her look too pale. A pity I'm not sopping with Lady Merriweather, the Queen reflected. It had been a long day, and Tainer's wit always cheered her. Cersei had not had a friend she so enjoyed since Malara Heatherspoon, and Malara had turned out to be a greedy little schemer 
with ideas above her station. I should not think ill of her if she's dead and drowned, and she taught me never to trust anyone but Jamie. By the time she joined them in the solar, her guests had made a good start on the Hippocrates. Lady Felice not only looks like a fish, she drinks like one, she reflected, when she had made note of the half-empty flagon. Sweet Felice, she exclaimed, kissing the woman's cheek, and brave Sir Bellman, I was so distraught when I heard about your dear, dear mother. How fares our Lady Tender? Lady Felice looked as if she was about to cry. Oh, your grace is good to ask. Mother's hip was shattered by the fall, Mr. Franken says. He did what he could. Now we pray, but... Pray all you like. She will still be dead before the moon turns. Women as old as tender Stokeworth do not survive a broken hip. I shall add my prayers to your own, said Cersei. Lord Kyburn tells me that tender was thrown from her horse. Her saddle girth burst while she was riding, said Sir Balman Birch. The stable boy should have seen the strap was worn. He has been chastised. Severely, I hope. The Queen seated herself and indicated that her guest should sit as well. Will you have another cup of Hippocrates, Felice? You're always fond of it, I seem to recall. It is so good of you to remember, Your Grace. How could I have forgotten? Cersei thought. Jamie said it was a wonder you did not piss the stuff. How was your journey? Uh, uncomfortable, complained Felice. It rained most of the day. We sought to spend the night at Rosbury, but that young ward of Lord Giles refused us hospitality, she sniffed. Mark my words, when Giles dies, that ill-born wretch will make off with his gold. He may even try and claim the lands and lordships, though by rights Rosbury should come to us when Giles passes. My lady mother was aunt to his second wife. Third cousin to Giles himself. Is your sigil a lamb, my lady, or some sort of grasping monkey? Cersei thought. Lord Giles has been threatening to die for as long as I have known him, but he's still with us, and will be for many years, I do hope. She smiled pleasantly. No doubt he will cough the whole lot of us into our graves. Like as not, Sir Bellman agreed. Rosby's ward was not the only one to vex us, Your Grace. We encountered ruffians on the road as well, filthy, unkept creatures with leather shields and axes. Some had stars sewn on their jerkins, sacred stars of seven points, but they had an evil look about them all the same. Oh, they were lice-ridden, I am certain, added Felice. They call themselves sparrows, said Cersei, a plague upon the land. Our new High Septon will need to deal with them, once he is crowned. If not, I shall deal with them myself. Has his High Holiness been chosen yet? asked Felice. No, the Queen had to confess. Septon Olador was on the verge of being chosen until some of these sparrows followed him to a brothel and dragged him naked out into the street. Lucian seemed the likely choice now, though our friends on the other hill say is still a few votes short of the required number. Mayor Crone guide the deliberations with her golden lamp of wisdom, said Lady Felice, 
most piously. Sir Bellman shifted in his seat. Your grace, <laughs> an awkward matter, but uh, less bad feeling fester between us. You should know that neither my good wife nor her mother had any hand in the naming of this uh, bastard child. Lollies is a simple creature, and her husband is given to black humours. <laughs> I told him to choose a more fitting name for the boy. He laughed. <laughs> the Queen sipped her wine and studied him. Sir Balman had been a noted jouster once, and one of the handsomest knights in the Seven Kingdoms. He could still boast a handsome moustache. Elsewise, he had not aged well. His wavy blond hair had retreated, whilst his belly advanced inexorably against his doublet. As a cat's paw, he leaves much to be desired, she reflected. Still, he should serve. Tyrion was a king's name before the dragons came. The imp has despoiled it, but perhaps this child can restore the name to honour. If the bastard lives so long. I know you are not to blame. Lady Tander is a sister that I never had. And you? Her voice broke. Forgive me. I live in fear. Felice opened and closed her mouth, which made her look like some especially stupid fish. In, um, in fear, your grace. I have not slept a whole night through since Joffrey died. Cersei filled the goblets with Hippocrates. My friends, you are my friends, I hope. And King Tommins. Oh, that sweet lad, Sir Balman declared. Your grace, the very words of Horse Tokeworth are proud to be faithful. Would that there were more like you, good sir. I tell you truly. I have grave doubts about Sir Bronn of the Blackwater. Husband and wife exchanged a look. The man is insolent, your grace, Felice said, uncouth and foul-mouthed. He is no true knight, Sir Bowman said. No, Cersei smiled all for him, and you are a man who would know true knighthood. I remember watching you joust in, um, which tawny was it, where you fought so brilliantly, sir? He smiled modestly. Oh, that affair, Doskendale, <laughs> six years ago. No, you were not there, else you would surely have been crowned the Queen of Love and Beauty. <laughs> was it the tawny at Lannisport after Greyjoy's rebellion? I unhorsed many a good knight in that one. That was the one. Her face grew somber. The imp vanished the night my father died, leaving two honest jailers behind in pools of blood. Some claim he fled across the narrow sea, but I wonder. The dwarf is cunning. Perhaps he still lurks near, planning more murders. Perhaps some friend is hiding him. Bron? Sir Balmont stroked his bushy moustache. He was ever the imp's creature. Only the stranger knows how many men he sent to hell at Tyrion's behest. Your Grace, I think I should have noticed a dwarf skulking about our lands, said Sir Balmain. Uh, my brother is small. He was made for skulking. Cersei let her hand shake. A child's name is a small thing, but insolence, unpunished, breeds rebellion. And this man, Bronn, has been gathering swords to him. Kyburn has told me. He has taken four knights into his household, said Felice. Sir Balman snorted. 
my good wife Flatterson to call them knights. They're up-jumped sellswords, with not a symbol of chivalry to be found amongst the four of them. As I feared, Bron is gathering swords for the dwarf. May the seven save my little son. The imp will kill him as he killed his brother. She sobbed. My friends, I put my honor in your hands. But what is a queen's honor against a mother's fears? Oh, say on your grace, Sir Bowman assured her. Your word shall ne'er leave this room. Cersei reached across the table and gave his hand a squeeze. I... I would sleep more easily of a night if I were to hear that Sir Bronn had suffered a, a mishap whilst hunting, perhaps. Sir Bowman considered for a moment. A, a, a mortal mishap. No, I desire you to break his little toe. She had to bite her lip. My enemies are everywhere, and my friends are fools. I beg you, sir, she whispered. Do not make me say it. Oh, I, I, I understand. Sir Borman raised a finger. A turnip would have grasped it quicker. You are a true knight indeed, sir. The answer to a frightened mother's prayers. Cersei kissed him. Do it quickly, if you would. Bronn has only a few men about him now, but if we do not act, he will surely gather more. She kissed Felice. I shall never forget this, my friends. My true friends of Stokeworth. Proud to be faithful? You have my word. We shall find Lollis a better husband when this is done. A kettleblack, perhaps. We Lannisters pay our debts. The rest was hippocrass and buttered beets, hot-baked bread, herb-crusted pike, and ribs of wild boar. Cersei had become very fond of boar since Robert's death. She did not even mind the company though Felice simpered and Borman preened from soup to sweet. It was past midnight before she could rid herself of them. Sir Borman proved a great one for suggesting yet another flagon, and the Queen did not think it prudent to refuse. I could have hired a faceless man to kill Bron for half of what I spent on Hippocrates, she reflected when they were gone at last. At that hour her son was fast asleep but Cersei looked in upon him before seeking her own bed. She was surprised to find three black kittens cuddled up beside him. Where did those come from? She asked Sir Merrin Trent outside the royal bedchamber. The little queen gave them to him. She only meant to give him one, but he couldn't decide which one he liked best. Better than cutting them out of their mother with a dagger, I suppose. Marjorie's clumsy attempts at seduction were so obvious as to be laughable. Tommen is too young for kisses, so she gives him kittens. Cersei rather wished they were not black, though. Black cats brought ill luck, as Rhaegar's little girl had discovered in this very castle. She would have been my daughter if the mad king had not played his cruel jape on father. It had to have been the madness that sent Ares to refuse Lord Tywin's daughter and take his son instead, whilst marrying his own son to a feeble Dornish princess with black eyes and a flat jest. The memory of the rejection still rankled, even after all these years. Many nights she had watched Prince Rhaegar in the hall, playing his silver-stringed harp with those long, elegant fingers of his. Had any man ever been so beautiful? 
He was more than a man, though. His blood was the blood of old Valeria, the blood of dragons and gods. When she was just a little girl, her father had promised her that she would marry Rhaegar. She could not have been more than six or seven. Never speak of it, child, he had told her, smiling his secret smile that only Circe ever saw. Not until his grace agrees to the betrothal. It must remain our secret for now. And so it had, though once she had drawn a picture of herself flying behind Rhaegar on a dragon, her arms wrapped tight about his chest. When Jamie had discovered it, she told him it was Queen Alasan and King Jaehaerys. She was ten when she finally saw her prince in the flesh, at the tourney her lord father had thrown to welcome King Ares to the west. Viewing stands had been raised beneath the walls of Lannisport, and the cheers of the small folk had echoed of castly rock like rolling thunder. They cheered father twice as loudly as they cheered the king. The queen recalled, but only half as loudly as they cheered Prince Rhaegar. Seventeen and new to knighthood, Rhaegar Targaryen had worn black plate over golden ringmail when he cantered onto the lists. Long streamers of red and gold and orange silk had floated behind his helm like flames. Two of her uncles fell before his lance, along with a dozen of her father's finest justice, the flower of the West. By night, the prince played his silver harp and made her weep. When she had been presented to him, Circe had almost drowned in the depths of his sad purple eyes. He has been wounded, she recalled thinking, but I will mend his hurt when we are wed. Next to Rhaegar, even her beautiful Jamie had seemed no more than a callow boy. The prince is going to be my husband, she had thought, giddy with excitement, and when the old king dies, I'll be the queen. Her aunt had confided that truth to her before the tourney. You must be especially beautiful, Lady Jenner told her, fussing with her dress. For at the final feast it shall be announced that you and Prince Rhaegar are betrothed. Circe had been so happy that day. Elsewise she would never have dared visit the tent of Maggie the Frog. She had only done it to show Jean and Malara that the lioness fears nothing. I was going to be a queen. Why should a queen be afraid of some hideous old woman? The memory of that foretelling still made her flesh crawl a lifetime later. Jane ran shrieking from the tent in fear, the queen remembered. But Malara stayed, and so did I. We let her taste our blood and laughed at her stupid prophecies. None of them made the least bit of sense. She was going to be Prince Rhaegar's wife no matter what the woman said. Her father had promised it, and Tywin Lannister's word was gold. Her laughter died at Tawny's end. There had been no final feast, no toasts to celebrate her betrothal to Prince Rhaegar, only cold silences and chilly looks between the king and her father. Later, when Ares and his son and all his gallant knights had departed for King's Landing. The girl had gone to her aunt in tears, not understanding. Your father proposed the match, Lady Jenner told her. 
but Ares refused to hear of it. You are my most able servant, Iwin. The king said, but a man does not marry his heir to his servant's daughter. Dry those tears, little one. Have you ever seen a lion weep? Your father will find another man for you, a, a better man than Rhaegar. Her aunt had lied, though, and her father had failed her, just as Jamie was failing her now. Father found no better man. Instead, he gave me Robert, and Maggie's curse bloomed like some poisonous flower. If she had only married Rhaegar, as the gods intended, he would never have looked twice at the wolf girl. Rhaegar would be our king today, and I would be his queen, the mother of his sons. She had never forgiven Robert for killing him. But then, lions were not good at forgiving, as Sabron of the Blackwater would shortly learn.